This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. Thanks for tuning in to my conversation with the great Stuart Anstis. He was the guitarist in Cradle of Filth from around 1994 or 1995 to 1999, appearing on the two albums that matter. I'm talking about Dusk and Her Embrace and Cruelty and the Beast. That is the band's. Well, Danny Filth himself calls it the game changer. I think it's a magnum opus. Nick Barker, though, thinks it's a bit of a flawed magnum opus. You can go and have a listen to that chat because I've spoken to him about it all. But uh, regardless, the songs are just the high watermark in the group's catalogue. The conversation was recorded back in September of 2017. It was first broadcast by Community Radio in Brisbane, that being 4ZZZ, back when I had the Scars and Guitars radio show. So I had Scars and Guitars, the podcast series, and Scars and Guitars, the radio show. Ever since it's been posted, it has gone on to become easily the show's most listened to episode, and I get more mail about it than all other episodes combined. It just shows that there is massive interest out there regarding Stuart and that era of Cradle of Filth. Something else, someone started a Reddit thread about this episode. Fair enough. I live in a democracy and I'm assuming the person who created the thread does as well. You can do and say what you want, but just keep a few things in mind. I conducted this conversation near to the beginning of my podcast, Odyssey, and my intention was to go and edit it, but that'd ruin it. It's a dynamic conversation. It ebbs and flows. If I remove a bit, it might not, well, it might affect what happens later on in the chat. So I just left it all in. At one point, Stuart even stops to answer his phone. That's how intact the entire conversation is from the hello to the goodbye. You get all of it. So I just wanted to give you that context. Enjoy. Go and get something to drink, perhaps something to smoke. Relax. If you're driving, maybe don't do those things. Keep your eyes on the road or whatever. But enjoy the conversation because I certainly, it was a thrill for me to, to actually talk to Stuart. He's a bloody good bloke, it must be said. And what shouldn't need to be said is that his contribution to the band certainly helped Danny on his way to making Cradle of Filth or turning the band into one of the most popular black metal outfits of all time. So here he is the great Stuart Anstis. Hello, Andy, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, mate. Good, mate. How's things? Oh, normal for a Monday. Excuse me, I'm just going to turn my music off. No worries. My, my phone is fucking useless on Skype. I'll do my best for you. No, you're right, mate. Actually, you're coming through loud and clear, so... Um, yeah, oh, I'll cool. Re- Let me see if I can switch to speakerphone, because that normally works better. No worries. No, that's not happening. I'll just have to hold it. <laughs> <laughs> cool, mate. Well, look, mate, this is an honour and a privilege. I've got to tell you, I've been a fan of yours for a very long time. Um, so, first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to the interview. Well, thank you. It's, I'm still getting used to being appreciated because uh, 20 <laughs> years ago, it didn't happen. I've had loads of fantastic messages from people, like, especially in Australia, actually, where I think I visited once. You did once and, and uh, I was in the crowd then, actually. It's a great place. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I was... Uh, it was only Sydney and Melbourne, but it was they were 
Excellent shows, excellent shows. They were, actually. Look, I'll let you know, just very coincidentally, mate, I mean, what I do for a living these days is I'm also a musician. I'm a bass guitarist and a guitarist, so I play in cover bands around town. But the other thing that I do is I am a journalist and I interview musicians, and lo and behold, an interview that I had the other night was with Danny himself. So I was able to... Oh, <laughs> yeah, lightning stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, mate, we're able to talk a little about your good self, and there wasn't a bad word said. I'll let you know that now. I have posted the podcast, the interview. Really? Yeah, no, there, there wasn't. I think he – look, I mean, I, I don't know him at all, so don't get me wrong. I only know him through his music. But I remember reading the media yeah. back in the day where the, the you know, the exit – yourself and Les exited the band maybe under the not under the greatest circumstances and I thought he'd bite my head off to be honest with you but he was willing to have a chat and I, I flew your flag very highly because in my view um, the two best albums in well the two best black metal albums ever recorded in my view are Dusk and also Cruelty and they're wow, thank you. <laughs> they're very highly but a lot of that comes down to your contribution that that wonderful yeah. new wave of British heavy metal style guitar playing that you you introduced to the band and I didn't say this to Danny of course but I thought Midian was atrocious the album that they released I, after I think that was probably the last time I heard a Cradle of Filth record and hand on heart Andy uh, I was taking a call from somebody and I just had rock radio on in the background I, I said to my mate I've got to turn this shit off it's fucking diabolical sub grindcore rubbish coming in on, on this guy's call mm-hmm. and then it finished and they said that was a new record from Cradle of Filth all right. Yeah, well. it's. Um, I think when <laughs> so, you left, you know, a lot of the melody was taken away from the band. Paul, uh, a lender, isn't. He might be technically a very skilled guitarist, but he isn't a creative guitarist, and that's really what you are. You're a very creative guitarist. Well, yeah, because otherwise you end up doing the same thing a hundred times. Black metal, even back then, was getting quite mono, and so it was always about looking for something different to do, hmm. because Bucker was always going to go lightning fast. And they were the bits that were really challenging, I thought. Hmm. Right, we could go lightning fast and thrash some chords in the Dark Throne style, or we can try and do something. Hmm. But yeah, it was, um, I mean, making cruelty especially was fraught at best. It was really, really hard work. Um, but yeah, lots of people say that's their favorite record. Genuinely, Andy, I haven't listened to it since it was released, or Dusk, or Serious? Vampire, or... No, because wow. uh, I was, you know, it was a lot of work. And then you go on tour and you're playing the songs every night. Hmm. What what I've always been excited about with music is writing and doing the next thing. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, as soon as one thing finished, I was always a cassette four-track dork when I was a kid. And so I would just run away, start having new ideas, and then I was ready for the next thing to write. That's what I get a kick out of is why I own a guitar for whatever else I do with it. It's because I wanted to write music. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, fair enough, mate. And look, I just want to, before we talk about what, actually, we will talk about what you've been up to, but just from the listeners' perspective, I've got listeners all over the world, mate, so this will be released as part of my podcast series, and I'll also uh, air it as a part of my radio show in Brisbane, which is aired locally here in Brisbane. But uh-huh. you are an integral part of Cradle of Filth's history, given your contribution to the 1996 release, Dusk and Her Embrace. We've already talked a little bit about um, Cruelty and the Beast, which is obviously my favourite album, and something that's very overlooked as well, which is the 1999 follow-up EP to uh, Cruelty and the Beast uh, from The Cradle to Enslaved. So mm-hmm. before we talk about those three things, because my gosh, I've got a lot of questions to ask you about your contribution and your thoughts and even as you reminisce, if you like, on, on that period of your career and your contribution to Cradle, what have you been up to in the years since? Because it's almost been 20 years. Um, I tried to get some music together, but what I, I found, no, I didn't find the right people to work with where I don't, whatever uh, people will say about me, I, I'm not any kind of a leader. I love doing teamwork. 
And I kept finding myself in the same position where you push on, have a load of great songs. Because um, uh, the missing bit for you, I guess, is uh, not to go over all the shit that happened way back, but I'd already written more material mm. for the next album after Cruelty than uh, we had to start Cruelty with, genuinely. And I thought, well, no, I'm not doing a Cradle of Filth redux. They exist. They can go and do their own thing. I wanted to do something else. So I started writing again and I was still really enjoying it. But everybody just drags. It's, it's, um, maybe it's me, Andy. I like to work. What I always say to my, my guitar students is I'm really, really lazy. So what I do is I work incredibly <laughs> hard to get to that bit of the day when I can stop and chill out and watch a movie or put some music on or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I do intense bursts of work where I think a lot of people quite like the, the ephemera of making a record. Be hanging out and doing stuff where you uh, can yes. hang out and do whatever with your mates whenever. You know, another thing I say to my students is you've got to choose whether you're hanging out with your mates or playing music. So uh, I, I, it's always been the centre of what I do, but not in a nine-to-five job sort of way. It's um, So, yeah, I kept getting stuck in a position where it wouldn't go forwards how I wanted it to go, where it doesn't matter how well I write a song. I always want input from the people I'm working with, and I especially want to pound it around a rehearsal room until it sounds real, if you get my, my drift on this. Sure do, you know, yeah. A song that's been played in live, you're a musician yourself, you know, the uh, first time you fire a tune out, it's all a bit cagey and everybody's looking for their cues. The hundredth <laughs> time you do it, it's alive. Yep. You know, that's what I was looking for. So, uh, And then my fabulous children started to turn up, and so I ran a guitar shop for 10 years or more. Because I like all the techie stuff as well. I love uh, working on valve amps and always looked after my own guitars. Yes. And uh, yeah, went home to where I'm from, little town by the sea. And uh, my children are older now, so I have more time for music. And uh, yeah, I've got, we'll talk about it later, but I have lots on at the moment. <laughs> yeah, cool, mate. Yeah. So you're in, um, I've just read the bio, you know, what I could find online. Because to be honest, mate, there's not a lot out there about you online unfortunately but what i found was that you're in bastard son and also you've got mm -hmm. your current band and it's nine pence i think is the correct pronunciation is that right <laughs> nine pence yeah yep gotcha tell yeah, us about really enjoying it yeah tell us about bastard son first because i found an old blabbermouth that was from the project for the songs i wrote after i came out of cradle of filth which was not dissimilar to what i'm doing now um but for a boring legal reason those songs are now trapped in the ether where uh, mm, because of the right. publishing contract I had, if I record them now, I have to jump through 5 million hoops. And as I say, I write music. I suppose I write music every day. It's like a muscle. If you work it out, it gets better. Mm. And uh, yeah, so those songs, they have escaped, but there are also songs out there that somebody said, is that you? I said, well, no, it's just somebody said it's me to try and get a hit on their website. <laughs> so uh, right. hopefully one day okay. I'll be in a position to finish it because that was the last twin guitar project that I did. And I've always written for two guitars, but uh, yeah, ninepence it went down from five piece to three piece, and it worked, and so we stayed like that. And that's more of a, a, a I mean, a, you know, when I'm not trying to put it into a box, but more of a, a doom related project. And I've got to compliment you here. Your vocals to me sound like mid period Aussie circa um, the Ultimate Sin, <laughs> which I'm a massive fan of. Well, that's huge. A few people have said that, and that's mind blowing. Where I was never the frontman <laughs> of that band, right? Yeah. Um, it was a, a, a you know, a, a stitch up a right word. The guys I play with would understand. We were going to share the vocals. 
And I think I sang one song and they all announced I'd passed the audition and it stuck. <laughs> you got to be uh, careful I did used doing... to sing in bands when I was a kid. So, uh, yeah. you know, 10, 15 year break didn't do me any harm. You've got to be careful being too competent, haven't you, sometimes? What do you mean, Andy? That's a strange thing. Oh, meaning that, like, you know, you talk. We talk a little bit about taking on extra. Well, I know in my band, okay. So we talk about tra- taking on extra work. Sometimes you can, you don't realise what you can do. So I'm more known for my backing vocals, okay. But I've got to tell you, sometimes there are some songs where I can take the lead vocal. But do I want to take on that stress every night? That's what I mean by that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, I love, I love playing music. So I play other instruments as well. But I've, on, oh, very rarely have I been brave enough to do it in public or let alone in a band. But it's, it's not about competence. We, Me and um, Rob Van Hughes, the drummer in Ninepence, are simpatico. We have never had a row in the 10 years we've played together. Mm-hmm. And so it makes writing and playing an absolute joy. So it's more about what does it take to do the thing that we imagined? Mm-hmm. You know, that's what, it's all, that's what the guitar's about for me. You need to be 1% better than your imagination is asking for, I think. Yes, okay. Now, talking about your guitar, I'll ask this question before it just flies away. Have you still got that BC Rich that you played on the Australian and the American tour with the Union Jack down the bottom? Yes. Yeah, I still use it sometimes. It might be coming out of retirement and actually getting used this year, but it's early days on that project. (laughs) The guitar you heard on the album, though, was never that BC Rich. Right. What was it that you played? It was a Jackson guitar that I had when I was about 18. My parents bought it for me. It was my first good guitar. Mm. Not a, like a super handmade one. It's a Japanese one that I've looked after, and I still play that one as well. But all the guitars on, all the guitars on Vampire, all the guitars on Dusk, all the guitars on Cruelty is that one guitar, mate. Is that right? There you go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's probably probably not a guitar you'd probably want to tour with. Then I'd I'd probably suggest. Is that the reason why the BC? It was a BC Rich Warlock, if I'm not mistaken, the one with the Union Jack down the bottom of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a custom build that they made for me. It's a beautiful thing. Where um. You know, one of the, the great days of uh, my life, I suppose, was me and Nick Barker were hanging out in my flat where for some reason we didn't have anything to do one night. And the phone rang and this guy said, oh, it's Dave from BC Rich. Uh, apparently you want a guitar making. And we've had a couple of drinks and I thought somebody is taking the piss out of me. Mm-hmm. And so we talked and it seemed real. And he said, well, you can have anything you want. I said, well, what I want is, and I rattled off all these things. I said, but we don't do that. And you just, Dave, you said I could have anything. And so it's a bolt on neck. Gibson fingerboarded Fender Stratocaster necked, like the the 62 with the bump on the back style neck. Sure. I've always found that the most comfortable with Damasio pickups. The only change it's had over the years is I changed my mind about which Floyd Rose I prefer. Where um, I'm sure you've seen pictures if you followed the band back then, I used to hold it over my head by the tremolo arm and it wears and tears quite quickly. Then. Okay, yeah. So uh, if you play a Goto, you can do that every day and it will come back. The old Takuchis couldn't do it. Mm. But yeah, yeah it's... Um, I get, they they made me a free guitar on the grounds that I played that as my primary guitar live, I think. And so a lot of press photos, I'm sure you know, um, would be done in like the first two or three songs. So that I don't know why, actually. It used to be the first two or three songs. There'd be people yeah. in the press pit taking pictures. My guitar tech, my excellent and still working guitar tech, Stevie Firth from mm-hmm. back then, um, if he thought I looked like I uh, could do with a little boost if the sound on stage wasn't happening, he'd pass me the Jackson out. Well, I'm sure you've played one of those old Jackson Fusions. They're light as a feather. That yeah. BC Rich is like wearing a, a brick. It's like a bass, neck. like playing a bass, isn't it, in terms of the weight? Yeah. 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 But they're, they're both wicked guitars. They're totally different, totally different instruments. But, yes, um, it was. it's so reliable. It's so stable. I still use the Jackson when I'm teaching now. So yeah. uh, that was why it was the studio guitar. Its intonation was always bang on. 
Tell us about your teaching then. You mentioned that a couple of times. So do you teach school-aged students or is uh, is your uh, tutelage open to anybody? Uh, I don't take students in much before kind of secondary school age, purely because it's expensive and your parents are paying for it. And I've in the past, I've had to say, I don't think your money is being put to good use. Sure. Yeah. Till that age, I, because this is what I was. There was a guitar in the house. I played with it as a toy. About 12 years old, I started saying, can I have an electric? And because my older sister had blown out her guitar lessons, I had to learn how to play a Spanish guitar. with It nearly had three or four strings on the thing. And all it was is I had to be able to play the top line from Cavatina, and my family would invest in cheap guitar for me. And so I... I say to all my younger students, just sit and play with it. There's no, you can't break music. You know, you can get mm-hmm. it wrong a thousand times before you get it right. And that's what it's all about is the adventure of getting there and finding out what you do. So, uh, yeah, somewhere around, well, my very best student I met when he was 15 and he's super high achiever. It doesn't matter who tutored him. He would have been amazing, whatever. And it was, he'd done the same thing. There was a guitar in the house and he played and played and then, same as me, eventually, thought, right, I need some lessons. When I was about 16, I was lucky enough to study with, if you're a guitar dog, you'll know this name, Tim Mills from Bare Knuckle Pickups. Yeah, not familiar with the name, to be honest with you. Tell us about him. Uh, he's an ex- he's one of the cleverest people I know. He's frighteningly smart, Tim. But back then, he was our local guitar teacher. He was the best of the guys you could get. And so whenever I could, I studied with him. And uh, I learned a great deal from him. He's got one of the most amazing, aggressive picking styles. And I suppose, crucially, he was the first person to show me how to do an Iron Maiden-style twin guitar thing. Mm, that is... And yeah, uh, yeah, still yeah, friends now. He's a really good guy. Cool, mate. All right. Well, look, what I'd like to do now is let's talk a little bit about Duskener and Brace, if you will. So uh-huh. I got into Cradle primarily through your guitar playing, but I actually didn't realise that until after you'd left the band and Gian stayed on with Paula Lender for the album that I've already spoken about, the one that was released in 2000 Midian which as Uh of course, as I've said, I thought was rather weak. Now the guitar playing on Midian lacked finesse and character. And it was then that I went back and I really identified that it was your guitar playing over Gian's on the previous three releases that I really enjoyed. So I think the best way for me to gain insight into the detail to your contribution to Cradle to Filth is to start with Dusk. And it's a very interesting album as it was re-recorded, as it was recorded originally with two other guitarists prior to your recruitment, then due to some label complications with Cocophonus, I think it was, it was shelved and re-recorded mm. with your playing alongside of Gian. Now It was partially re-recorded. The drums are the same drum takes. I didn't know that. There you go. Yeah. Okay. I think there may be something else you don't know, but carry on, Andy. <laughs> so, look, the difference between the two versions is enormous. So Cocophonus eventually released the first recording of Dusk and Her Embrace as the original scene in 2016. And again, mm-hmm. it lacks flair and and I'm going to use the word ceremony of the version that you appeared on. So uh-huh. I guess my question would be, how did you approach recording the album? Were you given license to record the existing guitar lines as you wanted or was Danny or Kit Wolven issuing, in, issuing instructions on tone and phrasing, etc.? Um. No, I was pretty much given a clear run at it. Now, obviously, it would be ignorant of me to ignore the signature riffs that were there because that's the song, but I did build a great deal on them. What I had was a cassette of half-mixed versions of what was released by Cacophonous, whatever it was you said a couple of years ago. Uh, The guitars were, on some tunes, panned hard left and right, and what I would generally do is, this is not a judgment on anybody, I'd switch off Paul Allender and listen to Paul Ryan. Paul was a 
still is an excellent rhythm guitar player. And so that was the body that I worked from. Mm -hmm. And so I'd sit there with one earpiece in, play along, get the tunes down. There wasn't a great deal of rehearsal because Nick wanted to keep the original drum tracks, which is fine. And so what I did do is Kit made me work unbelievably hard. I've never been put to work so hard. And so in the, I'd like to clear up, because I think Kit did a fantastic job on that album. Mm, great. Yeah. Uh, the, the sound of it was amazing. Officially, we all had to say, well, the production is lacking somehow. And I went along with it to try and make it look like that band wasn't broken and there was some sense of unity. But the reality is Kit was fantastic, where he was so good. You didn't say, why am I doing this, Kit? He just did it, listened back to it, heard the results, kept moving. And it was his doubling techniques were new to me. That fatness of the guitars was extraordinary that he achieved. And he and it sounded like that straight off the tape. There's not a lot of trickery. He just made me work for it. And I suppose, I think I might have taken two guitar solos on that album. There's a solo in a tune called Beauty Slept in Sodom. Mm. And uh, it's not quite what I planned. I took the cassette full track to another room in the studio, went over the back in a few times. And I would put solos and things like that in during the vocal sessions when Dan needed a rest. And uh, I did one take of it. And I said, oh, can I do it again, Kit? I missed, that was supposed to be a big epic sweep to make me look awesome in there. And uh, I just treated it as a guide. And he said, mate, you're not doing it again. You'll never play it that well. And didn't argue <laughs> with him and what he did to try and talk me into keeping that take where he he's worked with amazing guitar players. He knows what he's doing. Yep. Um, yep. He said, people are going to go away and learn that. And that wasn't the hook that got me to keep that, that take. <laughs> I just believed him. This was at the end of 10, 11 days tracking with him. And you thought, this guy knows what he's on about. Let's let's do it. He's the producer. That's how this is supposed to work. And maybe two years ago, an Italian dude sent me a video and said, could you tell me out of 10 how close I got this solo? And that, he was rocking an easy 9.5. He had the pickup changes and everything then. Mm. And uh, I just thought, you know what, Kit was right. Somebody learned that one. And this guy nailed it note for note. It was amazing. In fact, he probably played the last band a little better than me because he got to do it more than once. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. His kit was spot on. It is the closest album from the era, in my view, that you would call a guitar hero album where there are riffs and there's certainly plenty of solos from your good self that you do want to emulate. And I know that because I tried, but I'm a much better bass player than I am a guitarist. And I definitely cite Mantis as my most significant influence as a guitarist, to be honest with you, Mantis yeah. and Cawthorn. So I'm nowhere near the, the level of expertise of your good self. Um, but that doesn't surprise me in the least. And certainly probably my favorite or oh, one of my favorite black metal uh, guitar lead breaks is the, are the lead breaks that are through Funeral in, in Carpathia. Now, they weren't on the original Sin version, so the version that was originally recorded. Is that all your, your good self playing those lead breaks on there, or is that Gian as well? I think what we need to talk about here is John isn't on that album at all. Okay. He joined the band after the guitars were recorded. So it's your good self, um, yep. Yeah, so if you take a little step back here, what happened was I joined that band and I played a load of shows before anybody knew who I was. And I thought, well, John can have his picture on the album cover as long as it's made clear he didn't play guitar on it. And of course, Dan only heard half of what I said uh, because he was about to undertake, was it like nine months of touring? Mm. And, uh, you know, I just wanted him to fit in. And so he had his picture on there, but he didn't play a note on there. Uh, the, everything from that session, all the album tracks, and did we do a Slayer cover in the same session? Jo John wasn't there when it was done. Yeah, Hella Waits. Yeah, that was you playing Hell on that Waits, as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, That was Dan's big contribution, actually, Hella Waits. 
I could not get a guitar. We wanted it to sound like we were super teenagers, like we were 14 again, doing a Slayer song, but doing it properly. Hmm. And uh, my amp at the time was a 5150. And I couldn't get that bedroom, brutal thrash metal sound that we all had in our heads when we were kids. And I sent Dan in there and he adjusted the tone controls while I played a riff. And that's how he got, because he doesn't play guitar. He doesn't play music as far as I know. Yep. And uh, he gave, gave it that, my first thrash metal evil sound, which I, I, I actually recall is quite a good sound as it comes out. I don't think Kit was as involved in that. I think it was Mike X that recorded that one. Mm. Might be wrong, though. Okay. But that was a, it was a slightly different session, the Slayer song. But yeah, John's not on that album. Any guitars that are on there, I play. Well, that clears that up then. I didn't know that, actually. I I'd, I'd, I'd yeah. figured because I'd watched enough of live videos that are posted from the era on YouTube, because back in those days, uh, there was, of course, there was no YouTube and you guys yeah, didn't, yeah. the band didn't release any official videos until there was a, a um, like a bootleg quality live recording of Cruelty Bought the Orchids that MTV used to play occasionally. Do you remember that? Oh, the, in the studio one? Uh, no, it's it's a live version of it. It's um, I was really surprised that they released it actually because you know, the band's music at the era is so vast and bombastic and the recording sounded quite narrow. Of course, it was live and it sounded like it was recorded yeah. with a uh, microphone and a video camera. But MTV I don't know what's happened it. to it now, but there was a, an abandoned live album, as I recall. So maybe it's from that because it really didn't come out that well. It just didn't, just wasn't happening the way it was recorded. Hmm. So possibly it's something from there. But no, we did a thing for MTV where we played, I think that was actually for the Dusk album, two or three songs in the MTV studio that we used as promo. Oh, wow. That'd uh, be awesome to get hold of that. Yeah. Oh, they're on YouTube. Somebody sent me a link uh, maybe three or four years ago. So they're out there. Uh, It was Malice Through the Looking Glass, probably Funeral in Carpathia, and I'm fairly sure we did three songs. So we had to set up like we were live, but with Mm. no audience. That was the first time I ever had to do anything like that. It was weird. Okay, now I can't find. Yeah, there's. Look, you know how it is with the internet. I mean, a lot of the information you really need to see that is authored by somebody who has some credibility, and I can't find a lot of reliable information about the tools or promo to support Dusk and her embrace. But as I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, I did see you guys. I was one of the few people that was in. When I say few, there was a couple of hundred of us in the uh, Sydney show at the Sydney show in 1997 at the very yeah. well-intentioned but poorly organised Sydney show. You might remember that yes. one. Is you went on stage yeah, yeah. closer to 1 a.m. I think, and it was a very long night for both bands and punters. Um, uh-huh. What do you remember about that show, and what do you remember about your Australian tour? Uh, I really liked Australia, mate, you know, especially in Melbourne, because we had more time to go out and wander around and explore. It's like the part of the world that I'm from has escaped and formed an excellent republic on the other side of the world. (laughs) Everybody's sort of open and frank. I tell everybody this when I praise my time in Australia. Um, This little old lady who must have been in her 70s that ran the guest house we stayed at, I was all out of sync with jet lag. And so I think it was me and Les walked down and said, have you got a tourist map, love? And she said, yeah, I've got fucking shitloads, mate. How many do you want? I thought, I, I like this country already. <laughs> Sounds about right. And yeah. so, yeah, it was, it was, you know, it's always easier to go somewhere where people speak English as a first language because I'm not going to get into any, I'm not very good with language. And so I wasn't going to get into any bother and get lost like I did in a couple of places. And everybody we met was cool. We had a great time. So uh, I didn't get a chance to really look around Sydney, but I do re- remember the show. I think, in fairness, the Melbourne show was better. Mm. Um, it was a, it was a nicer venue, and it wasn't one in the morning with loads of shit going wrong during the day. Yes, yeah, I've got a, a mate in, in 
Geelong who will tell you exactly where that place was, but I've forgotten the name of the venue now. But that was a really, really good show. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was privileged to be there, to actually go and play Australia. That's as far away from home as a little lad from the West Country could ever get. Well, I don't think um, we could actually, you know, the, the local fans could actually believe that you guys were touring because it felt a little bit like, and bear with me here, it felt a little bit like when Nirvana broke and they toured Australia in 1992. Um, it felt like we had this black metal colossal because remember that was an era when not just black, not black metal. Black metal was probably the the blue chip or the blue ribbon genre for heavy metal at that time, at least commercially speaking. Mm. But that was an era when Pantera were coming apart at the seams. Um, that same year, Max had split from the rest of the guys in Sepultura. Nobody knew what was going on. Maiden had released an atrocious album with Blaze Bailey, or about to release an atrocious album with Blaze Bailey called Virtual Eleven, which. As, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, did them a lot of damage. Uh, I think Blaze is a, seems like a wonderful human being, but was a completely inappropriate singer for that band. And you guys, more or less, Cradle of Filth in that era, more or less came and took that vacant metal crown along with another band called Strapping Young Lad, you know, the Devon Townsend yeah, yeah. Um, project. There's really both of you guys. And we had earlier in the year, we saw Strapping Young Lad and then Cradle of Filth came out. It felt like as though we were witnessing something that was uh, similar to what happened in 1992 when Nirvana broke. So I think if uh, I think your excitement about being in Australia was matched by punters, myself included, of course, obviously myself uh, being a part of that, I was just excited to see the band. I, I wish you guys played for three hours, not that I think you could have done it at one o'clock in the morning, but it was a very special event to see you guys down in Australia at that time. We, we were all, we knew how privileged we were getting to visit you guys. We really did. It was, uh, and we used to talk about this a lot. If you don't give it absolutely everything every time, we've just robbed the people that were us five years before. You know, me and Barker, we grew up going to every metal show we could go to. And so that's why it was never any bother to push on, do the extra bit. I would have liked to have played longer. But uh, for whatever reason, the set never, ever exceeded 80 minutes for that band. Mm. You know, so. Okay. But, Maybe. Um, no, I mean, it's different for us because we were in the centre of it. And hearing you say, I mean, it's, what a huge compliment. You know, that uh, metal was was on its ass and then us and Strap and Young Lad turn up and give it some life. That's that's what we all dreamed of when we were young. Hmm. You know, we, me and Barker still joke that we fought in the grunge wars. There was no metal in Europe. And no. so we went out and played to eight people in a city up north and 12 people somewhere else. And then however it worked, suddenly there was a shitload of people at shows. Well, I, I remember um, reading, I had a subscription at the time to Guitar World, and I remember they did a very small feature of you, on you guys in 1997. Uh, again, uh, it was almost unheard of to see a metal band, yet alone a black metal band, in their pages, but they made a really interesting point um, where they were talking about the volume of Cradle of Filth t-shirts that were seen at metal shows through the era. Now, Talking a little bit about the branding or the marketing strategy, how 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 close were you to the ideas that were on t-shirts? Because I had a fair few of the t-shirts myself through the year. I've given them all away now. I wish I'd hold it, held on to some of them. Um, but the designs were rich, they were colourful, and they were different from a lot of the you know the dragons and skull and crossbones of just about every other black metal band at the time. Featuring your artwork featured a lot of females. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, were you? Um, Right, yeah. I was involved more with how they worked early on than maybe by the time the Crawley album came out, where it had become a bit of a sausage factory. 
where there was a definite mm. way these things were done. Some of the early ones were fantastic. Where you know, I've, you know, not to pin it down so that anybody gets a cease and desist or a big bill from a photographer. One of those shirts was made of pictures that me and Dan cut out of books that we owned and just sent them to a printing company and hoped for the best. Jesus, and I still yeah. think it's the nicest T-shirt that was produced back then. Probably the one that was produced in the shortest numbers because we didn't pay anybody for the artwork. So. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. But no, it's, um, they, they were remarkable things because the, the lurid colours, this is, you know, if you're familiar with us, um, one of the things that we all had in common was the old Technicolor horror movies. We all grew up on those. And that lurid nature really worked on me because everything had gone the Norwegian guys were all black and white and like say skulls yeah. and dragons and all the hardcore stuff the machine head thing that was was going on back then it was just different and so uh, I don't you know I wouldn't lay claim to any of the ideas but um yeah we all used to chip in with stuff like that early on we all used to take part in everything was the key Do you you know, there, was, uh, there was no identifiable leader I promise you Andy yeah, right. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, it was. I mean, obviously, you know, in 2017, Danny's smack bang in the middle of um, what mm. happens in the band. But back in those days, it was more of a collective. Would you describe it as a democracy? Uh, yes, it was a democratic process. And I was always happy to go, you can't win them all, mate. That's the nature of democracy. Mm. Uh, but yeah, we were always happy to work on what was there. So an opportunity, a challenge, whatever it was, comes up. The main thing was to be making music because without that, those T-shirts are irrelevant, aren't they? And so, um, no, some people were more passive than others. But when it came to a big decision, it was done democratically back then. Mm. It's, uh, some people can't take a, a democratic loss quite as well as others, I suppose, is what the problem was. Mm, yeah, yeah, gotcha. And... Mate, I'm at the point now where I'm going to ask you about the big one, Cruelty and the Beast. And as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned, it's not just Cradle of Filth's masterwork, but it's um, it's up there. Uh, th- this album and Nemesis Divina by Satyricon are the uh, best blackish metal albums ever released as far as I'm concerned. And your contribution, I hear it as being significant on this album. So tell me all about the songs that you wrote or which band members you collaborated with on the album. Uh, Barker. Me and Barker would play for fun. You know, if there was noise to be made, we would make it. And that's where a lot of those ideas come from. Uh-huh. There's, um, there were some sort of formal written things that were done. Here's an interesting one. What, what I think is probably one of the best tracks on that album, although most people disagree, is Twisted Nails of Faith. Um, yeah. I, I was, uh, it was a changing world. My cassette four track couldn't cut it anymore. So we're all going towards digital stuff to write with. And I bought this crazy little drum machine called a Boss DR5 that was built for guitar players. Do you remember them? I do. Yep, yep. Yeah. And I showed Dan how it worked. And I uh, put it on a string, and that did it and did it and did That's Dan's legitimately one of two times he contributed a musical idea rather than just vocals to something. Mm-hmm. And so it was a full-track sequencer, and so you could play, you could put your power chord shapes down, and that the signature line for that song was written there. And then it has that extended break at the end, which was a change that Greg came up with in a groove that me and Barker put underneath it. Probably what works best, Andy, is if you if you pick out a song, it might nudge me and I'll recall. I've got a strange memory. It's all in there. Well, uh, but if you give me a push, I'll probably be able to pull something out for you. Let me see here. Well, Cruelty Bought the Orchids, I think, has got one of the strongest riffs that was ever released by the band, and that's certainly saying something. So the opening riff that then goes into the verse. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that that's similar. That. Again, a, a minority contributor to writing was John. 
Um, we never called him Jan. I think his, his real name is Jan Piero, but he was just John to us. John, okay, yep. And he, he came in. I, I'm going to tell you the whole story. John didn't write very much, and we found it frustrating. And I'll link you into something else, because it's also on that record. I think it's in 13. Is there a track with 13 Autumns on there? Uh, let me think about it. I don't think there is. A, oh, 13 Autumns and a Widow. Yes, there is. That's yes, the that's the second track. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John came in with a kind of <clears throat> Norwegian black metal thing going on. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever looked at a tab for that tune. There's a little, um, oh, not a power chord, a dyad that inverts itself on the fingerboard is what yeah, makes the, it drive. Yeah, the opening, the opening sequence. Yeah. Yeah, and I he know. was playing it as a blast riff. And as luck would have it, me and Barker, as we often did, would begin our day because he used to give me a ride over to the rehearsal space mm-hmm. with some quality old metal. And I believe that day there was something with that crunchy stamping groove. Maybe we had battery on or something that day. Mm-hmm. And so we applied that crunching groove to this quite ordinary black metal riff and it comes together as the riff that you hear. So it was, it was team stuff. It's, it's, there's very little you could say was one person. Mm. There was always an initial idea. But well, the more I think of it, the more it was an interaction between people. That band was always a bit broken, Andy. And so mm. there's nothing that was all six people working together, that, as far as I can remember. But there were lots of threes and fours, because, of course, we liked playing the most. Me and Nick would be in the rehearsal room first playing I made in covers and stuff like that just to get warmed up. And uh, so every idea in there comes from somewhere. I actually found a cassette of, I don't know what you'd call them. They were demos that we had to make as evidence for our label that they would give up the money for us to make Cruelty and the Beast. Mm. And it's just me, me, Nick, and Rob playing bass. And you think, fucking hell, that's how that song started. Uh, there's that really long tune, Bathory Aria. Yep. This, it was such an early version that I can't recall where we were with keyboard players. If Les was in the band, you know, Les was in the band at the time, who's still a great mate of mine. He's a good lad, Les, good player. But he, uh, the intro was actually a picked acoustic guitar. What you hear as a piano on the album was originally a guitar part that I put together. Mm, nice. And so um, this is the thing about writing music. Sometimes you give a part up to somebody else and it works a lot better. The beginning of 13 Autumns and a Widow, the, the keyboard line, as it stabs in. That was yeah. a guitar part that worked better as a keyboard line. Is Les, you could go back and forward with quickly. The the guy before him. Uh, Damien. He, he just couldn't. He, Greg, to oh, us. Greg's yeah, up, I was yeah. going to say, I can't remember his, uh, his pretend name, but his mum calls him Greg. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he couldn't interact at the same speed as me and Nick, where we would have accepted a, con- a contribution as hold a fucking note down and just give it some keyboards and an idea will start to form. And he couldn't do that. That's ultimately why he wasn't there anymore. Uh, mm. So, uh, I mean, me, most even Nick didn't remember doing this. When we recorded Vampire, I had family not far away. And so when I finished my guitars, I took off for a couple of days, came back to see what was happening with the end of the, the session. Mm. And I, there were loads of sad faces in the control room because the keyboards weren't what they wanted. They weren't those... What was the word you used for that sound? Bombastic or something? Yeah. We always used to say dramatic and theatrical. Mm. And uh, so there was like a maybe a four-octave MIDI controller there, and this was recording on tape. There was one channel left. And so Barker sat down on the left side, and I showed him a bass part that he could do with one of his giant fingers, mm-hmm. and Rob played some chords in the middle, and I played a melody line on the top of it, and we went back over, and we all contributed keyboards to that one. It was, uh, I say, it was a team thing. That's, that's the difference that you hear. 
is uh, because it was semi-autonomous groups of people working within a band. So there was always something happening. Mm. But anyway, to get you back to the to what you're talking about, the um, yeah, the writing process sort of. I was reminded of it hearing that cassette. I was really surprised I still had it. I was looking for not studio outtakes, but early mixes of songs from Cruelty and the Beast because they were live. They were just the guides that we played before we started stacking stuff up, and I was curious how they sounded. But it was enlightening to be reminded how it all worked. Just one guitar, bass, drums, and then one song had keyboards on it. And uh, they were early versions close enough to what you hear on the album. They just got Mm -hmm. rearranged. So Rob Eagleston, I think that's his name. I know. I mean, his n- name is you know. You, yeah, yeah. You've I've, got a fake name, I think. You know, in terms of the. Uh, no, that's apparently that is his real name. It's a cool name, Eagleston, isn't it? Oh yeah. Okay. It sounds. It sounds like a, a name that's been invented for the purposes of uh, for uh, of theatre. But yeah, no, that's great. Now, what would you rate him as a bass player? Because I thought he was very similar to the way David Ellison from Megadeth contributed to Dave Mustaine's work. Uh, yes, Rob. He used to write some great stuff. Um, and he is a good player. He'd get a bit caught up in the technical nature of music sometimes where, I mean, now even more so people are obsessed with technicality where a very smart guy, probably Kit Wolven pointed out to me years ago, nobody goes home whistling your delicate arpeggios, playing a melody. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, Rob used to get himself all caught up on, but it's only this, yeah, but that only this glues the guitars to the drums, which glues to the keyboards, which makes it that massive thing. And, uh, I, honestly, I didn't really know Rob. He was a strange character. I spent years with him. But I couldn't honestly say we were ever mates. We didn't row, but we mm. weren't mates either. But uh, his, some of his contributions sparked off some of the best music we did. Where, um, like it, on Dusk, the song Malice Through the Looking Glass, I'm sure you noticed, yeah, isn't great on track, yeah. the, um, the Redux edition that they did of the demos. No, it's not. Yeah, That is entirely born from two ideas, which credit where credit's due. Greg could program the... Uh, some sort of keyboard thing that was supposed to be an instrumental that became the main line at the beginning when we added the drums and the riff to it. And the, my favourite bit of harmony guitar on that album, I guess, is the centre section, which is all keyed from a change that Rob came up with. He just started playing a little bass line and we all went with it. And it happened fast. That was the nice thing. He was, he was a good writer, Rob. Sadly, okay. I didn't get to play guitar on his solo record. I was supposed to be doing that one. But uh, interference and whatnot... Hmm. where it uh, just didn't happen in the end. But he's a good guitar player as well. Does he still make music, Rob? I haven't heard anything about him for a not long that time. I'm, not that I'm aware, to be honest with you. I didn't even know that he'd done a, uh, a solo album, to be frank. So um, did he do it under oh, that a solo different... record was 96, called December Moon. Yeah. Okay, I'd heard so, of December Moon. I didn't realise it was a solo effort, though. I just thought it was another band he was in. Well, it's he wrote all the music, but um, he was great mates with was who played with Extreme Noise Terror and did some stuff for Cradle of Filth as well. And so it's just those two. But because I love to play, I said, Rob, why don't you let me come and play guitar on it? And he was all for it, and then it didn't happen in the end, sadly. But no, he's um, he's a good guy. I I, I won't tell you the story, but I was just having a little chuckle. (laughs) He was was incredibly funny. He had a really odd sense of humour, Rob. (laughs) So he, I think he was the last member of what I'm going to refer to as the classic lineup of the band to exit, am I right in saying that? Or did John or, sorry, Gian, just for the listener's perspective, did John or Gian stay around, uh, might have stayed around for an album or two longer? Uh, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know. It's um, People assume that I follow that band and I really don't. I, I'm getting on with my own thing. Because hmm. uh, Cradle of Filth to me was this lucky and excellent opportunity to make some music and 
have somebody else pay for the studio instead of having to scrap a couple hundred quid together and then run off to a, a, do a demo somewhere local. We were having a great time doing it, but I don't think Rob stayed around that long. Les is the guy I talked to. He's an excellent historian. I'm, I'm hoping those. to catch up with him when he tours uh, Australia with Paradise Lost in December, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, mean, look, I think we've talked about this, but whether it happens or not, I don't know. Between Nick and Les and I, we could probably put together a pretty good history of what went on 96 to 99. And maybe even earlier if we tried, but that's oh, boring. You're awesome. just on the dole making music. <laughs> well, it was this is brought. Obviously, I've never read it, but Nick was underwhelmed by the um, the official biography of Cradle of Filth and how it was uh, done. Painted. And yeah. I said, well, look, we we can all. Why don't we just put together the funny stuff? Because if you've spoken to Dan, he's got such a stick up his ass. He can very rarely see the funny side of anything. We have some extraordinarily silly ass stories that we could put together. <laughs> and just let them out there to show that it wasn't quite as straight-faced as it, uh, people thought. Mm. And uh, it would be nice to do it one day, but it, I've always said to the other two guys, I absolutely insist, if we're going to do it, all three of us together, because one will jog the memory of another, will jog the memory of another. And, of course, it's six guys. We're not always – didn't hold hands constantly. Sometimes we went different ways. So I've got to ask the obvious question then. If, if Danny – wasn't a musical collaborator obviously maybe the lyrics and the vocals were his but you know the rest of you were there for the formation of the music from those two wonderful albums could you ever see a would there ever be a is there a possibility i should say that you'd all get back together again and recreate some of that what as cradle of filth no as a, as a new band but basically with the same members that appeared on cruelty ah uh... I don't know. People have made noises about it, but they are just noises. Mm. Um, I wouldn't say never, but it's it's not super likely. What frustrates me is I do actually have all my demos for the album After Cruelty that never happened, where every time I re-rig my studio, because I'm, I'm a sound engineer as well, I re-rig my studio earlier this year and there's a little folder and you just think, bastards, should have finished them off. <laughs> <laughs> and so... I wouldn't say never, but it's um, it's not the most likely thing where unless it was relevant and new and those songs could come to life properly, I'm happy for them to sit in that folder. Mm, okay. I really am. Yep. Well, I think a lot of fans out there, myself included, maybe if things change in the next few years, mate, gosh, we'd love to see you all back together and putting together some kind of a project that, that contains that that wonderful spirit that those two albums, and I'm going to, sorry, three recordings. I should include the um, From the Cradle to Enslaved EP. So can we talk about that for a little bit? Um, yeah, of course. That came out with an accompanying video, um, which I duly purchased. That was uh-huh. probably the band's first attempt at some significant visuals. What do you recall about both the EP and the video? Oh, the, well, the video is, is one to talk about. There was supposed to be a video for Funeral in Carpathia from Dusk, and I will probably never know why the wheels came off it. It actually was starting to look kind of cool. I know there are some stills that escaped from this because a magazine published, they turned up on the day and published some stuff. And it all looked like it was going to look cool, like a a mini horror movie was what we always talked about. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, that eventually, and it was really expensive, the process of making that video. It all happened. Um, none of us were used to hanging around the studio and sitting on our hands all day, being waiting to be called up to do whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But um, I did see the video a long time ago. And to some extent, it's what it should have been the whole time. 
I will never really understand why we didn't get a video for Funeral and Carpathia. Um, go and look online. There are some stills from it. Some of the, there's an epic shot of Barker in, uh, in full Gothic garb that uh, I'd love to see again. Because, because it was, it was still that teamwork thing, everybody throwing in. Yep. And I forget the guy's name. He had made a lot of effort dressing sets and making it look, because we just kept saying hammer films, not even Amicus or Tygon. Hammer, the way Hammer looked. That's what we wanted. And uh, maybe there are some outtakes somewhere. But uh, there wasn't – I'm sure you've noticed a lot of people ask me, are there unreleased songs from this and are there unreleased? There aren't because Dan always refused to do demos. This is the frustrating thing that I had with him. His contribution, of course, is vital. Even uh, if you don't like his vocal, without that rhythmic – thing that he does that was his contribution was the the rhythms he would generate not necessarily the textures mm. there was never any looping so all the all the songs came over to me bar one as a vocal planted on top of a band i wanted there to be more interaction and going round like that until the thing was everything it could be and so uh yeah there's there's there was no wastage back then but there should have been so was the the purpose behind the from the cradle to enslaved EP? Was it a record company commitment that you had to release an EP at that particular Absolutely time? Absolutely not. They really didn't want an EP. Mm. Um, but it was the video thing where I, I would have been more comfortable keeping going on the album. And for one reason or another, that's when I started to not be able to get along with Dan. And uh, you know, as things changed without Nick it was kind of vital that me and Dan got along because otherwise the wheels came off stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was sad. It was sad because we went from having more ideas than we knew what to do with to, it's hard to do this without getting it, into it for you, Andy. Um, people no, were sandbagging that. me. Yeah. Um, do you understand what I mean? I do. Uh, I bring an idea in and I, uh, I won't tell you which member of the band this was, but a piece of critique I received on one of those demos that I've, I still got locked up on my computer was, it's good, but it's only cool because of the notes and the sounds that you've used. Then what the fuck else are you looking for? Yeah, I was going to say. And it never occurred sense. to me that people yeah. were sandbagging to try and, if you want, if you want to put an idea together, put the damn idea together. Because let's talk about the song Cradle to Enslave. That is made from sections that Rob and I wrote. Um, there's an excellent thrash metal riff where. I think we probably did that one together. The first riff is something that I put together. Hmm. And it was a, that bashing back and forwards. You don't lose friends over this stuff. You just keep arguing your case and keep playing because the edges will come off eventually. It'll become a natural thing that you all play. And that was a – I think it's a really good song, that one, actually. I you know, it's, uh, agree, and that's why I felt Medium was such a disappointment and I understand Medium was actually quite a commercially successful album, but I'll go there and I'll say that I think that that was more to do with the momentum that had been built off the previous two or th well, two and a half releases, if you include the EP. Um, what do you think happened? I mean, it was a massive change from the two songs, the two original songs that appeared on From the Cradle to Enslaved to what ended up being on Midian. Is that a case of where I, I'm, I'm only asking for your hypothetical here? And, you know, if you don't want to answer it, so be it. But do you think it was a case of Paul Alender coming into the band with riffs that he had accumulated since the time that he left Cradle in 1994 or whenever it was? And they just, because it, it was almost like a 90 degree turn, wasn't it? The stylistic change from, from Cruelty and From the Cradle. To Midian, it's a it's a hard one to answer because it's nothing to do with me. 
and genuinely, I only ever heard the last two minutes of whatever the single was that I heard on that radio show years ago. Um, Her Ghost in the Fog, I think that probably would have been, yeah, that track. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a writing credit on that. I'm damned if I can remember which part I wrote. Um, so, okay. yeah, none of those songs were anything to do with me. And like I say, I write all the time, and so probably there is something that I took part in that ended up in that song because we get statements from the publishing company. And I was surprised to find a couple of years later that that song started turning up with my name on it. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I had a, a definite vision, which was not incompatible with everybody else, just for the record, mm. of how the next album should be. Because we'd had all this chance, all this opportunity. What I didn't want was to waste it and produce an album that was less than what went before. And I was okay with doing the EP, but I would have preferred it if it was... A single. I was totally up for doing that Misfits cover. That's one of my favourite guitar solos. I'm sure you guys don't appreciate it. Oh, no, um, I understand. Dead, of, Dead But Dreaming, I think the song was, wasn't it? Uh, Death Comes Ripping, it was called. Death come, sorry, Death Comes Ripping. There you go. Yeah. Yep. And the guitar solo on that, I was I was fully warmed up and it was the last thing I did. And uh, that's the one record, actually, where I didn't use my jacks, and that is the BC Rich and the uh, Flying V as well that I had at the time. But... Um, the reason I mention it is the guitar solo on Death Comes Ripping. I didn't want it to be like a twiddly metal thing. I wanted it to be brutal and noisy. And so I gave a couple of goes. wasn't happening. Uh, the engineers got on with something else. I gave the Flying V to the tape hop who played a bit of guitar. I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go upstairs. It's quite late at night. And there was a bar. And I'm going to start doing shots. And when you guys are ready, you call me. But you play that guitar until it's so out of tune, it's painful. And I went in, I could barely remember doing it, couldn't really stand up straight, took one take at it, and that's the solo that's on the record. Mm. Tell us so, about... So, uh, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good story to compliment it, actually. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Sometimes you can pay too much attention to what you're doing. I, you know, most musicians I know, we, we focus so far in eventually that you need to be able to take a step back. And we were in a position where we had the, the excellent Mike Exeter and Dan Sprigg working with us, mm. and I would trust them to make those decisions. If they said, you know, the drunken guitar solo, not happening. Mm. Uh, that's fine. And they, I can remember their faces. It was somewhere between horror and hilarity. And so it must've been the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And look, I tell you, I really enjoy, still enjoy your um, anathema cover sleepless. That was, obviously... oh yeah, that came out really well, didn't it? Beautifully. Yeah. Beautifully. To be yeah. honest, I think it's better than the original. Sorry, anathema, but yeah, that's, that's it... why we tackled it. It's a great song. But of course, Anathema, and this is not a criticism of Anathema, they were very young when they did that. If they did Sleepless Now, it would be a totally different beast. And I think that's what, it was a song that we all knew. It was something we all had in common, is that we liked the West Yorkshire bands, Paradise Lost, Anathema, My mm. Dying Bride. That, they were things that we all listened to. Um, and I can't even recall how that one came up. It just happened. And because it's a relatively simple song, it started out as a, a knockabout cover. But what Les did with that fantastic synth sound at the beginning. That's possibly his best work on any of the Craig the Phil stuff. Great, yes. Yep. Yeah, that was good fun. I forgot about that tune, actually. Well, he's, so, yeah, there's the irony for two Les original is that, songs and a couple of covers, isn't there? Yeah, there's, um, there's definitely two original songs. There's two covers. There's a remix, and then there's a live version of um, Funeral in Carpathia, which, to be honest, I didn't, couldn't make much sense of that that version that's on there. I didn't understand why that was included. So I will ask you that if you remember, or do you remember the decision-making behind inclu including this, I think it was called Be Quick or Be Dead version of Funeral in Carpathia. It just sounds like a demo-quality version of the song. 
I think that might again be the aborted live recording. Um, right. I, I was gone by then, by the time that was all compiled. Um, what you've got there is that one where there's a big cut where the whole band come out and there's just a vocal for a short while at the beginning. I can't recall. I haven't listened yeah. to that. I, I, to be honest, I, I got to sleepless and generally switched it off. Yeah, because Dan wouldn't take part in making demos and I would have accepted some rhythmic noise with nonsense lyrics because they weren't for anybody else to hear. It's just so that we could work in a different frame. He's, uh, or maybe it's just how he's made up. He's always going backwards and mm. I like to go forwards. And so he wanted to rejig some part of Funeral in Carpathia. And I remember at the beginning, I said, well, look, if there's nothing to track, it's just Funeral in Carpathia. I'm not that interested. I'm going to focus on the new stuff. So, uh, yeah, wrong person to ask. You'd need to ask Dan about that realistically because that was done in the studio where we rehearsed, which was, it was an okay place. But, um, yeah, I recall it came up and there was this idea, which I, I think if it happened, I regard it as the one brilliant idea Dan had that we never, ever capitalized on was, um, oh no, that's, that takes down a whole alleyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's to do with how I wanted the next record to be. And I didn't want him to waste it on a redo of a song that you guys already knew. And he had fuck knows how many different versions of in different places. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that was a, a sad waste of an idea if it's the one I'm thinking of. Mm. Because, uh, you know, I argued for let's not do that. Let's do something else. Because at the time, so much time was being wasted in disputes for no reason at all that nothing was getting written. Mm -hmm. And we had a great band at the time. We had Adrian playing drums who... It's very different to Nick, uh, but he's yeah, still from an excellent at the drummer. He, yeah, he's a drummer from At The Gates, he, isn't he? He's, he's much more the drummer, the pounding metal drummer than Nick. Nick's really mm. musical, despite how over the top that guy always goes. Yep. Uh, you know, I still talk to Nick. He's a good guy. But, um, yeah, he, me and Nick were mates, I think. Me and Les and Nick used to hang out. And uh, one of the things me and Nick had in common, first time I met him, first time I went up to play with that band, was – in his normal organized style, he told me what street he lived on, but not what number. And this is before normal folk had mobile phones. Signs and so I parked my car, walked along, and I could hear Chalice of Blood coming out of uh, this house on this terrace. That's got to be his house. And we bonded over our love of, oh, not necessarily the best or brightest thrash and uh, new wave of British heavy metal was, uh, that was going on back then. Because we were born within months of each other, me and Nick. So we were... In a parallel, I guess, it was a thrill to meet somebody else who knew some of these weird old thrash metal songs that we used to knock about. Talk but, about um, old thrash metal songs. I think you recorded a, a, I think it was the song by Death or Massacre, um, Dawn of Eternity. Were you on that track? No, I think the only thrash cover that we did was a Sodom tune called Sodomy and Lust. Yes, I've got that. Yeah, I've got that. You did, actually... You did a fantastic version of Hallowed Be Thy Name, which almost improves on the original unbelievably, and I'm a massive Iron Maiden fan. Um, oh, that's like metal heresy, mate. It's a good version, but that's, uh, that is very high praise, Andy. Oh, I've got to hand it to you, and it's it's your guitar line, you know, the uh, the main guitar lead in that one there. There's just a bit of extra spice in that one there. Come, you're a right-handed guitarist, I take it, so you're playing, you're riffing with your... Um... I'm left-handed. I play right-handed. Uh, uh, so it's a perk of a Catholic education, not allowed to write with your <laughs> left hand at Catholic school. And so I didn't know I was left-handed until somebody pointed out I operate all my pedals with my left foot because the nuns didn't give a shit what I did with my feet. They just were obsessed with me not writing with my left hand. Ah, oh, gotcha. Well, we share that that I'm Catholic as well. I didn't. I, I went to a Catholic school up until 
fourth or fifth grade and my father's Protestant, so I ended up going to a Protestant school uh, from there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we were, they're a bit more liberal, smaller liberal here in Australia about that stuff. We didn't get some of that uh, that old school orthodox attitude toward learning and beha- learning and um, using left and right hand. It's so crazy where that comes from, isn't it? The left-hand path being the devil's path and if you use your left hand, you must be nefarious, you know, especially you would, yeah. have, you would have only been at school through the late 80s, I take it, wouldn't you? Uh, oh, I left the Catholic school in 1982 mm-hmm. um, because same as yourself, actually, my father was of no religion. Um, and so I think I probably asked because the kids in the in the town where I grew up, they all went to the regular state school, not the Catholic school. And I wanted to hang out with my mates at school. And that was, uh, I was given the choice when I was quite young. So about six or seven. But it's, it's also a crucial part of my growing up, the Catholic schooling. You know, some of those nuns were family friends and stayed with me throughout my life they're some of the wisest and mm. kindest people i've ever met uh, there's uh, sister mary immaculate this is, there you go blow your mind something from cradle of filth praising nuns she lived to be a very old lady until the day she died she was always there with you could ask her about anything she spent her life reading and she used to read to me when i was very young stories from uh, greek mythology and we had this fabulous thick larousse dictionary of mythology and she would sit there and read me these stories Yep. She was so switched on, she would say, well, this story happens in Assyrian and Persian and talk me through it. And mm. so I knew the story of Mardi when I was eight years old. Well, there you so go, That's mate. probably how I became a fan is uh, I spotted a band called Mardi, who, of course, is a hero. He's not a bad guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a great part of my life. It really was. But, yeah, the left-handed thing is kind of irrelevant. As a guitar player yourself, if you're left-handed and you play left-handed, you play 20% more for your guitars and you've got 40% less choice. <laughs> kind of worked out. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. But just talking about. Sorry, I'm talking that. you off track there. Sorry, you got no, get, not at get all, me back on track, please. We, we talk about anything you want to talk about. It's just a wonderful privilege to and an honour to be able to talk to you. Um, you know, I have been wondering for a long time what you've been up to. So, any information you want to share, as far as I can, I'm concerned, is premium information, mate. So, I'll just digress. Sure I'll just digress for a moment. I, I. I've been a black metal fan and a metal fan for a long time. I'm 39, so I got into it very young. And I, in Australia, we we really didn't hear much about the church burnings and some of the more, you know, criminal, let's call it criminal activities that were taking place in Scandinavia at the time. Um, but when I got wind of what was going on in the band's mayhem and some of the band members and emperor, I just thought it was childish, to be honest with you. And I think a lot of people felt the same way. Um, you I know, think what you're talking about is messed up teenagers that do that kind of thing. Yeah, isolated all over teenagers, the world. socially. The tragedy of Varg and Euronymous. Yeah. If you think, if you could see a statistic of how many teenagers fight over money and somebody gets hurt or killed around the world, it would be colossal. It's one of those tragedies that exists. I never met either of the guys. Um, I don't think I would have been friends with either of them. Um, childish, possibly, but the Scandinavian attitude, it wasn't as liberal as it is in Britain. You know, growing up, even with my mother in the church, I was hyper aware of the pagan imagery that went with uh, the Christian church in Britain, where the Reformation vaguely happened around here. But even in the church that I used to attend as a kid with my mum, there were little icons that had survived the... Re- do, you know, do you know what the Reformation is? Of course, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah the destruction of the churches... I'm from a fairly remote part of Britain. And so they were like Sheila Nagy and dragon images in the church, as well as all your regular Christian iconography. And uh, yeah, so I have a different take on it. 
you know, especially in the part of the world I'm from, we have like local saints that were there because they were the small gods of the the well or the sea or whatever. And they planted a church there and said, well, actually, they're Saint Necton. They're not just Necton anymore. Who's uh, one of our local small gods, I guess. So uh, I never had, I'm not a vandal. I never had that need to rebel the same mm. way as the Norwegian guy, so I can't judge them. But um, yeah, it's tragic that that is the core of what people know because there was some great music as well. I loved the early Mayhem stuff. The Mysterious Don Agreed. Satana is oh, definitive it's a brilliant for me. album. Yeah, no, I, I've reviewed yeah. the um, the live record last year and you know the live version of it. Um, yeah, Mysterious Don Satana Alive, I think it's called. And that's brilliant. Um, yeah, but the personnel are very different on that particular recording and the mayhem that's going around in 2017. Hellhammer, of course, or uh, I can't remember his real name. Uh, Jorn Axel Blomberg, I think his name is. Um, mm-hmm. Very good drummer, probably one of my favourite black metal drummers ever, and I do pay a lot of attention to the drummers. As is Nick, by the way, I've always really enjoyed enjoyed Nick's drumming and did follow him over to his projects uh, in uh, Lockup and he's currently touring and I think he's going to be in Australia pretty soon with Bruchera. I believe so. He's actually in, we spoke the other day, he's in Mexico with Ancient at the moment. God, they're still going? I used to love them. Yeah, back, that's back what I said to him. <laughs> <laughs> that surprises me. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, uh, yeah, no, he's out there and playing drums and he's still a great player. He really is. And mm. I would welcome an opportunity to play with Nick again. We haven't played together in, when did he go, 98? And no mm. matter how many times we used to argue, we're still friends. He's, uh, we're veterans of something, me and Nick, going against the grain as hard as we did. Uh, you have to come out of it still friends, I guess. So you guys you guys toured uh, the US on the back of Cruelty and the Beast. Now, I remember that because I was a subscriber to Metal Maniacs magazine, the American publication, and uh-huh. reading about your exploits there sounded like, um, you know, conquistadors going to the new world, so to speak. Um, what do you recall about that tour? And I take it you and Nick had a blast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely we did. We had great fun. Um, the tour that, I think tour is probably too strong. We never did the knockdown, drag out, for five months of uh, US touring, what we were always sent to like key cities. And I did two nights in Mexico City, which was some of the, and that was before we hit America, actually. It was a great time. Now you mentioned it, Andy, that was a fucking cool time. It really was. Went to Mexico City, which, if you've ever visited, is a mind blowing place in the first place. Uh, I live in a town of 18,000 people, and that's the biggest city on earth. So it was like going into space for me. Mm. And, uh, the shows there were legendary. We had a day off in between our two shows in the same venue. I saw Bauhaus the next day, and I spent the day hanging out at uh, Teotihuacan. They arranged for us to go up into the pyramids and visit. And so it was a great time. Then we hit San Francisco. I can remember getting into San Francisco. Uh, that was an awesome show, a place called Mariner's Hall. And we went into our own backstage and going, fuck off. That's full of thrash metal legends that we grew up listening to. Hmm. So there's dudes from Testament and Exodus who we'd met when they were touring Europe as Gary Holt, awesome guy. Can't say enough nice things about him. Sure. Uh, and Bailoff, who's no longer with us, of course. Well, Eric Peterson so strangely, a massive, was a big fan of your band or Cradle of Filth back in the day. He and Chuck were there. They were really cool guys. It was the first time I met them. Hmm. But of course you see the same faces at festivals and, uh, you know, we weren't great mates, but they were good guys. They were really kind to us, all of those. And I suppose it's because you couldn't interview me and Nick without us rattling off our favourite thrash metal bands back then. <laughs> but yeah. uh, we also met Jeff from Possessed, who was in the audience. You know, if we'd known Jeff from Possessed was coming, come in the green room. Have as much beer as you want, Jeff. You are <laughs> a legend. 
that noise and he did produce that sound for me when i realized who it was yeah um it's a guy who worked for a different record label than we were on i think he was associated with a support band so do you see the dude over there that's jeff becker well i simply have to go and thank him for the work he did because seven churches that's DNA for me. Yeah, likewise. I used to pound that yeah. on my Walkman when I was a kid. It was, it's an amazing record. And I'm thrilled that he's back out being in Possessed again. Well, they've got a new album coming out. He's signed a Nuclear Blast, actually, not with the same members, of course, Jeff and um, Larry Lont from Primus. Um, he's not in the band. And Mike Suss, they're not in the band, but he's got a new membership around him. But if you look at the live clips of on YouTube of the band, mate, they sound hot. Yeah, yeah. I saw a, a little bit of footage of The, the Exorcist. And, mm. yeah, it's... That album and under the sign of the black mark, I can remember buying and I forget which sequence it was, which one I had first, because I would have been 12, I guess, when I was just into buying records. And those two records just changed how I viewed metal from that point on. There was nothing so dark and terrifying as under the sign of the black mark. There was nothing so brutal as Seven Churches. And uh, yeah, so that was my step off from being an Iron Maiden kid and being into the new wave stuff, which of course, if you're my age, had gone out of fashion. They were just... Venom albums were floating around in in bargain bins. And that was how I got a lot of my collection together. I remember that. And, uh, yeah, I do remember that because yeah. I had a good chat to um, uh, both uh, Jeff, sorry, Mantis, Jeff Dunn, a.k.a. Mantis, mm-hmm. and uh, Tony Bray, a.k.a. Abaddon. And, of course, you know, the when I say new front man, the front man that was in the band post- um, Oh, it's Tony again, isn't it? Yeah, Tony Dolan, awesome bloke. I spoke to him for almost two hours, actually, um, not that long ago. So I'm a massive Venom fan, but to be, I'm, you know, I'm almost on my own with this. I much prefer Tony than- than Kronos or Conrad. Um, oh, you can make a case for either. I think the Primeval album, yes. apart from the Black Sabbath cover, is an incredibly strong record. They didn't need to do a cover tune on there. No. Because uh, I, I remember that as a brand new album. It got booted to fuck in its reviews. Really? I was a Venom fan. Of course I'm going to, yeah, really. Yeah. Uh, Venom were a joke at one point. You know, they, they had their spot and they were treated like a cartoon in the, the British press. Hmm. But... You can't see a copy of Welcome to Hell when you're 12 and go, it's got to be worth one listen, hasn't it? Oh, that's what <laughs> I did. I remember, I remember buying it on vinyl um, or black yeah. metal actually with the goat on the front and thinking, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get kicked out of home when I when I take this home because it's a bit like exactly what you're saying. You could buy the Venom albums in bargain bins. Um, mm. But I very quickly got into it and the album that I liked the best by far actually was Primeval, particularly yeah. the fact that you could Well, they went the, forward, didn't they? Possessed. Yeah. Is it Possessed and Calm Before the Storm come before that? They were, they, they've, they've well, got good spots on them, but it was, they weren't strong albums. And I think it was a strong album in the same way some bands do, like Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath. You know, I think that's one of their strongest well, records, even though you're supposed to just say, oh, oh the Aussie stuff reigns. <laughs> Let's talk about that quickly. I've, I maintain, <laughs> and I, I, I tell you what, I haven't published a lot of it, but I've get a lot of people agreeing with me on this. I much prefer Black Sabbath with Dio fronting them. And I much prefer Ozzy by himself as a solo artist with Bob Daisley writing the tunes. I always have. Wait, Bob Daisley, what bass player? Oh, he's, he's a Sydney lad. He's he's like me. He's from Australia. And um, oh, good stuff. He lives in Australia. He's back in Australia. Or I think he's been back. What in is that riff? Years. There is one unutterably cool bass line. It's the beginning of a tune called "Is It Believer?" Um, believe dun 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 yeah. dun 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 dun. Now in the twenty first century, you don't hear bass playing like that precise on the drums massive groove so heavy it's untrue and then the guitar riff is just magnificent i'm not a huge fan of aussie solo stuff actually i know 
guitar players are supposed to go giddy over Jake and Randy Rhodes playing. But I was always more into the Black Sabbath thing. I love Aussie era Sabbath. Volume four is one of my all time favorite records. Mm. But fair's fair, Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules has my Oh Mob Rules. Probably. Yeah. Under Simon the side of the Southern Southern Cross. Cross. Is there, right there. Yeah. <laughs> Find me a heavier riff. Well you know, that is exceptional. And I love Dehumanizer as well. I got to see likewise. the Dehumanizer tour. Yeah. And well, uh, it's one of the heaviest things I've ever seen. That computer god, what a drummer. <laughs> He's amazing. Well, as God, you're reading my mind here. I uh, About a year and a half ago, a year ago or so, I got to quiz uh, Vinny Apisay for about half an hour just on Dehumanizer. And it was a wow. bit like the discussion I'm having with yourself where I'm able to go into the nuances, you know, computer god, um, TV crimes, asking, how did you guys do this? And, you know, he gave me a lot of copy on it. It made for a very good interview. But, yeah, I'd, I'd say Dehumanizer would be very close to being in my top 10 albums ever. Yeah, I, I think it's somewhere up there for me as well. That was a, you know, just one-off stunning record. But the Heaven and Hell album, I always think of as a Black Sabbath record. I saw that tour as well. Mm. And nobody shouted Heaven and Hell when they wanted an encore. But, uh, you know, there's a tune on there that was the equal of anything they did on Heaven and Hell or Mob Rules or Dehumanizer called Follow the Tears. Mm. I am a massive Dio fan. I will give any Dio record one listen. Because I was into Rainbow when I was a kid, and so that magnificent voice just travelled through my life with me. Yes, yeah, I know. It's and probably... I got to meet him a couple of times. He's a really, really, really uh, superb man. Is that right? How did, did you meet him in a in a like as a musician or as a fan? Both. Uh, when Dio played, oh, I think it was in Bristol, which is a couple of hours from here. Hmm. With trouble supporting them. That was some night out when you were a teenager. Uh, I hung out because uh, I was able to. And one of the crew came out, and it was a horrible night. And he said, if you just come in, Ronnie's going to come out and uh, say hello to you all. And I was taken aback by what a nice guy he was and how much time he had for everybody that was standing there dripping with the rain we'd just been out in. And then many years later, uh, I was introduced to him at a, a signing he was doing, but as his peer, which still seems strange. And he was every bit as excellent. And I got his autograph, still have it on my uh, studio wall. Nice. It's one of, the, one of the best souvenirs I've got. That one of my Manowar autographs because I never thought I'd need Manowar. Manowar. Well, famously, they're they're like Russian that they've never toured Australia, which is quite bizarre because I do have quite a fan base down here. But uh, what's your favourite Manowar album? Hell to England or Kings of Metal. Oh, you could put a Rizzler between them, mate. I mm. love them both for different reasons. And I love Manowar more after I met them because they absolutely mean it. There's not a whiff of irony about that. That's band. what I've heard. I was They're astonished. deadly serious. Yeah. I'll tell you, um, they were in a cabin next to us at a festival. We were special guests to them in a Spanish festival. And I thought, well, this is this is my chance. I'm going to go and bang on the door and sail out of Manowar. And Eric Adams opened the door and apologized, said he's really busy. But behind him, Joe DeMaio was, uh, he had like a little headphone practice set up on and was doing the craziest bass solo to nobody. I thought, shit, they are for real. I I love them even more. (laughs) I remember about the same time I bought um, Dusk and Her Embrace, I purchased Louder Than Hell, which was my first Manowar album, and they've got Mm -hmm. a video to the song Return of the Warlord. Have you seen that video? I don't think I've seen the video. I know the tune. But apparently in the video they get arrested by the police and it's all legit. None of it's – they get legit for making too much noise. They get arrested for making too much noise and for blocking off a street or something. So, yeah, you're right. I've heard thirdhand uh, that they are deadly serious. There's not a hint of irony about what they do and they're deadly serious about about living what they represent both in the albums and in their videos and on the live shows. Yeah. Oh, they – 
one day I, I hope you get to see that band because they are exactly what you hope for when you see Man of War live. And it's just the sense of fun and community. There's no other metal band really has that apart from Maiden, where whatever, you go to a metal festival, whatever, everybody likes Man of War, everybody likes Maiden, otherwise they wouldn't be there. And uh, hmm. yeah, they're fantastic nights. I, I remember that Spanish show, I literally ran through a shower and went up on a gantry and watched it from above the stage and then realized the place to be is in front of the stage and just went and enjoyed a Man of War show. It's fantastic. Mm. Cool, mate. Because I saw him when I was about 14 and then there was, I was probably 24 by the time I saw him again. Yeah, okay. So, mate, I'll just do a time check. We've been talking for about an hour and 15 minutes now. I've still got a few more questions to ask you, but just in a courtesy to you, mate, how, how are we for time? I, I, there's no rush. You can. Have, no, I'm, just, I'm sure you appreciate it, Andy. Nobody's ever asked me these things before, so I, you can have as much time as you want. Uh, all I've got to do today is wait. My studio has uh, neighbours, and I need to make some noise later on, <laughs> and so I'm just kicking up. I will talk as long as you're able. Okay. Here's a question for you then. How were you recruited into Cradle? Uh, my friend saw an ad in Kerrang! Wanted black metal uh, band, avant-garde black metal band, want guitarist. I said, that's you, that is. And so uh, I sent a cassette. He uh, helped me program up some drums and put a couple of ideas together. And I uh, played with them a couple of times. And what was crucial to me was that I was able to write in that band. And that's why I stayed. Yeah, the, playing with Barker was good enough. But if I was there just to play somebody else's riffs, that wouldn't have entertained me. So was, so, it, uh, was it an audition, like he learned these three songs, come in, play them and see if it gels? Or did you guys go down to the pub and just see if it was going to meld before you went into the rehearsal studio? In theory, I went up there to play some songs. What actually happened is we went to the pub. Um, well, that's how you do it, isn't it? With all due respect, I've just joined a new band of myself. And, and on, these days, you don't go to the pub when you're older and sophisticated. You go and get a bloody coffee and have some lunch. And that's what mm. we did. But I had video. I've got videos of myself playing bass. And I, I, although I'm thoroughly into metal, as you can tell, I've never played in a metal band outside of a new metal band. And I play funk and jazz. Um, wow. But yeah, that's what you do these days. You tend to sort of see if it's going to work out personally and then get into the rehearsal studio. So it doesn't surprise me that that's how it worked out for you. But you obviously found that you all got along quite well. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, I stayed over with Nick and I stayed over with Rob and we all got on. And Dan as well. You know, whatever whatever has been said over the years. We were good friends, me and Dan. I used to room with him. And, uh, you know, they were interesting guys where, you know, me and Nick bonded over the thrash metal thing. My interest in magic meant I had something immediately to talk about with Dan. Uh, Rob is, like I said, a strange character. That's not a criticism. It's just, I said the same thing to Nick. Did you actually know him? And everybody kind of goes, no, we just played with him. He was a funny guy, like I say, we didn't know much about him. And we got along, where uh, at the time, there's a dude called Brian playing the other guitar uh, from a death metal band from Florida. You're probably more clued up on this who was so flaky, it was untrue. That's how I ended up, I don't know if you know, I, I did a tour as the only guitarist in Cradle of Filth. It's the only no, time I it went out with a single guitar. With a, as a five piece. That was hard piece. work, mate. Yeah, I bet it was. Yeah. Jesus, yeah. It was busy, let me tell you that. But, um, yeah, I think in a strange way, the flaky guy came back for the big show in London, but I got to do all the provincial shows where nobody knew who we were. <laughs> so uh, what year was that? Was it, footage of that. Is that about 94 or thereabouts? I think that's... 95 christmas 95 because we were in a studio and i think we did part of a british tour stopped went to the studio i might be wrong check with the other guys and then 
came back out again to do this one show in London a few days later, whereupon we magically had another guitar player and then he disappeared again. Uh, you can, if you look up his name and Google him, you can see why he was never going to be a state. Yeah. Okay, uh, he's a good guitar you. player, yep. but um, substance abuse issues. You know, yep. I'd, I'd, the town yep. I, I lived in, well, the poor guy's dead now. An overdose killed him. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, no I, I have a distinct opinion on dealing with heroin addicts on a day-to-day basis because my peers, guys I knew from school, uh, went that way. You know, you're all free to choose, but, you know, that's one of the choices that is kind of permanent when you make it. And uh, it's yes. made it difficult to get along with. Uh, I wish I could remember his name. Nick would tell you, Brian, because he, he was great mates with Nick is how he was there. How he got recruited. And, yeah, gotcha. Yep. yep. Yeah. And so I can tell you the songs I had to learn from the first album. No, that's not true. I think I had to learn two songs from the first album and maybe Funeral in Carpathia because that was considered a really high technical challenge which it sort of is to play, I guess. I can imagine, yeah, I can certainly imagine that it would be, yeah. But um, yeah. No, I learned the title track from the first record, a song called To Eve the Art of Witchcraft that stayed in the live set for years. Yes. And I think probably the second time I went up, I was given a cassette of the, the Dusk demos that got released. And I think I played Funeral in Carpathia. But it was all a bit of a rush in the end. I had a lot to learn, and there was writing going on for the Vampire EP, Um which I just jumped straight into. You know, the first mm. track on that took 20 minutes to write. That was just me and Nick doing one. Yep. The only other input was somebody said, needs an epic ending. Epic ending, go! And we just did it. <laughs> we got along like that. Yep. We didn't think that hard. It's um, People are able to scrutinize their music in a different way now. Back then it was, what's happening in the room? That's good. Move forward. So, so uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was one of those things. My friend Paul, he, uh, he spotted this thing and just said, that's totally you, that is. <laughs> So was was it a was it one of those things where you met the guys and and went you know within the first sort of fifteen minutes yeah this is going to work out or was it a bit of a a longer process? Uh, I went up and played on a kind of uh, putting your toe in the water basis maybe two or three times and then I came home and earned some money and because it's the other other side of the country I had to move to and sorted out a way of getting up there and living and uh, I think I officially joined. Set- September 95, but I played with them from about May, I think. Okay, so you were brought in as a session player just to get through a few... No, I was never a session player. I didn't do any public work with them during those times leading up to that. Okay, so when you say May, that's the May of 1996 from when you joined in 1995? Uh, May 95 was when I first went up, I think. Okay, okay, gotcha, yep. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, they, they didn't have a live set together. What I will never really know what happened with the Ryan brothers in all honesty, but they were a fucking disaster area when I got there. That band was broken and mm. it required everybody to pull to make it into what it became. And uh, and we did because we didn't have any choice. We didn't have any money. There was no budget to make that record. And I won't give you the numbers, but it's something like an 80%, 180% lift on what we had to do, the demos for Dusk initially against what we had to complete Vampire. Mm. So, uh, Nobody was getting rich. I was just playing it because I like playing metal and they were good guys to play. I'd been up in London and played in a few bands up there. Mm. And I I was always aware that I can stay in my hometown and play and have fun. If I want to do something productive, I need to leave. It's a, it's a small community down yeah. here even now. Yep. So, uh, And I suppose if you're Australian, you get an even better idea of what remote will give you in the choice of musicians in your local area. Oh, God. There's <laughs> even even as I was growing up um, in, in Sydney, um, it was – through that era, you can probably appreciate. I did try to join 
and form mini metal bands for about a five-year period, but you could never get a collective together. Um, yeah. And then, of course, by the late 90s, that bloody Limp Biscuit thing hit. And, of course, a lot of the guys playing death metal and genuine heavy metal switched to that because that was their ticket. They'd been playing metal for years, and I don't blame them. And I don't even have anything against the new metal style of music. Even I ended up playing it. Um, but it was really the only sort of metal that you could play if you wanted to play live in Australia. Um, there yeah. were very few and far places, very, very few places. I mean, we had some significant metal bands that didn't so much have a global impact, but they were influential in the underground, like Mortal Sin and Slaughter Lord and the like. Um, yeah, I remember that Mortal Sin and Slaughter Lord. I am immortal. That was a great tune from Mortal Sin. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Hobbs Angel of Death. And who else was Australian that was cool? Used to have an album by a band called Oz that was interesting, if not a great album. Mm, Oz, okay, yeah, I'll check them out. Yeah, I wasn't. That was early eighties. That was one of my bargain bin finds. Had a big burning skull on the front. It looked like my sort of thing for a quid. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember the album cover actually, but it's probably the first time in about fifteen or twenty years, not my memory's been jogged that it was a release of that type. But um, look, even um, back then, I don't know whether you recall a lot of the bands that supported you when you played in Sydney in nineteen ninety seven. But with the greatest of respect to those bands, the quality wasn't that good either. Even of the ones that were playing, they were basically. You know, you had your um, your Malevolent Creation. For some reason, Malevolent Creation was a big band in Australia. Never understood that. Yeah. I thought it would have been Cannibal Corpse or Morbid Angel, but Malevolent did have a lot of followers, particularly a lot of guitarists that I spoke to, fellow guitarists that I spoke to. Yeah, play like Rob Barrett because at that time he was in Malevolent. Uh, he'd gone yeah. from Cannibal Corpse into Malevolent Creation. It was like, oh, not really. Can we do something more like Cradle or Satyricon? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something, something. I don't recall which bands played in Sydney, in all, in all honesty, because it was a strange night, as you know, everything was going sideways from the second we turned up at the venue. But I believe in Melbourne, we played with a band called Abramaline, who were, they were serviceable, but um, one of the things we had was a very thick skin and balls of steel, and we went off and did our own thing. And that's the key with metal. That's what stops it going stale. Heavy metal is self-referential by definition. We're all fans. That's why we do it. Mm. There's nobody will be dumb enough to say, do you know what will get me rich? I'm going to form a heavy metal band. You do it because you love it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. so, so true, though. I think a lot of the bands that I encountered, not just in Australia, but a lot of the support bands we saw, they were like something else. They were doing it because it was a kind of calligraphy. They weren't building on, I don't know, told you the name of the band, then it's not about naming names, a band that sounded remarkably like Morbid Angel. They weren't mm. building on the bricks that Morbid Angel put down, they were just desperate to sound like Morbid Angel. Yes, yeah. I was chatting to uh, an old mate of mine the other day about a well-known British black metal band who are current today. And he's saying they pissed away three days in a studio doing a cover version, trying to get the drum fills exactly like they were on the original oh, version. Sure, yeah. Okay. Well, that's self-defeating. It's totally self-defeating. Do your own thing. The great thing about covers is, I think, play a song that everybody knows. Don't go and look it up on Guitar Pro. Just play it how you recall it, and it will be so different. It's your own version, but by the time the whole band can hack it together. So, uh, yeah, that, I know what you're saying. They, weren't, they were really nice guys that I met in all those bands. Because that venue in Sydney, that was the weird one on the beach, wasn't it? Spot on. Or, look, that was at Coogee. It was a it was a gig called, very famous venue, actually. There's been a hell of a lot of bands that have played there. If memory served me correct, it wouldn't have been a couple of months before that. I'm, I'm a big, as I've already mentioned, I'm a, I'm a jazz and uh, funk guy at heart. Um, I watched Fishbone. So uh, the gig prior to watching you guys, I can't recall how the, the chronological order of it, but it was Fishbone and then Cradle of Phil. So it used to host all sorts of bands. And yeah. it was very, it was, I'd say that the, the, 
Promoter was a young guy. I never don't know his name, and I only ever met him once when I went into, and I think I've got this right. Sanity was the name of a record store in the Fox Studios that had been built in the Sydney Football Stadium precinct, and he was running that Sanity. And I remember just meeting him, and he told me that he put it on that night, and he told me about all the problems that he encountered just getting the um, people at the venue to get along with the bands and also the punters. Now, I was yeah. only very young at the time. I was only about 18 at the time, um, so I wasn't drinking because I was driving. Um but I remember being very bored and going to the kebab shop and sitting down for about an hour and a half or so before you guys went on, just waiting. And I think it was a yeah. bit of a, a call amongst the um, the fans that were waiting outside of the venue, both on the beach and in the adjacent fast food joints, to sort of put the word out that Cradle were about to go on stage. And with the greatest of respect to the bands that were playing before, I think we were just done after about the seventh or eighth band. Yeah, yeah. Now, now that I've recalled the venue, I remember it much, much better. Um, cause I remember there was nothing for us to do. There just wasn't any progress. So I, there were a few people hanging around by what was serving us backstage that day. And me and Nick just went out and took him some cans of beer and had a chat to whoever was there to talk to. It was a strange day, but what I really remember is it was another little piece of the puzzle of why I had such a good time in Australia during soundcheck. I could not put my finger on what that place reminded me of. And it was years later. I realized it looks exactly like the coastline where I'm from. We were playing out to the ocean in that big, right. shallow bay. Mm. Looks, you know, even the scale of it is really similar to somewhere where I used to spend a lot of time when I was a teenager. So, uh, yeah, I, I remember it much better. But we came across far worse promoters who would never be the outstanding bad promoter that had shit going wrong constantly. I think that was lack of experience and ill luck for that guy, where um, mm, there were yeah, plenty great. of people that you recall, we are never playing for this guy again. <laughs> Yeah, I remember. I remember feeling talking to him. Oh, he might have worked in. He might have worked in Utopia. Was there a record store called Utopia? That's yeah. what I was about to say. Yeah, Utopia. I think we did a signing in Utopia because I still have the T-shirt. Um, nice. I, I moved house a lot, and I would just like that, that's like a souvenir to remind me of when I was in Australia. And so that was packed down in one of my guitar cases. And uh, now that I've got somewhere fairly stable to live, um, mm. I unpacked all my guitars, see what still works. And there it was, the Utopia shirt. So, yeah, that was the place. I had to uh, – the strangest thing I ever signed. This guy came <laughs> to the counter where we were all sitting and stood there, and I was – it was like Nick and then me, and he just stared at Nick and stared at me and then pulled his fake leg off and planted it on the counter because <laughs> everybody else had an LP or a CD in their hands. They wanted signing. Fair enough, mate. If that's what you want to happen, we'll make it happen. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Actually, I didn't know that you guys did a, um, a signing then. God, I would have turned up to that if I'd realized that. I turned up. Uh, many years later, when after you'd exited the the band, when they toured on the back of Midian and got some things signed then, but uh, yeah, no, I, I do definitely remember the show. And I was, when I was talking to Danny, I reminded him that he pulled out a couple of classic one-liners. Now I'll test you, really test your memory here. It was uh -huh. about a week or two, again, if memory serves me correct, after Michael Hutchins passed away, and from stage, Danny said in that, you know, that death metal voice, that black metal voice that he puts on when he's yeah, talking yeah. between songs. This song is dedicated to Michael Hutchins. And I remember myself and my mate looked at each other and said, shit, what are we going to hear here? Like a black metal version of an In Excess song or something. And then very quickly <laughs> he said, and I'm glad that fucking cunt is dead. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 the, the, he, he was not a spontaneous man. It would have been one of those things that he put together during the day. Oh, is that right? So uh, okay. I don't recall that particular gag, but there were a few. There's the, a couple of ones that used to really grate on me because after 40 shows, um, I used to break a lot of strings. He would say this, he would do the same gag. 
so uh, yeah, I can probably recall them. But it's like a, a chain of consequence. If I start to think, tell you what, if I if I hear the theme to Omen Two, which is why I'll walk on music back then, hmm. I can actually recall how the the set ran because it was very organised. It wasn't a spontaneous band because with six people you can't really do that sort of thing. No, yeah, seven people live because we used to have a backing singer as well. And uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, Sarah on that trip when, too. When he's on you? good form, when he's on good form, Dan's a funny guy. He really was. Yeah, he, look, he's. I've got to tell you, he was very congenial to me, and you can probably appreciate that I asked him some pretty detailed questions about the band when you were in it, because I've already, as I've mentioned a couple of times, I'm a massive fan of the, those three releases that you were a part of. Um, he took uh-huh. all of my questions in good humour. I actually thought he'd tell me to get stuffed occasionally, but, but uh, or, you know, when I got a bit too close to, I wasn't really talking a lot about the new release, uh, which is called Cryptoriana. Um, I only asked one question about that. Now, these sort of block interviews that I get, because I, I get them through good old John Howarth down there in Wollongong, um, we tend to only get sort of between 15 minutes and half an hour to ask questions. So you've really got to be on point. And, um, you know, you get to talk to all sorts of very interesting and wonderful people um, uh, through that, but you've really got to, you know, get your questions sorted and ask some different questions in that environment. But with Danny, I just felt, look, I've been a long time fan of the band and um, I, I really wanted to get his perspective on some things, but look, he's, you know, I understand he's, he's got an ongoing concern with the band. And um, when I asked him, um, would he ever see a possibility of getting back together with yourself and Les? Um, mate, he didn't say no. He didn't shut me well, down. Well, he'd have to talk to me at some point. We haven't spoken for a long time. And I wouldn't be against it, but uh, he was he was a fucking prick with me. But I understand there are other factors, and I'm not going to go into them with you because it's not very interesting. No, I understand. And yep. it vilifies people, and there's no need to vilify those people. No, they know yep. I think they're a cunt, uh, and they will stay fucked off because of it. So, uh, yeah, it turned out this guy didn't have as many mates as he thought, and they all decided to spill the beans to me. And go, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Mm. And yep. so, uh, yeah, it, I don't think it's his fault or my fault that we fell out ultimately. So uh, he's welcome to bring me up. I'm not that hard to find, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was surprised. It would be, it'd be interesting because I, I thought I saw him, and I was going to go and speak to him, but it was just another little guy with similar hair at a <laughs> show that I went to last year. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, he was uh, um, he was surprised that I was interviewing you, actually, and um, of course I haven't read anything online either. And I thought, okay, um, you know, I thought uh, in, when I say read anything online, I haven't read any interviews with you online either. And I thought, oh, okay, does does this mean it's unusual to get an interview with you? No, I think, I think it obviously means that it's it's not unusual, Andy. It's unique. Nobody has ever asked me these things. Mm. I'm surprised, mate. I'm surprised because I know I'm not the only one who's – I'm not the only person where your guitar playing has had the kind of impact that I've shared with you. Well, and, I mean, that's a beautiful thing. That, I always said that would be the ultimate compliment, you know, to come up as an influence to somebody who's making progress with their music because I can list all my favourite guitar players and the impact they had on me and why and all that stuff. And to hear your own name coming up like that, that is the greatest compliment. Absolutely the greatest compliment. And the best way to repay it is for you guys to go and do something unique, keep building on it. You know, it's, uh, it, yep. it blows my mind. It really does. I've actually had to discuss with some people that it doesn't matter what I've ever done. Talk to me like a human being. I'm not, especially when you speak to me on the phone. Um, mm. Over my life, I have learned that I am physically intimidating and I have to behave a certain way when I meet new people. I'm six, I was six, three 
when I was in Australia. I didn't stop growing until I was 30. Jesus, and, okay. Uh, what are you now? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little over six foot. I'm frigging enormous. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I will never be comfortable on public transport ever again. Yes. And, uh, you know, when people approach me through Facebook or whatever, it astonishes me the level of praise that people have for me. It's beautiful. You know, that's, that's the mission. It was never anything else was um, add my little bit to the book of how they play heavy metal guitar. And if I could manage that, wouldn't that be amazing? Hmm. And years later, I find out there are guys like you that are bringing my name up in that context. I can't thank you enough. It's stunning. Oh, it's well earned and, uh, and it's deserved. And it's, it is all about the music, mate. I mean, it's, um, I just remember the impact that it had on me at the time because um, I, I had been into Maiden, but it just felt like in the late 90s, especially the mid to late 90s, there was just this, there was just this void. And so the underground became not mainstream, but became more readily available. And you could go into regular record shops, not just the utopias of the world down in Sydney or the rocking horses of Brisbane. That's another independent record store. You could actually go into the HMVs. Remember HMV and Virgin Records? Oh, and you, yeah, yeah. You could buy Cradle of Filth Records. Um, well, I think that's the luck of us being on a really good label. MFN were a brilliant label for us. Somebody reminded me of uh, Music for Nations the other day. Hmm. And essentially, they didn't give a fuck what we did as long as we did it and did a great job of it. And that less and less labels are supporting bands in that way. You know, I do um, a few reviews for a couple of websites of metal records just to, because essentially I talk about music all the time. I decide to start writing some of it down and I get to hear lots of new music. But the thing that I hear most is the, the terrible presentation of good music. And a lot of that, when you look at, what I do is I listen to the record, then I read the, you get the same thing, the promo bump about what I'm sure. supposed to feel about this album. Yep. And I read that later on and you look at the label and go, oh shit, somebody keep an eye on it and somebody put some money into this band and there's something really special going to happen there. And we were very lucky to have a label who, to some extent, I don't think they knew what we were doing, but they knew we were doing it and they helped us, aided yes. and abetted, probably in a legal sense. Yes. Yep. So, uh, yeah, it's... And I know record companies don't have the money or the stroke that they used to, but it wouldn't be an impossible change where labels that were new in the 90s that I knew are now, excuse me. Yeah, mate. Hello. Speaking. Okay. After four o'clock today would suit it. Okay, mate, well, um, give us a call on this number and there might be somebody here to uh, let you in. Cheers, pal. Sorry, mate, you there? No worries. Yeah, all good. No worries. But yeah, it's, um, I, I hear lots of great new music that if it had the same sort of support or half the support we had, would truly achieve something incredible you know not naming names there are there are lots of bands that i watch do you think they're going to do something magic and some of them let me down because they go around in circles but more it's to do with the presentation the put the actually not the the lp cover the what people would say is production the rendering of the music itself i think we were lucky to have guys like kit and mike exeter and dan sprig to work with that would make it all happen for us because i'm sure you know mike exeter actually played a lot of keyboards on dusk and no, I didn't know that. A little there you bit of cruelty. Okay. I say, Greg, um, as a human being, is all right. But as a keyboard player, he just didn't. He, I don't think he'd ever been in a band. 
where there was a back and forward about what was going to happen. Right. Okay. And it was like a rabbit in headlights. He was just freezing. And so Mike is an excellent keyboard player. He really helped him out on dusk. Mm. You know, arranging and stuff like some of the arrangements Mike did us stunning. He's oh, a, they are. They're beautiful. He's a yeah. great guy. Yeah. You know, and he works on super high profile projects these days. He did work on the last Black Sabbath album and Dio projects and things like that. Um, and he owned his place there. I believe he's now the Grammy Award winning Mike Hexer. I think you're but, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, on that one there. Yeah, yeah. There was a, there was a lot of hands on, and it didn't it didn't bother him to do it. It bothered us that we had a keyboard player that couldn't. I think that's what pushed us towards Les in the end. Because well, uh, you know, Les is a great guy. He's a really good player, and he's paying attention. He he will go back and forward about ideas fast. Well, he seems like a real talent. Um, I know virtually nothing about him, only what I've read. But um, he's now doing. I mentioned it earlier, front of house for Paradise Lost. He was in um, Anathema for many years. I think he's their yeah, longest yeah. tenured keyboard player, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, Anathema used to record near me, and so I'd, I'd, he would come up and visit now and then. And he's he's himself. He's he's one of those people. There is a definite sense of les about him. Hmm. Yeah. Well, look, I'll repeat what I said earlier again, mate. I'd love it if yourself, Nick or Barker, uh, Les. Um, could get together in a room sometime because that's really the nucleus there. I suppose if Robin's available, that's another thing. But the three of you could get into a room sometime and just create some new music. It'd be a wonderful thing, mate. I think there'd be a lot of people yeah. out there that would be very interested to hear what you come up with. Well, then I'll tell you what I told Nick. I said, if it's going to be the three of us, we might as well talk to Dan as well. Okay, there you go. There it is right there. So, uh, well, and it's, it's it not us that stops it from happening, mate. It's not us. Well, what, there, are, Danny... there are some issues that he created that would need to be resolved before anything like that happened. Yeah. And I hate to, I'd love to, be able to say to you guys, yes, because this is a noise that a few people have made this year. Is there a 20th anniversary Cruelty and the Beast tour? And you have to say, nobody's talked to me about it, and there are some issues that would need to be resolved. Do you know that you he's know, re uh, remixing the album? I'm sure he is. Like I said, he's always going backwards, that boy. Because he's remixing, yeah, they don't, he doesn't, I mean, I understood a lot of people, I didn't mind it to be honest with you, but I've heard the criticism that the drums aren't the sound that a lot of people would like. They, they're um, a bit thin, if you like. Um, but he must have listened to that and he's gone back and remixed the entire album, not just the drums, but the entire album. He's going to produce new artwork. That's a variation of the existing artwork. Oh, okay. So, well, I'm sure I hear something about that in the future. I think somebody mentioned, and it might even have had its remix already. Maybe Les told me, or Nick, or somebody. I don't keep tabs on these things, but um, I, I don't dislike the sound of it. I would totally agree that the drums are not what they should have been, because this is why I was digging through my cassettes not long ago. I've got the copy before the drum triggers went on, and those engineers that we had were excellent. And Nick's natural drum sound, he had this fantastic pearl kit, top of the range, looked after beautifully, tuned to perfection. And it sounded extraordinary. And there was never any recordings of us back then of what we sounded like without this. It was emerging technology, the drum triggers. Now you can do it easy and get good sounds. Back then it wasn't necessarily the way to go because he is a fantastically dynamic drummer. He's a uh, very good drummer. I think it yeah. lost some, some of the feel that he had, hmm. uh, especially with the, the snare, I, I think, the snare drum. There's a degree of delicacy that he had produced that's just lost on that record. I know that's a strange word to apply to Nick Barker, but delicacy is the word. He's a very, very good drummer. Yep. Yeah. Well, and, those, uh, those who look yeah. heavy-handed often have the lightest touch, don't they? So that just proves that statement. Well, I mean, the triggers were because of the, the pace he was producing. Hmm. Obviously, that means that the it's not going to be like a, an ACDC boom every time he hits the drum. 
And I think Nick did get a bit caught up in that competitive drumming thing that is still going on now. Nick never had to compete with anybody. He's a musician. He, he understands how music works. He doesn't just mark out time for you. And that's not a criticism of guys that do. There are some exceptional drummers that are just there to add a groove to the back of it. Nick was absolutely integral to the writing process. And this is not a criticism of Adrian. I wish I'd worked with Adrian more. He's a really good drummer too. He's uh, totally different. You know, um, Nick would always say, Nick, I'm a brain. Adrian would always pick out, uh, oh, the name escapes me, dude from Judas Priest, used to be in Racer X, Scott oh, Travis. Oh, Scott Travis, yeah, Scott Travis. Yeah. yeah. And I can see that connection, actually. Adrian has got that like yeah. a human drum machine where it sounds so precise, but when you play with him, it's really fluid, really human as well. You well, know, he, I would have welcomed the opportunity to play more with Adrian because we did play some of the new ideas that never got used together. And actually, this is a different flavor to what I expected because you could ask and you would get with Adrian. You know, it wasn't just a, a wall of drumming, count to four and then do stuff and see what happens. He, Like Nick, he listens. And they are oh, almost chalk and cheese, those guys, the way they play. It took a little bit of adjustment to, for me to play with Adrian because I was so used to playing with Nick when it changed. And there was a guy in between, but we don't talk about him. Uh, forget uh, his name. Yeah. I remember his attitude and his drumming, though. Yes, he played on um, Of Dark Blood and Fucking, if I'm not mistaken, the one that I can't remember the name of either. I'd have to Google it. But No, I think that's Adrian. Oh, so it's the other way around. Uh, so the, the drummer that was, we... was played, sorry, was from Extreme Noise Terror, who was friends with Rob and played on his solo record. He did the drums for Cradle to Enslave, I think. Okay, yep. It was it was it was fragmented at the time because John wasn't there for that release. Uh, he didn't play on anything except for the title track, I believe. I think he played rhythm guitar on that one. Okay. Uh, but I don't think he's on Dark Blood and Fucking, which I think was a missed opportunity. That was a song that I was hoping to save for the next album. I didn't really want to let that one out as a B-side, effectively. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that point there. Yeah, and that just sort of hints to the point that the direction that the band would take after your exit was was significant, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, so so that particular track there, you wrote the main verse riff and the chorus? I wrote the riffs. Uh, that one I knocked up on my eight track because this is the thing that, uh, you know, people don't want to hear, is we were stretching and so there was no time. That was literally, this is how this song is. We have to make it happen because there is now a deadline because somebody has opened their mouth and said, let's do an EP. And the record company said, yes, well... Get it out by Christmas. Yep. Yeah, I'd already written a ton of music. Why don't we just do the fucking album and release it a month later? Have your video, but release it as a real single. Just two tracks was what I wanted to happen. Maybe one of the covers have Sleepless as a B-side or something. But yeah. um, Isn't that you know, interesting? That's never my end of Because I remember, of course, you can't find the interviews now, and believe me, I searched a ton prior to our discussion and prior to the discussion I had with Danny. But one of the reasons that I believe, now I'm going back almost 20 years ago here, that he, if you like, offered to the media uh, for yours and Les's exit was the lack of uh, songwriting that was occurring. Because he... he uh, um, that's, that's spin. He knew damn well, because I, I would tease him. I'd say, look, here's a little bit of a new song. Now, when I see other people contributing, we can go. Otherwise, you let me get on with what I'm doing. I knew exactly how it had to happen. I wasn't being a tyrant. I know that John used to like firing out that I was a bully. I don't know if you've ever seen any of them. If bullying is saying, John, you're the guitar player in a metal band, you've got to play the guitar. Hmm. I'm a bully, but I don't think that counts. 
he was he was sandbagging me constantly. There is in that folder um, the one bit that I genuinely regret nobody got to hear. I was just on good form one day, and me and Nick had now me and Adrian by then sadly, yeah, um, had put together a little riff, and I took it from the recorder at the rehearsal room back to my own studio and started to build on. It. I thought, fucking hell, that's that massive outbreak of maiden-esque twin guitar that we need to be the core of a song mm. um and there was an opportunity as well to record an instrumental for a, an anime soundtrack and it, it had to be a certain length it had to be a certain style but it also had to be instrumental is why it didn't happen because uh, dan had his nose out of joint that he wasn't going to be on it i did point out that he could just shriek and do stuff and then technically it's still instrumental but yep. whatever and that crushed me because at the end of it i thought john can't play that this is not the most massively technically demanding thing anybody will ever do. But John will fuck that up every time we try and do it live. And he was always sandbagging, but he'd never bring ideas in as a result. Now, I insisted to the very end that all writing credits were everyone. On the grounds, that I thought, well, anybody sensible that isn't contributing will realize they're still appreciated. The people who are contributing will be rewarded if there's any money comes of this. Yeah, John especially, and I wasn't going to, pick out one person john was a fucking prick with me at every turn everything was just too much trouble for him where he he wouldn't play at the right level and by that i genuinely mean he wasn't skilled he wasn't a guitar player like i recognize who gets up does their stuff plays guitar hmm. and maintains their skill he was a i've begrudgingly because it was a democratic process said okay then john can come and play guitar two of us out of five, said, no, we don't want John to play guitar, which was me and Nick. Um, and I said, look, if he studies, because I'd already started teaching guitar before I joined that band, uh, if he comes and studies with me, he can do this. But it's the the bandsmanship wasn't there. Whatever he can play is in isolation. He was off in his own little world. The key to the sound of that band was that everything was as tight as tight could be. Because at that speed, you can't afford anything to go wrong. You know, it's got to be really snug. And so um, what actually happened was everybody refused to contribute, but they also wouldn't accept that I'd already got, I think there's seven songs are in that folder, and then oh, tons of little bits that I wanted everyone to work on because I'm not a great keyboard player. I'm a terrible bass player. You know, there would just be holes left in some of my demos where I wanted a bass line that was cool because I would do something really, really weak. And we had a great bass player to do that for us. But uh, yeah, this sandbagging thing just went on and on. And it's all connected to this, the stuff I won't go into about what was going on and what was being said when I wasn't there. And it just caused bad feeling over bad feeling. And I believe John got his just desserts in the end because when it happened for him, uh, apparently sandbagged Paul Allender constantly as well. He wanted to be the star guitar player. He would actually say to me, you know your excellent bit of guitar here? Can I play that live? No, you fucking can. You do the cool stuff and you play it. And it turned out he hadn't contributed a cool guitar line. And so he made my life miserable. Oh, it was so difficult, Andy. He genuinely, you know, it's like in terms of guitar playing, like somebody had strapped a 40 kilo weight to your right hand and you're still trying to play. And everything you did, you had to consider playing downwards to him. So um, Jesus, he didn't play yeah. all of his guitars on cruelty. There were a couple of bits where he actually asked me to do one for him. And at that point, the engineers realized that might be the way. And I would pop in and use his stuff just to put the lines in so that they were in time. Ask Nick about John's fabulous timing. Because mm. uh, um, I nearly told you this earlier on about the writing. John's one contribution 
to a group effort was, uh, I don't think Nick will mind me telling this story. It doesn't show him in a bad light. <laughs> and I apologize to him ahead of time if it does. He is a friend of mine, and I tell this because it is funny, not as a criticism of Nick in any way. When we were writing Cruelty, it was all, it was really happening. It was fizzing away, and there were loads of ideas floating around to the extent that it was actually somebody had to curate it. We all kind of monitored these little parts that we had and the things we wanted to happen, and they grew into one giant thing. And uh, Nick announced when we were taking a break, John, you haven't written anything yet. If you don't write something by the time I get back from McDonald's, I'm going to kick your fucking head in. And uh, we didn't know whether he meant it. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. <laughs> but me and Dan took it upon ourselves. During our, uh, this kind of half hour we were taking just to chill out before we went back to rehearsing, um, John, you must have one idea. Because if you wind Nick up, he's going to argue with you. It will spoil the Atmos and rehearsal is over for the day and we're doing really well. And so I got to the point where we said, well, how do you write music? I said, pick a chord, pick a damn chord there. Now, if it was me, I might play this one next. And Dan even was cheering him on. Going, Come on, John, just do something with the guitar. And we wrote a riff with John, but he didn't really contribute to it. Yet he wanted to be the center and the star and everything. So it was totally, his world was totally incompatible with what was going on. And uh, that is as true as you like, mate. Uh, he did have a riff when he came back, but essentially it was me and Dan saying, no, like this, like that, where I wouldn't play it for him. I would suggest from the other side of the room because our guitar amps faced into each other. That way he could walk back and forth and hear if it was working or not. And uh, yeah, Nick didn't kick his head in. That riff is a sort of battery style riff, as we used to call it, mm -hmm. which is in 13 Autumns and a Widow. But uh, he did try and contact me when he got fired or whatever he did. I don't know the story, but... Unless he leads with a massive fucking apology, I, there is no chance of me speaking to that dickhead ever again. Jesus, okay. So I won't tell you yeah. what the message said, but he caused, I would say, pretty much all of the bad feeling in that band that caused all that chaos in the late 90s. So, and underhandedly as well. So you know, why, it was all why didn't bullshit. Danny just kick him out of the band then? I mean, if you were, especially oh, the way... Oh, did threw him out. That's why he's not on some of the songs on Cradle to Enslave. He was dead weight. He's a, he's a parasite. You know, he was there. Um, Nick, actually, the first time I thought that was the wrong thing to do, on the Dusk tour mm. um, in Holland somewhere, I couldn't tell you what town, but we played a show, and me and Nick would do our, we're in Holland's after show 30 minute, and then go out and say hello to anybody that wanted to talk to us. And we, he went out first and came back and said, you've got to come and see this, because if I tell you what's happening, you'll call bullshit on it. And I went out, and John was holding court, telling everybody uh how he nailed that guitar solo and Beauty Slept in Sodom to all these adoring fans. And Jesus, so we actually yeah. had to bollock him in front of people who said, I thought that's what they wanted to hear. And I was happy to accept that. But it went on and on and on. And I didn't want him to not be there. I wanted him to pull his shit together and play properly and contribute. And if not contribute, accept that I've already written, I write for two guitars all the time, even with my band now where it's only one guitar player. Um, mm -hmm. I just wanted him to understand that I've already got this patch, play the damn part, it will sound awesome. And uh, yeah, that was really, really the big issue with that band ultimately was John's weird behavior. So he wasted endless hours of energy on something that could have been sorted out by 30 minutes of hard guitar practice every day. You know? just, it sounds like he's got a personality disorder 
um, it sounds like as though he wants to, you know... Um, I, I had some unwelcome work. glimpses into his psyche because we used to spend a lot of time together. And uh, I, I, I'm not an expert, but maybe you're right. Um, but he's unique in his behaviour. I've never seen anything else like it. Because, of course, John joined when there was money there and we weren't poor all the time. We weren't rich. But we didn't have to go and lie to the job centre and we didn't have to, you know, be poor. There was yeah. some cash there for us to live on. And John never did the playing to eight people in Stoke. And not the horrible stuff, but the stuff where you just think, well, that's the nature of it. We're here, so are eight people. We'll do it anyway. At the Tuesday it nights in front of, of virtually, things. I've played gigs where I've played in front of nobody except for bar staff, so I know exactly what you're saying. And they're the nights when yeah. you really earn your – they're the nights when you don't question your the reason why you're doing what you're doing, but they really do make you appreciate even being able to play in front of eight people. You know, yeah. those nights there. But you need them, don't you, unfortunately? As a, I'm, I'm a working musician these days. I get paid to play. And, um, look, we all love playing in front of the biggest crowds that we possibly can, but it's about a 50-50 split for me. Um, but for you guys, playing in front of adoring fans and having somebody claiming credit for the wonderful work that you've done, I can completely understand why you wanted to exit a scenario like that. I mean, what else can oh, you do? I didn't exit. I was forced out. I, I didn't want to go. I had all this material for the next record. It was not on me in the end. Um, an issue that arose that kicked it all off was um, it was irrelevant. I'm not even going to tell you. It was, it was unpleasant. But whatever changed where me and Dan were no longer friends made it very, very difficult. And John had a hand in that with his bullshit, essentially. Mm. You know, uh, I'd love to be able to say something nice about him. As a person, he was all right. He wasn't a bad guy to hang out with. But, um, yeah, he's a funny one. Can you excuse me just for two seconds? I've You're got right. to go out yep. the door. I'll be straight back. You're right. No worries. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, still here, mate. Yeah. yeah, sorry about that. Unimaginative postman. No, it's all good. No, that's all good. No, look, yeah. I really appreciate your candour and your frankness and sharing all of that. Mm. I can't imagine it would be easy all these years later. Um, if it was about settling scores, I could have done that years ago. That's not what I'm doing. It's, I feel sad that that album never got made because in reality, unless something really changed, I was only doing that one more album than going anyway. And it was sad for me to think like that. I loved playing in that band. And, uh, yeah, it's just, you could list 10 things that could have been done differently that might have changed it. But ultimately, I was pushed out, I was sacked, and Les was appalled at my treatment because he knew damn well it was me that was constantly working. Hmm. So um, the whole thing is on John trying to achieve some status. So, fuck him. If he, I don't think he's ever tried to message me since. That was about three years ago. Yeah, and, okay. Uh, yep. And in reality... He wasn't that crucial core of a band that he wanted to be. Whatever he contributed was very samey, and we used to spend a lot of time tweaking his parts. We didn't stop him writing. We wanted everyone to write. But uh, he was just, it was the sandbagging, mate. Why would you do that? Even if you just accept he is a parasite and that band was his meal ticket, why would you try and change that? 
he got the best easy ride in the world. You know, I think and, some and people get envious. Songwriting with him. But I think from my own experience, not just in bands, but I've just finished up a tenure as a uh, working for a large telecommunications company here uh, called Telstra. And even in a, whether you're in a band or in a corporate environment, if you've got a great idea, somebody's very envious because you've got that great idea and it's not even that they didn't think up of it. They just don't want you to have a good idea. Sometimes it's as yeah. simple as that. And I think that's why I mentioned, that's why I mentioned, sorry, that he may have had a personality disorder because I've met plenty of these people over the years and it just comes down to that, that's, that sense of lack that they have. Really? I mean, yeah, a, maybe, maybe. A, a good idea for him would have been to just take his spot in the back seat and just go along for the ride. Jesus, I'm a bass player. I know all about that. Yeah. I didn't want him in a back seat. I wanted him to contribute because it gave us that much more power. And, mm. but, um, yeah, it was, it was his silly behavior that caused most of that friction. And because he was saying one thing to one person and one thing to another, it just exacerbated the whole issue. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's tragic because in a parallel universe, maybe that album got made. It would have been, a thousand times more powerful than Midian. I would have been totally comfortable doing a Clive Barker concept record because there were no lyrical themes on that record yet. They were totally open to interpretation. They're not, mm. you, could, you couldn't listen to it and say, that's a Craig or Phil song. But if I played you the equivalent demos that went for Cruelty, you could see the connection. You could see how they'd grow because I didn't want to be the center of something. I wanted to be on this mega team of everyone pulling at the same time. Mm. Well, and that was the thing. Yeah, I, look, I, I had a discussion this morning with um, one of my um, newly minted bandmates, and he's the drummer, and uh, it's his band along with the singer, uh, both excellent musicians and um, certainly got their heads screwed on the right way, but they've been sharing with me that they've been, and I've just been recruited into the band, that they've been having issues with guitarists. And um, look, I just said, I've, I've, I've held my own band, I've chaired my own bands, and I've created bands and had relationships with, with agents and um, therefore the venues and the like, and it's bloody hard work. And I just, I said to uh, Gary even this morning, I said, look, it's probably best that it's yourself and the singer Kelly in the band that I'm in. And look, over time, I hope that I become a part of the Inner Sanctum, but I realise I've got to do some work to get there. But just have a coalition of the willing around you. It's very hard to have it, even Stevenson, to be a not a fully democratic process, but a process where people contribute evenly. Now, we won't ever really have that problem because in the band that I'm a part of, we're playing covers music, but I can totally understand from the perspective that you think, well, more creative hands are going to produce better music or better quality music or certainly more music, um, that you'd want to take that attitude, particularly in a band like Cradle of Filth, where really it was very open-ended. I mean, especially uh, on evidence that you did the Misfits cover on the from the Cradle to Enslave EP, you could almost have gone almost in a punky direction as well, couldn't you? So there was that full-blown bombastic symphonic edge. You know, you've yeah. alluded to the fact that, that there was that riff that Gian brought in that almost sounded like a Norwegian or a, or a Scandinavian uh, black metal uh, opening. Uh, what was the, the second song? Or, well, no, it's the first proper song that's not an instrumental on Cruelty and the Beast. There are so many different directions that the band could have gone. And that's what I think I loved about Cradle of Filth now that I'm talking to you about it. You couldn't... Yeah, sure, you got the whole black metal thing, um, but really you were just a great heavy metal band. And therefore, on that basis... Well, that's how I understood it. It doesn't matter what colour it comes in. Heavy metal is like a cockroach, mate. As long as there's bored teenagers and cheap guitars, there will always be heavy metal of some kind. You know, you can stamp on that cockroach all you want. It just keeps coming back with a different name. Yeah. And that, I get a kick out of it. It's not there's no good new music for me to listen to. It's just it's harder and harder to find. So, uh, 
But yeah, the, the phrase you used, the coalition of the willing, what an excellent way of describing it. It never bothered me one bit if anybody else brought an idea in because suddenly I could do something different because you're not building the foundation. You're interacting with people. Mm. You know, the, uh, that, the song Mouth Through the Looking Glass, I didn't write any of the initial parts. What me and Nick did was get those initial parts and play them how we play them, and that's how that song runs. You know, I put the melodies on the, the slow part, but that was Rob's part that he brought in. And so, yeah, it was. It's a, a funny time. I've always threatened to write a book because some of this stuff. I think you I need say, to, mate. Yeah, there's, there's no, yeah. no. Well, it sounds like bullshit when I say it out loud, but I promise you, some of those things really happened. You know, well, all those bizarre stories that still come up, the being thrown out of the Vatican. The truth of that one will come out eventually. Yeah. Um, you know, that was actually my fault, and I've never had the balls to tell the whole story. But one day, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'd, I'd encourage you to write a book because I think it'd be fascinating. You're articulate. You you stand within your own truth on these matters, and um, you're a very you're an integral part of two very important important albums. Um, so, mate, yeah, I mean, look, it's these days you can self publish. I mean, you and you know all this stuff. I'm not telling you anything you know, but you don't know. But yeah. um, you can self publish, and mate, I think you'd have quite a readership out there. Well, maybe even I, I would prefer to get a writer to listen to me and Nick and Les because, of course, Nick's there from the first album onwards, I turn up a year and a bit after that. And they were, they were cool. You know, the sense of camaraderie Nick always brings up, making the Vampire EP, because none of us had anything. So we were all just poor in this unheated studio, getting on with it as best we could. We had no preconceptions. The guy who gets the production credit, he wasn't really a producer, we realised now he's an engineer. And he was at no point saying, well, how about, and can we, and this is how, and mm -hmm. making it go forward like a guy like Kit or Mike Exeter would. Um, yeah, and that, that it needs doing. It doesn't matter because there was always that idea of everybody shares everything. I thought it would stay like that where everybody would be comfortable with it and just muck in when they needed to. You know, I'm a terrible keyboard player, but if somebody needs to play some extra keyboards and I'm the person that's there to do it, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, you just do what you like say. Do what you got to do to get the job done. Yeah, no, I totally, I can yeah, understand that. Yeah, I, I always guessed people like you didn't give a fuck how it happened. You just wanted it to happen to have your next record that you wanted. And because uh, as a metal fan, that's what I want. I wanted that next album for my favorite band. That, like Iron Maiden, there was on a sort of 18 month turnaround. And you knew there was a new record coming before it was announced. You start yes. getting excited and mm. get your hopes up for it. And Maiden especially, they would normally cash them in beautifully for me. You would always get the records you wanted back when I was a teenager. And because I took them on they were like my, one of my first metal bands. My older sister had a copy of the first album that she gave me when I first got a record player. But the first one that was released as a fan was uh, Somewhere in Time when I was about 12. That's my favourite album. And I was very this, lucky. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I got to see them on that tour. It was great. And I watched them every tour till Bailey. That's not a criticism of him. I used to go and watch Wolf Spain. They were great. I really like his solo stuff that he's done after Iron Maiden, but it's the front man for Iron Maiden that just didn't do it for me. Totally agree. Don't know, I don't know what happened there at all, and, and I think a lot of people would love to get the full story on that one there because Steve has never really, Steve Harris, that is, sorry for anybody listening, uh, has never really come out and explained his decision, what with the volume of excellent singers that were available and certainly would have no doubt wanted to join Maiden. I think in Wolf Spain, Blaze was pretty good. Um, I think he's very good in his solo material. I think he gets it completely right. But 
I have no idea what Steve was thinking, uh, particularly when it came down to Virtual 11. I'd almost describe that album as unlistenable. It just sounds like a cardboard cutout copy of the wonderful... Is that the one with Falling Down was the lead single? No, that's um, The X Factor, which I thought was okay. I, I, could, I could give him that. Um, but a lot of people like to blame Yannick in, for the way Maiden sound through the 90s. And I, I think a lot of the best songs were written through the 90s by Yannick. I think if Yannick wasn't in the band, my God, I don't He's know He's a great guitar player. Great guitar player. Do you ever hear the um, new wave band he was in, White Spirit? No, I haven't. Just no. by freak chance, I had. This is Yannick Gares when he was probably like 19 or 20. He was a great guitar player back then, and it's that same vibe he's got. Um, they're not my favourite records, the, the Bailey ones. But he, when he contributes, he's a great guitar player. You know, I probably couldn't pick one of the Iron Maiden guitar players that was my favourite. It was the... The, the whole thing that was Iron Maiden was now what that, I enjoyed. that really interests me because I had you pegged as an Adrian Smith guy because, in my view... Out of push, yes. But yeah, in my view... What made me want to play guitar was the solo from Prowler. Oh, well, that's Dave, isn't it? Which I believe is Dave Murray. Dave Murray, yeah, I'm pretty sure that one is. But in my view... Adrian symbolically handed the torch to your good self through the 90s. So when Maiden started checking out the 90s, Cradle stepped up and you in particular took that torch from Adrian because I can hear a lot of Adrians in your play. <laughs> the high praise keeps on coming. I couldn't have asked for a nicer thing for anybody to have <laughs> said about me. I've always loved the melody that you had. You know, the, the lead in, oh, Stranger in a Strange Land. Yeah, totally. How beautiful, how utterly beautiful. But my favourite Maiden records are the first one because it was my first Maiden album. I love Seventh Son. There was something about that record. You know, the way it holds together, yeah, there's no well. yeah. flab on it. The instrumental break in the title track is exemplary. You want to understand why metal is great. Mm. Listen to that tune. And if you can get, you know, even the people who can't get past how, it was kind of prog for Maiden, wasn't it? I mean, it was much less direct, much more, yeah, you it could was hear like much a, more thoughtful. a Uriah Heap thing and a Deep Purple thing happening in there. But that instrumental break in the centre of that is so powerful. I played it to my son when he started listening to music and his mouth was just open. He'd never heard anything like it and he'd heard Maiden before. But yeah, the, the raw power of that band and probably Agent Smith if I had to pick a favourite. Because of those melodies, I can remember having a VHS tape of the promo of Strange in a Strange Land and pausing it to try and see how you played that beautiful melodic break in the I did the same thing, yeah. I know yeah, exactly I was what probably saying, in my yeah. 20s by the time I nailed it. Yeah. You know, and it's, I'm a guitar geek. It's, uh, it's one of those things I don't mind saying that I used to sit there and play over all my favourite stuff and try and work out how it was done. Well, but, I can, uh, I I can hear a lot of that so phrasing. Much. Yeah, I think it's come through big time then because I can hear a lot of that phrasing. So if, if, I'm, if I'm significantly influenced by you as a guitarist and I can hear – and now I've got – it was just one of those random things. I remember being into Maiden before, of course, Cradle because they've been around a lot longer. And, and I remember really being into um, Adrian's playing and then hearing yours and thinking, shit, it's, it's almost the same thing. It's just coming from the same school, but, of course, it's, it's this – X-rated version of New Wave of British Heavy Metal that Cradle were doing. You know? <laughs> you know? That's a great way of saying it. Uh, to be fair, you'd have to add Glenn Tipton in because I, I can see Glenn mm. Tipton then Adrian Smith. You know, that, the, yeah, the really melodic well. priest yeah. solos, I think, contributed to what Adrian Smith was doing as much as Adrian Smith contributed to what happened after him. Um, you know, one of my all-time favourite leads is from Turbo Lover. It's not okay. yeah. very scary technical guitar playing, but you can... The melody just goes straight in, and it is really aggressive as well. I know that's a sort of 
I'll get thrown out of the Priest Fans Alliance for saying that I like the Turbo album. I think it's one of their strongest songs, weird production or no. I think people are coming around to that album now, though. Yeah. Oh, I've threatened to cover it a couple of times, but I haven't got the voice for it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Rob has either. I just want to play that solo live. (laughs) Well, um, yeah. All those guys, you know, my favourite guitar players, first song I could play all the way through was Holiday in Cambodia, um, followed by Iron Man. It's it, you. Every, every guitar player is a sum of those early influences. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Because East Bay Ray was one of my primary influences as well. Him and Mantis um, were, um, were, you know, I love the way he plays guitar. On um, one of the first songs I ever heard, where I went, "That's the guitar playing that I wanted to play." Like was um, Chicken Chicken Formist off Bedtime for Democracy. Yeah, yeah, it's great. The, I always love the intro of Police Truck. Nice, yeah, yeah. yeah nice. So it's that, it's, there's a sort of eerie, sinister quality to his guitar playing, where he's you a can good hear guitarist. It and go, that's that's like um an up new wave sort of vibe. Yeah, and then you hear it again, and you think, fucking, hell, it's really, really creepy what he's doing. And it, like the the octaves at the beginning of Holiday in Cambodia, I just stumbled on how he made that sound and caned it over and over again till I could play the tune. He used to cover it with my friends when I was young. It's uh, yes. but it all goes in and it all stays, but it's always melody for me. It is, yeah, it's it really, is yeah. really frightening guitar playing. When I was young, I used to practice all the time. I'm, I was so much faster when I was 19 than I am now. But it's because I, I have adjusted what I want to achieve. I don't want a little gold star for being the fastest. I want somebody to whistle it on the way home. Yeah, yeah. And what about um, some of the – I'm being a bass player. I'm a massive fan of uh, Mark King and Level 42. Did you get into any bands like Level 42, Psychedelic Furs and Psychedelic Furs? I can't see the joint, but Psychedelic Fairs, I always loved that tune, Pretty in Pink. I've never heard anything else by them. But that's a kind of, it's one of those songs that's a, that's a time and a place that used to get played. Being from a small town, there wasn't a rock pub and a punk pub and a reggae pub. There was just one big place where they played all that music over the, the PA on a busy night. Hmm. And so I remember Pretty in Pink, and it just reminds me of hanging out with my friends down by the ocean, like we always did. Well, I love Psychedelic Fairs. They're in... in all honesty, they played a gig up where where I'm from in Queensland, uh, Coolangatta, in in 2006 to about 30 people, and it's probably one of the best gigs I've ever seen. Actually, it didn't it didn't it was Rich the Butler brothers were playing, but they had a very good lineup then, and Jesus, they put in a great show. But the question I wanted to ask you is, I've, I've also and and do check this out. There's a guitarist called Boone Gould who was the early guitarist or the guitarist through the 80s in Level 42. I find a lot of your guitar playing sounds similar to his as well. Now, completely different genres, wow. and the like. But I'm hearing. I'll it check and- it out. I've always had a bit of an aversion to Level 42, not because of the band or their music. But because, and you might even know this guy's name, one of my contemporaries who's from the same part of the world as me is like the world's leading expert on Mark King. And genuinely, when we were teenagers, you could say to him, if you mention Mark King or Level 42 in the next 20 minutes and slam your head in the door, he would say, but Level 42, he's called Stuart Clayton. And he's, he no, knows no, everything about yeah. that style. He's written books about Mark King's playing. He's, I mean, it's fantastic what that guy can do. But I've always joked with the bass players that I work with, if I see your thumb over that pickup, <laughs> you are fired. That's not that's not metal bass playing. I want you on the kick drums, and I want you to – all the space in between is yours, but you put your bass note on the kick drum, everything else I'll leave to you. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I will check it out. I mean, that's an interesting parallel. Yeah, the, just – Because the things I listened to when I was growing up that weren't metal was – I've always been like a secret electro-pop fan from the early 80s because that was like a in Britain more of a punk movement. Suddenly, people could afford synthesizers that couldn't play keyboards. They weren't the dude from ELP. 
they were just like hitting stuff. And so early human league, I really got into fab gadget and all the punk tunes, like the ruts that we used to hear down the pub. Hmm. Where as much as I loved Iron Maiden, the, the degree of energy, that tune Babylon's burning. Again, when I hear that, I'm right back at that weird bar with the open back facing out over the sea with hmm. no fence between us and the cliff. It's surprising most of us are still here. Jesus. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was it was one of those things. All music goes in. I'm forever saying this to my peers and my students. You can't pick your influences because if you say, one of my students said, I hate Coldplay. Well, Coldplay now influence you in a negative way. There are negative influences. So I guess level 42 might be a negative influence on me because <laughs> Stuart never stopping talking about them. And yes. the Smiths, I, can't, I was like a closet Smiths fan. I always felt weird talking from that. Johnny Marr, yeah. Actually, the beginning of Meet is Murder is more disturbing than a lot of death metal records. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, Johnny, Johnny Marr was the guitarist, wasn't he? He's gone on to have yeah. a, a tremendous solo It wasn't career. the guitars, it was Morrissey. Uh, his lyrics I, I find really engaging. And I actually think he did his best work as a solo artist. So no, don't tell the Smiths fans where I live and bricks through no, the window. No, I, I tend to. I, I we have very similar views, I think, on things, and I tend to agree with you on that. I think the Smiths had a, one good record, but it was you know you could tell there was a lot of drugs and debauchery going on at the time, and I think he sort of straightened himself out and started to produce more coherent music as a solo artist. Yeah. Now one of the most beautiful lyrics I've ever heard is Morrissey. I couldn't tell you the name of the song. I didn't have it in my iPod somewhere. And he says, you've never been in love until you've seen the sunrise behind the school for the blind. And that's a picture right there. And it's a unique one. You know, that's, that's him. He's not talking to us in common metaphors. He's just telling his listener. He's, he's quite conversational, his style. It's like he's talking to you, some of his lyrics. And uh, yeah, that, that level of beauty just engaged me. I, I, I have a great friend who used to hang out in the same bar as me. He was as goth as I was metal. And we learned to listen to each other's music. So he gave me... Killing Joke and Sisters of Mercy and Bauhaus and bands like that. And I got him listening to Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden and Slayer. And, you know, it's a great way to be. Segregation of music is uh, is a bad thing. There are too many little genres now, not enough crossing over. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and you mentioned in Bauhaus. I'm so glad you do mention them because I love especially Peter Murphy's solo stuff. Um, yeah. would, you, would you say that had an impact on you? Uh, musically, or was it more of an aesthetic? Oh, no, it's the music. It's, uh, um, I mean, back then, it was more you experience the album cover as you pick it up from your friend's collection and put it on. But you know, Bella, The Ghost is Dead is a great tune. And I loved the, the guitars on it because they were like Killing Joke. They were like metal through the looking glass. They were going to be the, the same thing as the metal mention. guys. Yeah. 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 Oh, Killing Joke were a bigger thing for me. The, the guitar playing on Killing Joke went right in Discharge. That was another band that I used to play down at that bar. And still listen to Discharge now. And, you, you know, I definitely take influence from what that guy did. Was it Bones was his name. I think so, yeah. I wasn't didn't so, quite get into Discharge. Yeah, all, all I remember them for was the um, Glam album, like the LA Gun style album they came out with in 1985 or 86. Not that I, was, I wasn't old enough to yeah. remember. I was too young back then, but I, I read I, quite I've a bit of I've actually never heard it. They were, again, they were records that you could pick up in the second-hand store. And I think I saw a shot of maybe Metallica or Slayer wearing a Discharge shirt. And so for a quid, I could take home a copy of Hear Nothing, See Nothing. And it yeah. hit me very hard, that one. Because I'm, I'm not a metal fundamentalist. I don't think it all has to come from Black Sabbath and Deep Purple to begin with. It's, like I was saying, it's this cockroach thing, bored teenagers doing things too loud. That's where that sound comes from. And so, uh, yeah, there was a lot of, lot of different music went in. 
Mm-hmm. And we had our, we're so far away from the city. We had our own local heroes, like a punk band that uh, some people have heard of. I met people around the world who knew this because I used to wear a little Cult Maniacs pin on my jacket when I was uh, touring. Right. They were a big thing for me. I still, you know, they were never huge, but they had an impact on the guys around here because they were so fucking noisy. They were so out of order. They were just, uh, in the conservative days of the 1980s, the Cult Maniacs and later the Vibe Tribe were crucial for me to see how little they gave a fuck of what anybody thought of them. <laughs> and they did mm. it anyway. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it all goes in. Even just having the radio on, stuff will go in. So uh, it's hard to pick out influences. We all have our favourites, but probably, I, if you kept pulling out bands, I'd probably say, well, I love the guitar playing on X, whatever it is. You know, and it's yep. quite easy for me to pull out things that I hated about guitar playing. When I was young, I hated the Eagles. I had to learn to appreciate the Eagles fairly oh, recently. I had to, um, when I first started getting guitar and bass lessons back in the early 90s, I had a guitar I had a guitar teacher who was obsessed with the Eagles, so guess what I had to learn? Um, and I, I, mean, I hated them A bad them experience too. of the Eagles, like Hotel California, right? That's like, it's, it's in my top 10 things I prefer never to hear again. Mm. But, um, you know, tunes like Take It to the Limit, if you're a songwriter, you just go, how, how fucking clever is that? That sounds oh, like a basic country tune. It's actually really happening at a musical level as well. Well, I think one of these nights, I, th- I think now yeah. is one of the best songs ever written because of the moving, grooving bass line that he put underneath it and the wonderful vocal cadence that he's got. Um, who, who Was that Glenn who sang that one? I, it was one of the two of them. Oh, I'm not an expert, mate. I'm, ju- I'm just an end user of the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. But, but I, I actually saw them. Thank God I did, actually. I did see them when they came to Brisbane, and um, they were pretty good. They were pretty good. They weren't too bad, actually, and I'm, I'm glad I did because it was only a couple, a matter of a few months later that Glenn passed away. Yeah. You know, so that's yeah, I would, It's one of those bands where there's a few times I thought, I'll go and see them next time, like Queen. I'll go and see the next tour. And, of course, never got to see it. It would have been interesting. Oh, God. Because I, I think, thing, yeah. talking about it now, the Eagles used the same tools as some of the metal bands, the lovely harmony guitars they were famous for. Hmm. But what it didn't do was go right through you like an ice pick, like some of the harmony breaks Iron Maiden would pull together. And I think it was a sense of disappointment. I was hearing that recognisable sound, but not understanding that they, they weren't trying to scare the piss out of the first 10 rows with their evil metal. They were doing something different. It was more inclusive, less confrontational than a heavy metal sound. Mm. But um, I have my students to thank for this, doing deep studies of the Eagles and the Beatles and all the stuff I didn't get when I was young. Some of it stays I don't get. But... Uh, you know, I understand why the Beatles were a big thing for people of that era. And the big one, of course, one of my students who sadly passed away this year, huge Fleetwood Mac fan. I had no idea Fleetwood Mac had a life before that self-satisfied cocaine-induced AOR stuff Steve, that was on the yeah. radio when I was growing up. Mm. Peter Green is now one of my favourite guitar players. Well, I, I so was going to say. And so beautiful when he plays and so angry when he goes that way. Well, it's uh, Lindsay Buckingham's one of the best guitarists I've ever seen live, actually. Um, oh, funny, he's he's a great player. I appreciate them now, and it's through my students again having to learn. Um, oh, what is that guitar line that comes up every few years? There's one that's really involved. His big love got like a frighteningly oh, fast finger pick intro. Yeah, yeah, I can't. I know the one you're talking. I'm not that big. I I make a point of seeing these bands when they come through town because. They're all dying, you know. The, you know, we, we, and I think, well, if I don't go and see him now, and I've, uh, to that point, I've just missed out on bloody Paul McCartney tickets. The stupid ticketing right. system um, didn't quite work, so I missed out on that. So either they're going to do another release, or I'll miss out. And they're playing the SunCorp Stadium, which is our major football stadium here. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think I've missed out on that, which is a shame because I think 
I mean, I can only imagine that Paul imbibed as much of uh, yeah, the illicit substance types that his contemporaries did. And I've noticed with uh, Mrs. Bowie and Kilmister that it tends to get you tend to get into your 60s if you've been doing those things through your 20s and 30s, and that's when your life tends. That's when your your heart sort of goes, yeah, all of that stuff yeah, you did yeah. 30 years ago, no good, no good whatsoever. No, no. So even David Bowie is something I grew up with because my sister loved David Bowie. But um, she was very much about contemporary music being fashionable. And so her cast-off Bowie albums, I was always three or four years behind. I used to love songs like um, Ashes to Ashes. You know, I still listen to that mm. one regularly, the Ziggy Stardust album. Um, he's one of those... He was doing his own thing with a degree of authority that most people will never match. And I don't think he'd go to shit what anybody thought. No, he I was think never he was... playing to the crowd, that guy. He was, um, I spoke to Glenn Hughes recently, who's just a legend. You obviously know Glenn Hughes. He's a wonderful bloke. He's a friend of a friend. I've never heard anything bad about Glenn and apparently has some of the most hilarious stories in the world. He, he Look, he does. And, um, well, the short story that he shared with me was a David Bowie story. And it was about Bowie coming into his house and going, Glenn, no, 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 no. You've got to throw out all of these clothes. And you've got to start all over again and reinvent yourself. That's what you've got to do. And I think that was at a time when Glenn probably needed some needed some good friends around him by his own admission, as he uh, wow. said to me on the phone that he doesn't remember the 80s. It's not the 60s he doesn't remember, it's the 80s that he doesn't remember. And I think that's the yeah. period where his friendship blossomed with David. I'm, I'm just imagining that that's the case there, not, not saying it was like that. But, um, yeah, David um, David's very special to me, actually, because we um, when my wife and I got married, we um, the bridal waltz was As the World Falls Down from the um, movie Labyrinth. Oh, yeah. And... It's funny, I collaborated on a, a version of a Labyrinth song with a guy from Australia recently. Oh, what song was that? Um, Within You. Yeah, gosh, that's great. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, he just came out of nowhere with it. And it was, I just rebuilt my studio. That was the first chance that I had to rag out all the new equipment. Whether it has a future as a project, I don't know. He keeps threatening me with some original music to put around it. But it was an interesting one. Again, it's like... When you're, you're learning songs as a guitar teacher, you see them on a sort of, for want of a better word, forensic level. Hmm. And you can kind of see the fingerprint of the songwriter. And I, I, I've never looked it up. I suspect that's Bowie writing with somebody else. It's a very, very strange song. Or even if it was written to picture, because it's the dramatic scene with the, uh, the impossible stairways, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the stairways. I never saw the movie yeah. once. Uh, my little sister loved it. And uh, so I think I watched it on VHS with her when we were kids, and that was my one contact. But this guy that I was chatting to, same as yourself, went to one of the shows in Australia and decided to, to contact me. He's, a, he's an excellent singer. Right. I, I wish I could tell you the name of the band he was in because apparently they did tour Australia and they had some movement going on. Uh, so it's not metal it's music he's playing, he's playing more... Um... Oh, no, it's metal. And it's a metal version of Within You that he requested. Mm, okay. Because well, uh, what fascinated him was what I would do with the string harmonies on a guitar. Because I said, well, you're gonna have, if you want the keyboard thing that they've got on the original, you can't ask me to do that. I'm not good enough with keyboards to perform it. And he said, no, I want you to tackle it with guitars. And so I just went at it, and he was thrilled. But it's, it wasn't finished, because it's just it's like a, a two-minute song. And so I asked him to build around it, start writing again, and uh, get him out of his retirement. Same as all of us. We have, uh, we have families now, and so there's, you can't get up at 6 a.m., work until 9, back to bed and then do your little writing bursts like I used to. It's kind of no. not formalized, but I do a couple of hours, six days a week, pretty much. And so I'm just waiting on him, actually. It'll be really exciting when I get to hear the rest of it because it will put it in a context. It's a band called um, Rose, Rose Scythe? No. They Is had it? a sort of generic black metal name. They were a generic black metal. 
Um, but I remember meeting this guy and chatting to him at the Melbourne show. And uh, our lives are similar enough. We always have plenty to chat about, and so we're mates now. But um, I welcome any collaboration. It's uh, very few yeah. people ever ask me to join in with things because guitar players grow on trees. You know, there's thousands of them. And of course, like the joke goes, how many guitar players does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> 99, except one, but 99 just stand there and point and say, I could have done that. Absolutely, man. Yeah. There are a million guitar players. And so it's always, <laughs> it's always a pleasure to be asked. To, like a German Gothic rock band asked me to contribute to the record that I was really surprised by. That again turned out to be a guy that I met touring Germany many years ago. Um, haven't heard the album yet, so I threw him some guitars. Apparently, they, they made the cut and they're on there. And then there's lots of early days projects that I'm on at the moment. Like, um, you know, Nine Prince is ongoing. I've started writing the second album. We have an EP and an album recorded. But the, the overwhelming disinterest of labels means it's slowed down because I'm going to release yeah, it myself. I think it's good mm-hmm. music and it deserves to come out because we're, it's a different thing than anything else I've ever done, not just because I'm singing, but because of. Um, me and Rob, the drummer, Rob Van Hughes, who is excellent in the same way as Barker is excellent and the same way that Adrian is excellent. The difference would be, Adrian, we didn't have a sympathetic thing. We had to verbally communicate a lot more. Where the bass player in Ninepence every now and then just says, it's like listening to binary when you two start. And we'll bash back and forth <laughs> in some sort of weird code. And it manifests as music. And I love playing like that. It's a different thing. And it's not a solo record. Somebody asked me, is it a solo? It's absolutely not a solo record. That is a band. In fact, I'm not afraid to say the heaviest tune, the best riff on there. All I did was write the vocal line. That was the rhythm section came up with everything else, and I loved yeah. it. It's yeah. great to be in that position, but there's a possible return to black metal, see if that works out. An old friend of mine wants to put someone like that together who's very, very good drummer, who you've heard, but I'm not dropping names until it looks like it might happen. Sure. Not yep. Barker, sadly. Yep. But um, you'll, you'll know the guy's name when it, uh, if it turns up. There's, I do production work I want to get back into doing. There's a great band that play with Nine Pencil a lot called Graviton, which is my best ever students band. And I'm looking forward, they're coming into the studio in the very near future. There is stuff, but it's all so early on. I, don't, I want to say I'm doing this brilliant thing because it's starting to happen, but it has to be not a, a commercial product. But want, I, I like, I listen to albums and I want to make albums. The modern let's do a single thing which, of course, is the same as the 1950s. It's nothing new at all. It doesn't appeal to me. I want to make a complete piece of work, and if yeah. you want to just play one song, you play it. Well, I think I your creativity make it flows. Yeah, your creativity lends itself to a unit or a body of work rather than a once-off. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, I've said no to lots of people to do a guest guitar solo, um, but I would always be up for collaborating with people on work or somebody like that um, dude from Melbourne just... Um, he gave me loads of adjectives like this and like this, but this song. And I just fired an arrangement together and did it. And we're still friends. So I must have done something right. You know, it's working with, and especially now with Dropbox, my excellent sidekick, I can be yeah, anywhere, anywhere. And collaborate with anybody where, um, you know, the audio files are universal now and it's getting easier and easier to do it. What do you use and to, to record? Like you're using Pro Tools, you've got a Pro Tools rig set up, or you use um, Logic? I've never liked Pro Tools, actually. I've always found the, sorry, not always, years ago, Pro Tools interface was very, very clunky. And because I was comfortable with Logic, I'm sure you know Logic will talk to TDM hardware. And so I got into Logic, and that's still what I use. Our album was done partially in a studio not far from here because they have the wickedest sounding drum room, recorded the guitars and the drums there. Everything else was done back at my little 
uh, workspace. So uh, it was a Mac with logic. It was, in fact, a G4, which I've had since 2001. And uh, that was its last job, was finish the Nine Prince album, then he can retire, and I'll replace you with something that, basically towards the end of the mix, it was working so hard. I said, one day I'm going to hit that little button, and it won't go bong, and I'll have to extract all the information from the external drives and be forced to change. So that was its last job, was doing the Nine Prince album. Everything else we've done is on my new Mac. So, uh, yeah, logic for me. I keep meaning to get back into Pro Tools, but like I say, the interchange of files, this black metal project will be one guy working on Windows with Pro Tools with me, with my Mac, and with Logic. And yep. as long as we stay on the same page, because he's a really good engineer as well, then uh, the files will just fly up and down the country until something happens and it's worth us meeting up. Yep. But we've been we, we realised chatting, we've been friends for 20 years and never actually played together, so now must be the time. But that will be, in his words, a barbaric old-time black metal sound, so I'm not sure where he's going with it. I'm going to let him drive for a little while and wait for my files to come through. I would love but to yeah, see uh, you do the full-blown new wave of British British heavy metal hog. I would love to hear a full album of just you, just as Jamie Justice says, just letting it fly, just bang out yeah. there, you know, full-on Adrian Smith-style lead breaks. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of it out there at the moment, but again... Oh, yeah, there's, there, there's a lot, but a lot of it is... As a fan of that music, not from the time, but as a secondhand record by like Trespass, mm. Venom, um, one of the wackier ones, Elixir. Always loved Elixir's first album, stuff like that. I'd love to do it, but I'd want to do it in a, a context with other people who are as enthusiastic and familiar with the music as I am. So that we can just be dogs for a week and go and yeah. play in this mode. Let's all sound like Angel Witch for 10 minutes and see what happens. <laughs> that kind of thing. But Maybe. I'd love to do something like that. I'd love to get back into doing twin lead guitars. But to take it back to what I was saying, honestly, I haven't done twin guitars since having to deal with John. It just sort of poisoned the well. It's about time I sorted myself out and found someone to play with. Well, so, I, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear that. You know, you remind me a little bit of, you know, Ralph Santola, the excellent guitarist that was in Deerside Obituary, Sebastian Bach's band. He's a Floridian bloke. Um, never yeah. met him. Know his name. I used to see the Deerside guys around at festivals. Yeah, well, he, but, uh, he. I think that was before his time. Uh, oh yeah, when you guys were yeah, when you guys sorry, when you were playing were the Hoffmans, definitely the brothers, the Hoffman brothers. Those the, guys uh, were crazy. Death Metal's answer to Kerry King and uh, Jeff Hanneman. Yeah, yeah. I uh, we, when we met them at festivals, me and Nick used to stand next to them because we looked like we weren't wasted then. <laughs> they were out of control completely. The whole I won't even get get into it. The stories are out there, I'm sure. Yeah, but they I've, were wild. I've, I kind of, I was always into Deerside. I, I do love death metal, and I've always been a big fan of Deerside's work. But I got to tell you, when the Hoffman brothers left, I thought, oh God, here we go. Who are they going to get in? And then they got in Ralph Santola, and the career-defining album for Deerside, I believe, is the album, first album that he appeared on, which was, um, you might have heard it, but the Stench of Redemption. The guitar solo no, is on that. I lost Deerside somewhere around Once Upon a Cross, I think. Well, the guitar. I was a huge fan. They were like a. They were one of those bands that my mates were into and I'd hear, but if I wanted Florida death metal, and another favourite album from my youth is Scream Bloody Gore and Slowly We Rock, mm. like sort of equal favourites of that style. I know they're very different, but as a Celtic Frost fan, it was, it was quite gratifying realising that Obituary were the next thing on well, with that they slow, were. grinding ugliness yeah. that they could produce. No blast beats so, for, um, John, is it John Tardy or Donald Tardy, the drummer? Yeah, that was his major claim to fame, I think, and he's all the, the band's all the better for it, actually. I, I do quite like Obituary, and they're a band that... I find that I can put on, and this might make you laugh, but I put them on around my kids quite a bit because they like to, we do this 
little circle pit thing around the living room. And, um, cool. you know, we do the um, the albums that uh, Ralph appeared on because I've, I've spoken to Ralph a couple of times as well, uh, interview and uh, over Facebook and the like. And um, I do love the albums that he appeared on with the, with Obituary. So I do put that on. And the other album that I quite like putting on is um, the album that everybody seems to hate is the Morbid Angel record, Illud Divinum Insanus. I don't know whether you heard that one, but um, that's a very no, big I departure for on... Oh, whatever starts with E, because they're alphabetized, aren't they, Morbid Angel Records? Yeah, I love Domination. Codes. I was there from their first album, really liked Oh, It Was a Madness. They lost me a little bit on Blessed of the Sick. Covenant was going my way. I really liked that one. But Domination, I think they, they just peaked out there. And whatever the album, Entangled in Chaos, it's a live album, isn't it? That's and right. And then Formula Fatal to the Flesh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, you know it. Yeah, they, they didn't do it for me. I wanted to hear where they were going after Domination. I didn't want them to take a step back. And around that time, I was lucky enough to chat to Trey. And what he was telling me was exciting. What happened wasn't yes. what he had in his head. And maybe eventually it comes around and he finally gets, I won't tell you what he said, but it was, it would have been a radical departure from Morbid Angel. And it would have been exciting to hear because you've got Sandoval playing the drums. You know, that is, lots of drummers I know don't like him. I think he's exceptional. It's that brutality that he brings to whatever he does, well, he, particularly he's, on Domination. He's the one drummer that inspires drum envy, really. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with you. He's an exceptional drummer. I think he and mm. Barker's very good, but with all due respect to, to Nick, um, Sandoval is just something else altogether. But I, I was speaking you to... You know, I think Nick would agree with you, mate. When you catch up with him when he comes to Australia, I'm sure he would ha tip a hat to Pete Sandoval. But I don't think he's better than Barker. I think Barker is different. He's uh, yeah because yeah. he, he, sometimes Nick would try and emulate those incredible kick drums, and he got it very close. But Nick's innate style is kind of like mine; it's embedded in eighties heavy metal. We're hmm. reconstructed metal kids from from provincial Britain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting. Gosh, uh, I won't press you on it, but I'd love to hear what Trey said to you because I did a profile, a two-hour profile of Trey's guitar playing. He's uh, there's a couple of guitarists that I, I really am inspired by. You're one of them, Trey. Uh, Ralph Santola in metal, you're the three. Um, wow. You know, in terms of, you know, and of course I'll add Adrian Smith to that mix there, but I did a two-hour profile, uh, the same radio show that I host that you will appear on, This our discussion here will appear on. Um, I did a two-hour uh, dissection, if you like, breaking down how Trey not so much approached albums but the evolution of Trey Exactoth. And you can, you, you don't so much hear a change in his style as you hear a change in the production with Trey. His style actually hasn't changed much from the album that was the demo album, I think no, it was yeah, called totally um, agree. Totally Abominations agree, of Desolation, I think it was called, the one that had Mike Browning from um, Nocturnus yeah, yeah. um, uh, instead of David Vincent on it, you know, which is a very primitive and raw sounding album. Um, but There's something going on there though, isn't there? It's, it's, it's got a thing. You know, yeah. I heard that long after I heard Altars of Madness, but it was, uh, yeah, there's something about that band and it's presumably that's, that's Trey's songwriting that's why i love domination they are songs where covenant especially right up until you get to namataru and god of emptiness right at the end mm. there are some amazing riffs on there oh it's, but it's, it's one of those records where it engages you but it doesn't leave you with anything too much and that's where domination got me songs like um oh it's the one barker used to play constantly he actually jammed the cd in a cd player in our tour bus and we had to listen <laughs> to it forever what, um, did, there was a double disc changer. He jammed Apocalyptic Raids and Domination by Morbid Angel. Oh, Hellhammer. Hellhammer, Apocalyptic Raids, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, I know those very, very well. It's called Where the Slime Live, that tune that he always used to just, it would send back a giddy, just the technical stuff that was going on in the drums. 
but it was the song that went with it. They were songs in the sense that you recognize with Iron Maiden. Mm. You know, they were they were cool back then. And I was lucky enough to see more with Angel a few times, and they live they changed really dramatically. Not in the the sound, but I suppose the clarity. Seeing them the first time for the Art of Madness tour was just it's like been put in a metal bin and hit with sticks for forty minutes. It was amazing. Yeah. Didn't know what had hit me. Just couldn't take it in. By the time I saw them on their Domination tour, which is actually when I got to meet Trey. Uh, Nick introduced me. He knew them from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they were, the clarity was incredible. And they've got a strange stage presence as well. They're very like Slayer. They just kind of get on with it as though nobody's there. There's not a lot of crowd interaction. There's none of what I call Wayne's Welding. They all join <laughs> and everybody's saying sort of shit. Yeah. But they were so engaging. It was one of the, is it the best death metal show I've ever seen? Could be. I mean, you have to count obituary with that because every obituary show I've seen has been... Been very good. I haven't... They're the one band. They've toured here a couple of times, but they're the one band I've missed out on seeing and I'm bloody kicking myself for missing them with Ralph. Um, Mm. You know, but but the tray, I think I've... I think I've distilled tray down to an essence. It might not be the definitive, um, if you like... um, summary of Trey's playing, but what I think he is is Eddie Van Halen thrown through a Jimi Hendrix, Hendrix blender in a death metal style. Now, that, to me, makes sense. I so can if- see that. The Van Halen thing, yes, absolutely. Because uh, Van Halen, you know, as a musician, I'm sure you appreciate that's a unique style he has. There is something... Oh, it's unimitable. You can't... Im- essentially you can't yeah. Van Halen about it. You know, you know, just to go against the grain again, I love his playing on 5150. He's so aggressive on that. There's another one of those records, Change of Frontman, rejuvenates the band never liked any of the other Hagar records but 50 on 50 the what is that tune the trans trem one get up uh, I have tried to play that a few times and I even borrowed a trans trem guitar to do it and to nail it how he has it is incredibly hard but yeah, yeah. I can see that because Trey's got that sort of train of thought thing going on especially his lead guitars where I think evidently they are planned but they never sound rigid it sounds like as though he's winging it, like as though he's going perilously close to losing control of what he's trying to do, but then he just brings it back. And I, I don't know how he does it. He's just in touch with something else. Maybe, you know, he goes on with all of that H.P. Lovecraft stuff, which I don't really understand, to be honest. Um, you know, all the ancient Sumerian, that's all part of H.P. Lovecraft's oh, imagination. I'm a huge Lovecraft fan. Well, you, discovered you, it when I was a kid. Well, you know what I'm talking but, about uh, then, but Trey t- I think Trey takes it deadly seriously. He thinks it's like something that is real. It's not fiction. And... Uh, yeah, I, I, I spent maybe half an hour talking to him, and he is a, he's an unusual character. I couldn't say I knew the guy, but we did have an interesting chat about guitar playing, essentially, hmm. which is how he got onto his plan for the future. And uh, yeah, it, maybe. But reality is a funny thing, mate. It bends and never breaks, but it will bend for you. <laughs> you know, we all have, everything is perception. It really is. It is. I had my yeah. life changed by my brother-in-law allowing me access to his library. And there were like 1,500 books there, and he just started picking out Sartre. And oh, what a great pile of books. John Paul Sartre, forget the one. It's the, um, the copy I have still. is the two negative faces facing into each other. And uh, Carlos Castaneda, the first of the Don Juan books, in the same pile of books. And they stayed with me forever, those things. So, uh Maybe I'm not quite as uh, straight up the reality as uh, some people think. So he's uh, Sartre is one of those existentialists, isn't he? Where you know, questioning what's what's. I wouldn't reality. even pretend to understand it. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, and Descartes. He gave him Descartes. This is how we got talking. Oh yeah, yeah. Was in a strange roundabout way. We watched that movie Dark Star, and he remarked that the do you know the movie the John Carpenter one? 
Yeah, yeah, the living bomb. Yep. He said he he talked about the finale. He's a big film buff. This guy, in terms of Cartesian logic, and that's why they arrive at I think therefore I am, and so he triggers himself, and uh, that's why we, he let me into his library to just start reading his books. So uh, yeah, Lovecraft was before that, but I've to thank for um, some of the really strange things I've read over the years. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think to some extent you're free to have your own reality. You know, mm. if, uh, if you turn the TV on, just to sound like some deranged old hippie now, somebody <laughs> is inflicting a reality on you via the news. You know, the world is a fucking joyous place and a horrible place at the same time. But the news would have it that it's a deeply, deeply unpleasant place at every turn. And the way it tells you how to feel about events bothers me greatly. I don't have broadcast TV in my house. My children watch Amazon or something like that to get the kids shows. Yep. And uh, I watch almost no TV that was made recently. I'm a big fan of old horror movies, old science fiction movies, Doctor Who geek, that sort of thing. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> having the streaming means we get to choose. And it was adverts, ultimately. My son, same as me, has Asperger's, which you're not supposed to say anymore. We have autistic, autistic spectrum conditions. And uh, when he was very young, adverts baffled him because we had to explain that when you're out shopping with your mother, uh, that powder doesn't get it whiter than that powder they just told you about on TV. And so we made the decision just to switch the broadcast TV off. Mm, okay. So yeah. um, my, my reality is different because I have Asperger's. I struggle with facial expressions. So I'm much more capable of speaking to you sensibly on the phone because I'm not constantly misreading your face. However, what I miss out on there, my bizarre memory I get in return. I was in my 30s before I accepted that my memory works in a strange way, the way that I can recall strings. That's how I think of it. Like you nudged me about the show in Sydney and then I could see the venue and then I could remember what happened the whole yeah, day. Yeah, you've remembered that clear as day. I've, yeah, when I spoke to Danny, I don't think he remembered it at all. I think he remembered, he actually, I had to actually remind him, but he only jogged his memory that he even toured Australia in 1997. Yeah. Oh, that was, it was a busy time. He had a, as much jet lag as I did. Uh, we were all a little bit spaced out because we were in Japan just before that, which is also great shows, especially Osaka. That was one of the, the best shows ever and strangest. There was uh, a couple of girls in the front row who had made finger puppets of all the members of Cradle of Filth, <laughs> and they were dancing in front. They were right in front of me during the show, and they had their hands up with three puppets each dancing along God, during the, the Japanese. shows. Yeah, I love the Japanese. Yeah, I, I, the, I was new, the new culture shock band was, was massive. The band I was in actually had a Japanese frontman, and the things he'd come up with after five beers were just the funniest things. He'd have us in stitches. We we yeah. go to a Chinese restaurant here at South Bank in Brisbane, and. Um, well, wherever we go, we go to a restaurant, and after five beers, the things that he would tell us. And yeah. I, I wasn't sure whether something got lost in translation, but no, what is completely batshit mental to my mate Massa, who's still a very good friend of mine, uh, was completely batshit mental to us, was completely normal to him. Um, yeah. He'd have us in hysterics. So, yeah, that doesn't surprise me in the least that you had a great time there. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody was so welcoming, and uh, lots of weird stuff happened. Ask Les about. Uh, visiting the English pub. I won't tell that story and he can't remember as much of it as me, I'm sure. But uh, we had a great time. And uh, yeah, that night was, it's the first time I've been to a country where I couldn't depend on being able to read road signs. It never occurred to me that it wasn't even the same alphabet. And so I got horribly lost in Tokyo and had a massive adventure wandering around the place on my day mm. off. Yeah. Everybody was super nice to us. They put flowers in your hotel room with little name cards from your record company. That's nice, uh, isn't it? I, I, I came like across that. one yeah, of those the other day. Oh, yeah, really? And yeah. uh, so 
all the people that I met, we got to play with Sai. They opened for us when we played Tokyo. That's a great I never thought I'd get to see Sai. Yeah. And I really, live, they are so different. The, where they do so much of that ostentation, is that the word? Uh, with the, the keyboards. What we saw was the three-piece Sai. And they were wickedly heavy. They were so heavy. Hmm. And uh, got to hang out with Mariah a little bit. He was a really nice chap as well. But the, yeah, the show in Osaka was just exceptional. Where... I think the first day we were there, everybody was, whatever, it was eight, nine hours off whack. And so I think I slept right through soundcheck and my guitar tech woke me up and pointed out there was a show in 90 minutes. <laughs> everybody else had tried to stay awake. Everybody deals with jet lag differently. Yep. And uh, yeah, they were good. I mean, they're, they're, we played lots of great shows back then. I mean, it sounds terribly arrogant, but there was a time when no other metal band could compete with us. Like, I wouldn't disagree. We attention. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I think, yeah, I think, I think when it would all sort of clicked for you guys, um, there was particularly in that era there, um, there wasn't a lot that could stand next to you. Actually, maybe Morbid Angel, um, Cannibal mm. Corpse. I think were were doing what they do. Um, uh, there was one. Keep going. You'll get to it. There was one band where genuinely we played a short tour with them. And we obviously become a little complacent on the first night. Me and Buck had a chance that they fucking kicked our asses and we got another six nights of this. Oh, was it, what was it, death, was it? I mean, Chuck was brilliant. So was it, did you tour with Dissection. Yeah, I've never been a big fan of Dissection. I don't know what it is. It's not, not because I love the Storm the Lights Bane record. That was, uh, that was definitive for the Swedish death black sound for me. And I don't think it's ever been equaled. I just think it's an amazing record. And I was thrilled to be touring with them. But we kind of took it for granted that we were headlining. And I think it was six nights we we got our asses kicked on night one. We had to call it a draw the next four. What pushed it over was the last night it was being filmed by their record company with all of their staff in attendance. And we made a point of wiping the fucking floor with them. Yeah, because too, we yeah. <laughs> and that's no disrespect to this action you know poor old John's no longer with us he's gone yeah he's um, gone. Did, also had an autistic condition that was never addressed I'm not on a mission but there were a lot of guys my age we went through school and we were just bad kids it never occurred to people that we might be wired up differently inside hmm. and uh, yeah, a lot of guys that I used to hang out with were varying degrees of this there's one who is utterly deranged and if his mum had taken him to a hospital earlier things might have been different for him it's a very strange Cawthon as well. Oh, is that right? Uh, I know. Well, I can't prove this, but a couple of guys I knew from Stockholm had met him. And the way they described interacting with him, I said, well, now that I know I'm wired up differently, not better or worse, just different, I can see how that interaction went. And then you, you listen to his music and it, it goes in in a different way to anything else, Bathory for me. Twilight of the Gods is actually unique in my record collection. That when I remember it, it's utterly different to how it actually manifests on the album. It takes a few seconds to absorb me into it. And uh, I think it's probably, we are wired up in a similar way. His imagination exceeded his skill by thousands of degrees. Yet he still put these amazing records together. They're some of my all time favorites. Hmm. You know, it's a, one of my favorite things that happened way back in the nineties was, uh, yeah, another one of those great days where I was doing something and Nick appeared very excited and said, you've got to come up on deck now. And we're on a ferry from Stockholm to Helsinki and uh, dragged me up on deck. It's freezing, as you can imagine. But he said, look, <laughs> and it was the islands from the front of Twilight of the Gods. And he had his walkman and he had one earphone each listening to Hammerheart. He said, well, that's, that's how it's done. Of course it is. That's how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> it was a beautiful thing. You know, one of those unique opportunities that we had. Because I'd yeah. never occurred to me where those islands were. But um, yeah, I, I won't go on about that sort of thing too much. But there are a lot of us wired up differently. 
Mm. You know, so everybody's different. And I'm lucky that it's not debilitating for me or for my son. But we do see the world differently. And I think Trey lives somewhere up that, we would say, up the rainbow somewhere. These guys, uh, we have different imaginations and different functions inside. Well, a bloke I, so, uh, I spoke yeah. to um, a few months back now was David Vincent. Um, obviously, I'm a big fan of Morbid Angel, so I'm a really big. I'm a big fan in particular of David and his work. I like his attitude. I think he's a good bloke as well. I think he's. I've never know, met him actually. Uh, look, he's the sort of bloke who doesn't take any shit. There's no doubt about that. You ask him the wrong question, he'll tell you. Um, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I think he's literally the only person that I've spoken to who's who's sort of said to me, "Hang on a sec, what are you what are you talking about?" That sort of thing. And I've, I've spoken to about 200 musicians and artists at this point. Um, but he, I made a reference to his, you know, he's going, okay, outlaw country is the correct terminology, I think. Yeah, but I, I said basically, I said your music sounds a bit like Johnny Cash, and I know that's a cliche. He goes, no, 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 I'll stop you there. I'll, you know, this American accent that he's got, this deep South American accent that he's got. Um, uh-huh. I don't think it's a cliche at all. And But look, he's, he's another bloke who stands within his own truth, and I think he's probably death metal's greatest front man. Um, he's, oh, possibly, yeah. He's probably, work with me here on this point, he's probably the only rock star in death metal. You know what I mean by when I say rock star, like that genuine David Lee oh, yeah. Roth charisma. He, he's got it. I think we have to have honourable mention for Jeff from Carcass at this point. Yes. Okay, I forgot about Jeff. Yeah, I never... He may have been rocking the same lines for the last 20 years, but he, he is a charismatic bloke. He really is. Yeah, that was a band that I used to go and watch when I was young. Again, a great show that I saw was the Heartwork Tour in a tiny little club. Hmm. And uh, I think last year I went to see the Revenge of Grind Crusher, or whatever they called it, where... However many years later, people have realised Heartwork was a masterpiece. I saw them in front of 100 people and then 3,000. And very different, but still great. And Jeff loves it. He just eats up that. The bigger the audience, the more he plays up to it. He's really good with that stuff. Well, they were a And he's not a mate. I'm not blowing smoke up anybody's ass. Uh, we used to say hello, but that's the end of it. I think he's a class act. He's every bit the rock star that Dave Vincent is. Okay, that's a fair point. Yeah, I just, I personally, and I just, it's, there's two bands that are significant that I miss completely, Cancer and Carcass. They're the two bands that I miss completely for whatever reason. It's just, you know, you can't get into all bands, but I've had a moment no, no. with just about every death and black metal band out there. Um, of course, there are some bands like Cradle that live well beyond that and who do make the dice. But um, yeah, for some reason, Carcass, I just missed it completely. Yeah. One of those things. I think... They were a band that my mates were into. They were early grind stuff. It was just there was a spare seat in the car. I'll come to the show with you. But when Heartwork came out, like, and this is just how I see things, if you're death metal or this metal or that metal or whatever it is, they're really great records. are just great heavy metal records. They go beyond that. And I think Heartwork is one of those. It's truly, you change one note on that, it can only be for the worst. That's a, exa- I feel the and, same way about Cruelty. It's, I understand exactly what you're saying there. It's such a good point. And it's something wow. Chuck Sheldini <laughs> used to, well, it's something Chuck Sheldini used to talk about. And I only really sort of, I, I, I understood what he was saying when I was younger, but I really get what he's saying now that I get older. Um, that whether you listen, I think he's got a famous quote out there, whether you listen to Death, Venom or Judas Priest, at the end of the day, it's all just metal. Well, when I was talking, when I was talking to Jeff, or sorry, I should call him by his, his stage name, Mantis in Venom, when I was talking yeah. to Mantis in Venom, I said, to me, Venom are just a great rock and roll band, and he, he, he couldn't have agreed more with that statement. To me, it's all just rock and roll. I get that it's, got, it's called heavy metal, and I get even further, it's called black metal or death metal or grindcore or what have you. But to me, you know, you, you, guitars, bass, drums, vocalists, it's virtually the same setup as what Chuck Berry was using back in the late 40s or early 50s. Absolutely it is. It's, you know, I say bored teenagers 
it will come out somewhere and it will have a new name in two years and then another name in seven years and on and on it goes. Like a, a favorite band of mine growing up was Soundgarden. I never knew they were grunge until maybe the third album they released after I got into them. They were, I thought in my head, a metal band. I saw them on the Louder Than Love tour. And no, it was I agree. So I, heavy. I know what I've just you said, know? but to me, they were a metal band. They weren't, there was nothing grunge about what they were doing. It was bloody heavy. Yeah, it was fantastic. And a great songwriter as well. You know, the, that was the real growth that they showed was they really nailed the songwriting. Stuff like, um, you know, some friends of mine playing a rock covers band, they still fire out Spoon Man and Rusty Cage now. And people get it. Not everybody knows what it is, but they get that music. Mm. Yeah, the only band that I've noticed has been able to live a life beyond that era, but there's two of them, is um, in terms of songs like playing in covers bands and you actually get a reaction from people aged 18, because of course that's a legal drinking age here in Australia, 18 to mm -hmm. 50 or 60 or what have you, Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots. Stone Temple Pilots in particular get a big bang. Um, Creep, really? Yeah. Um, Interstate that, Love They never did it for me, Stone Temple Pilots. Likewise. Nirvana is yeah. a sort of passerby. I could see why people enjoyed it. I really liked some of the stuff on Bleach. My goth friend had Bleach, the tune called Negative Creep, which I enjoyed. And years later, I realized I enjoyed because that's a Black Sabbath riff played at double time. And uh, I remember the news coming on that the poor bugger had killed himself. But uh, yeah, never a fan. Yeah, really. likewise. No, no, look, I wasn't a grunge fan. I was already into metal by that stage. So I, um, I was already into Iron Maiden and, and well, you know, in terms of grunge bands or grunge bands that were considered alternative back then that I really got into, there was three. There was Weezer, Faith No More and Primus. But at a stretch, you could call all of them metal at some point, especially Weezer, who were who were in metal bands. Uh, Rivers was in metal bands prior to getting into, prior to starting Weezer. I totally agree because my friends actually cover... Is it Hash Pipe and Hash Pipe's Pop Metallic, yeah. Um, Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly, yeah. And they, you know, some of the songs I actually don't know. When I hear the original, they're a really good band. They do their own thing with it and the heavy grooves they apply. They were, Weasel were one of the bands when I heard the original, I thought that's exactly how they play it live. Well, there, there, and, were, uh, there were two albums. Yeah, so they're sort of Motley Crue through the looking glass in a weird way. The, you know, it's pop totally metal, agree. It's, it's, it's pop metal, and there were two albums that I spun relentlessly in 1996 and beyond. That was Weezer's Pinkerton and Cradle's Dusk and Her Embrace. I think I had two CDs in my car, my little Suzuki Swift that I used to drive back then. They were the two. Um, and, wow. and Pinkerton used to match up with, with what you guys were doing very nicely. That's a brutal album in its own way. It's very angular. Um, if those riffs were, um, say, condensed a little bit, there's a little bit more palm muting going on, that's a metal album in my view. Yeah, totally. Pinkerton? Yeah. No, it's um, how you want. It's, it's there somewhere if you go looking. It never ceases to amaze me. Uh, here's a new band that, fell, that I really like. It's the Wolf People. Do you know them? No, I haven't heard of them. Tell me about them. I should check it out. There's an album called, oh, it'll come back to me. They are, somebody says, you got to hear this. There's a movement in Bristol called Beard Rock. <laughs> I said, what the fuck is Beard Rock? That's got to be worth one go. And I hated it all on this compilation record he gave me, except for this one band. And uh, folksy and fuzzy and heavy by turns. But you'd never say that's a hell band. But I, it goes in the same way as metal. Uh, Steeple is the album to go for. There are uh, four albums. There's one that's just collected pre demos. Steeple, forget the name of the second and third albums. I didn't listen to them as much. But it's the same kind of heavy that I get from a great Priest record. But you never mistake them for a metal band. They don't look like metal. Same as Weezer. 
the the visual trappings aren't there, but the execution is so. The execution's the same. Yeah, that's right. That's how yeah. I feel about it. Yeah, I will check them yeah, out. I've just got check them, them out. up here now. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Steeple Silvery Sands is the song to start with on Steeple, the 2010 album. Yeah. Sounds a bit right. I mean, the yeah. Silvery is a place that I know really well, so I suppose that song caught my ear as soon as he started singing because he obviously knows the area. It's um, part of what they call the Avebury line, where Stonehenge and then the Avebury circles are in the west of England. Uh-huh. And Silvery okay. is one of the man-made hills from the Iron Age. So, right. uh, yeah, was, I, I could sort of see the place as he was singing. But I've followed that band through, and their second and third albums are great, but that one just really hit me. You know, the way one album will stay with you. And uh, yes. I've seen them live a couple of times. They're superb, and they're even heavier when you see them in person. I think, but, I think uh, I've always noticed that most bands are heavy when they when they play live. Even these jangly pop bands have an element of it, don't they? It's Unless they're really trying hard not to. Um, well, the band that surprised me was years and years ago, this was, Les was doing House for Killswitch Engaged, who are of no interest to me at all. It just didn't do a thing for me. That kind of, was it new metal? Was it post-new metal that year? Post new metal, I think, is the right way to look yeah. at it. Yeah, well, metal, well, it's metalcore, I think. Gosh, I, yeah. Metalcore, that's the thing I was groping for. <laughs> but Les mixed it, obviously. Now, Les loves Motorhead. There is no two ways about this. And he applied that kind of wall of noise to the kill switch engage. But as well, they were doing like the crossed lead guitars of Judas Priest. They're a fucking metal band that some producer has tied up in a different way. To see it live, it was really happening. I bought the album just to make sure I wasn't imagining it, and it's way for thin. Nothing to it. They were one of the biggest shocks I ever had live. It was them, 36 Crazy Fist, and another band that didn't go on to do much else. But uh, the other bands didn't do it for me, but they they were just like our peers. They were obsessed by metal and did it their own way. Hmm. Never, ever going to listen to it again at home, but live, if they were playing in town, I'd be down there. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's a funny you. thing. The, the perception, more and more genres are dictated by record labels and present company fucking know all journalists that need to put something in a box hmm. you know it's all metal it really is I had an interesting conversation with somebody online the other day that doom is not a tempo you know it's don't look the word up look at the actual linguistic root of doom it's fate it's an inevitability and you can meet that head up be sad and cry about it and that gives you the full range of the doom bands hmm and it's all because one of our new songs goes fast, would you believe, the horror of it all, <laughs> up to almost 160 beats a minute. And this guy was quite put out. But he didn't want to talk to me at a show. He wanted to do it online. And he just couldn't see it. But you can call it Doom all you want. It's just metal to me. We say Doom because it yeah. makes our promoter that we used to work for comfortable. He yeah. can put it in his box. That's all about marketing, but I reserve it? Yeah. the right to be sinister at any speed I like because the next record will be grindingly slow and have not quite thrash metal, but some fast up-tempo metal stuff on it as well Mm. because although you guys haven't heard it yet i'm not making the same album twice that was never ever what i wanted to do you know it's just uh it's the creative process that i get excited about plus it's a a real fluid idea thing that we have going on in ninepence although i always talk about rob our bass player who is also rob engages just as much it's just the the simpatico thing we have means we can have an idea and turn it into noise really 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 quickly Mm. and it surprised us because when we started playing together we were playing slayer covers and for one reason or another, I was morbidly depressed during most of the songwriting uh, for the first album. And it manifests as such. I'm going to put on a happy face for you. I'm going to tell you what I think, yeah. how it is for me. And now I feel better because that situation is over. And uh, it's like having a weight taken off you. Suddenly I feel like scaring the piss out of you at high speed again. So, uh, yeah. 
okay. on it goes. It's um, I've never ever sat down and said what this should be is. I'm perfectly happy to let the cards fall, see what goes. And uh, I'm sure lots of my favourite bands do the same thing. You know, if you start making creative decisions based, there there is a band that I was talking to an insider from, and they're a band that I followed, and they're one of the ones that I think could sell a shit ton of records if they get it right. Mm. But he was telling me this guy is now in their band leader is in a huge state of flux because he doesn't know or he's not brave enough that you just do your own thing. That's why people like your band in the first place, your uniqueness. If you've, got, if you've really got cruelty in the beast, why would you want three more identical records? You want the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Well, that's what and I really, goes, that's what I really enjoyed about from the cradle to enslave is that it built on what the platform, the platform that you created with cruelty, but you'd taken it in, a different direction, but there was still that DNA there. Well, absolutely. I mean, the core of it, Cradle to Enslave did exist as a song when Nick was there in a very early stage. And it's one of the great tragedies that he didn't play on it because it was Nick mm. that that first riff was quite contentious because it's not a black metal riff. It doesn't sound like anything else. And Nick, one of the few brilliant compliments I got from him over the years was we finished jamming it. And he said, if we don't use that fucking riff, there is something wrong with the world. And that's yeah. what pushed it over into being a functioning song. I was battling to get that idea. And a couple of guys still ask me how you play that as well. Because it's just <laughs> one of those things, pick up a guitar, make a noise. It stays eccentric and not difficult to manage, but unusual. I've never written anything like it before or since. And yeah. I don't need to because it exists. You can go and play that on whenever you like. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Dark Blood and Fucking is an unusual one as well. Because, again, that was a fight to get that over. It was... We didn't have a row about it. It was just um, me and Dan had a disagreement about it. He was off doing his press thing. And I, contrary to what somebody told me, I never fell out with Dan because he went on a quest for celebrity. I actively encouraged it. I thought, what a great idea. Because, because of his uh, general behavior, he would make an unusual celebrity. People would be interested. Well, I, I think he, he went that. down that pathway, but it, it it didn't turn out too well for him on one occasion. Now, I didn't mention this, and I would never mention it to him um, in an interview, but there was that famous uh, show that he went on where someone just started taking the piss out of him, and it's on YouTube now, and started calling Oh, was that the um, Nevermind the Buzzcocks? M yeah, it must have been that. That's right. Spot on. Actually, well, I, the guy that was ripping the piss out of him was a friend of a friend, and I met him, hmm. and our friend said, oh, well, you've met Dan, and he said... It's my job. He opened himself up for it. I get paid to be funny. And if I can be funny at an idiot's expense, his word's not mine. Jesus. He went for it. <laughs> Have and, you seen uh, that? Have you seen the, the, the video? I've seen a couple of the clips. Now, I'm not saying anything for certain, but let's just throw something up in the air. What if all of Dan's spontaneous comments maybe came from a group effort to write cool and humorous things to say to people in interviews and on TV spots? And maybe they, those guys weren't there to help him anymore. Yeah, okay. So, you know, saying nothing. I don't want to deride anybody. It's all a long time ago. But possibly. Mm. Some people are very comfortable working with a front man and are okay with handing over their gags to do that. So, uh, yep. but yeah, the, we, that dark blood and fucking was a horrendous back and forth. Because he'd been off doing this celebrity thing, he wasn't there in the rehearsal room. So the song progressed without him. And I think he did a great job of it. I think it came out as a good song. I'd actually forgotten it existed until somebody asked me a question about how it was played. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, there's all these weird artifacts. You know, a time will come statistically that I'll bump into him. And what I don't want is another rail. I don't say, well, you said this and I said that. I'm happy to move on. But like I said, unlikely. 
mm. in the extreme. I don't hang out backstage at things. If I get tickets to something, I go and stand in the audience. Mm. My friends are there. I go and say hello. I could catch up with Barker or Les if they're in town, whatever it is. So do you get but recognized, a, though? Do you get recognized in, I mean, assuming you go to guitar shops to buy strings and all that sort of stuff if you don't buy them online, but do you get recognized the by metal fans? people recognize me physically, but it's my voice, apparently. Apparently, my voice is distinctive. Hmm. Okay. And because uh, I was on a tube train in London a few years back and I was talking to my mate and this guy sort of heaved around with pin badge on. And so I knew that was you from your voice. But I used to, for whatever reason, maybe I just have a an unmemorable face. If I took my makeup off, for the most part, I could walk through the audience at one of our own shows and nobody noticed. Hmm. So yeah. uh, it, who knows? Who knows? And it's always nice to meet people to do that. You know, strangely though, it's all positive now. There was a time when I had to say to a guy in a nightclub in London who had been ever so brave and bounced over to me and said, Craig, I feel for shit. And I just had to say, look, mate, if I had a quid for every time somebody did that, I could pay someone to tell you to fuck off now, fuck off. So it used to be a negative interaction when I was actually in that band, unless you were at your own shows and there were people that were there to see you. They, your Isn't that a sad state of affairs, though, for humanity when someone's being creative and playing guitar and have uh, contribute to wonderful albums like you have and some idiot decides that it's their mission for that moment in their puny existence to come up and offer that kind of a uh, offer that kind of feedback which isn't going to mean anything see i've got a bit of a um yeah, but i would take as much notice of that as i would about the positive stuff because you you have to not to take it too far back to descartes i can't be certain that i'm perceiving these things correctly but i know the inside hmm. and so i would go forward that way i've very rarely read any of our reviews of our albums because what i didn't want to do was see it through somebody else's eyes. People liked what we did well, I think when we were just doing missed, our own thing. I think the thing about Cradle was it was always a fan thing. The critics didn't get Cradle. They never never got it. And I remember reading mm. the reviews back in the day where um, I think they were trying to say some words to the effect if you should sound more like the Scandinavian bands if you want to play black metal, which is just absurd because how do you advance and how do you innovate if you don't add Yeah, because a couple of lads from up different. north and a lad from the west country are going to sound exactly like Scandinavians. We used to joke about that shit. Um, there was a working title for one project. I couldn't tell you what it was, but it was, if you look at a immortal discography, they released Lizard Beast. And we had a copy of it and we played it and it was a cool album. And the working title for whatever we were doing next was Drizzle Demons. We don't live in a snowy wasteland. <laughs> Where I'm from is temperate and it has beautiful beaches and the biggest city is like 80,000 people for a, a very a two-hour drive to get to a bigger city. That's not how I grew up and I'm not going to let on. I hate snow. I hate it just didn't happen when I was a kid. It's warmer. Mm. <laughs> so what what not reading reviews did for me was uh, allow me a, a sort of freedom for my imagination. Otherwise, and some of the guys did get like this. They would start second-guessing their instincts because somebody had said this. Now, most of those guys, the ones that write for the big pro magazines, they have to turn out a shitload of copy, and they might not necessarily have their eye on the ball. There were a couple of guys that I would be interested in personally when I talked to them what their opinion of what they were doing was because they tell me differently what they'd write. Because hmm. there's, there's always an agenda, isn't there, when you're a journalist doing new releases? But, um, well, there, yeah, it's, it's changed uh, a bit. I mean, I, I guess I'm part of the – I would never consider myself part of that, you know, the um, heavy metal media brigade. But, I mean, I, I interview um, a plethora – sorry, there, mate, it just cut out. I yeah. yeah, sorry, it just cut out then. Yeah, it's um, where I live. The broadband's good to a point, but there's <laughs> a pub over the road, and you get so much RF. I guess it's lunchtime when people take all their phones uh -huh. in there, and my phone will be a little bit jippy. Yeah. You tell me if there's any 
as well. It's just starting to cut in and out now. That's that's good. We'll keep on going until we got to stop. But um, yeah, I was just saying that. Um, Look, I, I've made a very big point. If I don't like an album, I simply don't review it. And um, a few of my contemporaries that do journalism go, oh, that's not real journalism. And I said, well, I guess I'm not a real journalist. And I'm not going to heap shit on a band because I don't like what they're doing. I might miss the I, point I've done the something. same thing with my writing, mate. There's a couple of things where I said I'm not reviewing it. The two most common ones are one of my mates in the band, and I can't say good or bad about it without it looking like it reflects on somebody that I know. And the other one is this is dog shit. And on general principle, when somebody said, well, you have to review that one, I told people exactly what I thought of it. He's seen it my way ever since. Hmm. So uh, I won't, yeah. won't tell you the band, but I'm sure you can find me on a website howling on this particular band for their juvenilia. Oh, there's some bands uh, that there are some bands that I think deserve to get fairly negative feedback. And yeah. I know I always try to structure feedback as if I was giving honest feedback to the band themselves they might never read it i doubt even bands most bands read the feedback but um yeah most most of the feedback that i do give would be like there's and i'll mention the band there's a band called manta who i think have got some good ideas but they don't have a bass player and they sorely miss it they're doing they're basically doing celtic frost but without martin eric Aiden's influence and right it actually may help me i mean i've loved celtic frost uh for a very long time you know uh for 25 years or so, 20 years or so. I mean, it was one of the first metal bands I ever got into. But I didn't realise how important the plutonium heaviness of Martin Eric, Martin Eric Ains' bass was until really now, until I started listening. There's another band called Bolzer or Blotzer who um, who don't have a bass player as well, and they're creating music with these great heavy metal riffs, but there's no bass, and it's missing that dense heaviness that metal absolutely requires. So yeah, that's the yeah, feedback you know, that I offer Bass guitar is massively important. When I started getting into uh, being a sound engineer, it astonished me how much of the massive guitar sounds is really the bass interacting with the guitar. Yes, yep. Now, getting all your soldiers in a line and hitting those down, like more, talking about more with Angel, when they stab, everything is in exactly the right place. Mm. And if you could meet that bass, it would sound like a fart in the breeze, mate. It's, I know a band around here, they're not metal, but I do like them, they write good songs, and they've no bass player. And they've resorted to backing tracks. When they're a good enough band, they play fairly big shows, that they could have 10 good bass players walk in, and I don't understand why it's not there. They're missing that. I was thinking of it as glue between the drum kit and the guitars. Oh, it's necessary. more like a yeah. noise rock thing. should look them up. Auction for the Promise Club. Uh, Zoe, the singer, writes really beautiful songs. Sorry, what's the name of the Promise Club, is it? Auction for the Promise Club. Oh, what a name. Okay, Auction <laughs> for the Promise Club. Okay, I'll look them up. Good place to start is a tune called See Through. But uh, yeah, they've got nice videos as well. They they work really hard. But I've never got a straight answer out of Zoe. Why don't you have a bass player? I know a guy who will, for sensible money, who likes your band, turn out and put bottom end in for you. But who knows? Maybe we're too old and we don't understand that the no bass thing is the future or something like that. I've never got it. And, I'm, and as I mentioned a few times, I play both, but I've... I've I think bass is absolutely essential, but I think a lot of bass mm. players are frustrated guitarists as well, and that, that plays a big part in it. And I've always found that you can definitely hear the difference between a guitarist playing bass and someone who actually understands that the bass is – I mean, I play five-string bass and four-string bass, and, um, you know, there's there's a, a, a platitude of notes and scales and modes there that can be used very effectively if you understand how to do it. Oh, truly, absolutely. Uh, I would never count myself a bass player. I play bass on my own demos. I always get a thrill out of hearing my real bass player play the bass, not play a guitar line on a different instrument. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's a, I think it's a, a hugely underrated skill. The great, I can even tell you what song it was the first time I realised how important bass guitar was in metal. Iron Man, 
the end of Iron Man when it picks up. Uh-huh, you yes. take the bass away from that, it's still a cool riff, but it doesn't have that, that, it's that evilness when I think he lays out a C-sharp over the melody. As soon as that went in, because I, I used to jam with some older guys who knew how the bass part went, yeah. suddenly it really sounded like Iron Man, and that was revelation when I was 15, where yeah. suddenly the bass player wasn't the guy that had spent all his money on cider and could barely walk in our band. We <laughs> needed somebody who was paying attention. <laughs> Let me ask you this about Black Sabbath. Um, who's more important, Bill Ward or Geezer Butler, to their sound? Oh. Because I've got my theory. It's not about importance. What I would say, though, is Geezer Butler is an exceptional bass player, hmm. and he reacts to drummers very differently. If you listen to how he interacts with Vinnie Peachy, it's totally different to how he interacts with Bill Ward. So he is reacting to the drummer much, much more so than most metal bass players. Lots of guys will throw him out as an influence, but people that really listen to what he's doing and how he's placing his notes, they're quite rare. So I love Bill Ward's drumming, you know. The crazy Latin break in Supernaut is legendary. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, the slab heaviness that he puts together on stuff like Iron Man or Snowblind. See, Snowblind, that's my all-time favorite guitar solo. And without the bass playing that goes with it, it's yeah. less. Yes. You know, that, you know, there's three solos. You know, the beautiful melodic one, the first time you hear it. You know, it's just, occasionally I can talk a student into studying and getting two hours off and getting paid for lessons. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't say importance, but I used to go and watch Black Sabbath when they had Cozy Powell and Neil Murray on the Headless Cross tour and stuff like that because yep. they played in the West Country out in the middle of nowhere. And they were still an amazing band. So Tony Iommi is the keystone for Black Sabbath because Neil Murray is a great, if very different, bass player. You know, he's very um, 80s rock, kind of static bass playing that he'd do, and it changed the older Sabbath tunes. He played them his way. And Cozy Powell playing the drums, it was definitely Cozy Powell. It was much more slab, where one of the things I love about both the Apici brothers, actually, is the delicacy and the outrageous heaviness at the same time. Yeah. Mm. And Bill Ward is just Bill Ward. Now, some of his drum fills, you say, how the fuck did the band follow you through that, Bill? Well, I think... Yeah, it's all there, and it's all happening. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's as important to Black Sabbath as what um, Tony Bray's sound is to, or sorry, Abaddon, is to Venom, and without them, they don't sound like He's our Tony, mate. When we used to see him, I would immediately start ripping the piss out of bands who introduced themselves by their stage name. We used to call them our Tony. I can't do it, yeah. um, That's like a familial thing. So our Tony was somebody that's either a great mate or a member of your family. And so he's always war me when I met him, just to do a terrible <laughs> accent for you. And yes, he, he does have when, that accent, though. When they have a different drummer, it's very different. I mean, I'm a huge Venom fan. I actually rewatched um, the live footage from Hammersmith that they had on the Ultimate Revenge video. Hmm. And I've heard lots of drummers criticise him. Why? Why would they criticise him for? He's an really excellent re- drummer. Oh, apparently his kick work is sloppy and this and that. It's the same criticism, actually, people level at Lars Ulrich, who... Without Lars Ulrich, well. a lot of you guys wouldn't be playing metal <laughs> anyhow. So if you want to burn your copy of Master of Puppets and say that it had no impact on me, go for your life. But well, that I've got is my amazing own, drumming. Yeah, I've got my own theory on Lars, though. I think he's, yeah, I think he, in, in all honesty, we might disagree on this point. I think he probably needs to step out. Um, I've, when I saw him live in Brisbane, that was not a good show that he played. And there are so many really? great, yeah, well, there, there's um, Tim Young playing with um, David Vincent in uh, from Hate Eternal. And he was the la- in the last version of Morbid Angel. Um, that had David Vincent. Um, he's now playing with David in I Am Morbid. He could step in and do it. And also the excellent drummer that played last played on, played on the last Megadeth album from Lamb of God, Chris Adler. Um, Lars, I think, 
what they're doing now, because that last album, I reviewed it and I wasn't too scathing about it again, but God, I've listened to it a couple of times again and that's a poor album. And a lot of that does come down to the rhythms that, that Lars is supplying. It's like he's gone backwards to the point where right. he's only capable of these very simplistic polyrhythms. And I'm not asking Lars to do blast beats. He's never the guy. But um, I don't I – mean, look, I mean, there's plenty of live recordings out there, but they seem like as though – I think this is the primary reason why – Rob can't play that one. I mean, Rob's one of the best bass players that has ever walked the earth, Rob Trujillo. And oh, yeah, he has to play extraordinarily simplistically to lock down what Lars is doing. If he does anything busy, it shows up Lars straight away. Now, I'm not an expert. I'm not claiming to be, but that's what I hear. Um, yeah. Yeah, I just think Lars has probably got to step out and become an executive producer. I think the other three guys have got it, but don't know about mm. old Lars. And I, but I totally take your point. I've got to say, I love that last album. You know, um, one of my very best friends, who is my honorary brother, Steve, if you're listening, um, he loves Metallica so much, it's untrue. And we used to work together in the guitar workshop, mm. and we had a rule. Uh, you don't play ACDC unless it has Bon Scott on vocals. You don't play Metallica after <laughs> Justice for All, because it's my fucking shop, and I'll come and turn the stereo off. And it was just a little joke. Had. It wasn't that serious. But every time, every time a Metallica record came out, he would be fizzing like a bottle of bass as they used to say and he gets so excited and he always say to me listen to this it's really excellent i hated it and the beat was it called death magnetic the supposed return to the 80s sound but that was horrible that was a horrible album. yeah it was really genuinely nasty but he got suckered into the full box set have you ever heard the demos they made for it yeah, there was, no i there's haven't some yeah. fire and fury in there that we didn't get on the album and i couldn't tell you what the record's called because steve has played it to me many times uh, I really like it. It sounds like they're relaxing and just playing music. And to go back to what you said about Lars, I think somebody needs to say, no, Lars, it can't be like that. They need a producer with the balls to say no, because we've all seen the footage of his behavior in the studio. It might be a long time ago, but that kind of uh, everything louder than everything else for the drums helps nobody. You know, if you want to hear a drum solo, we can hear it. You put a drum solo on a record, do it. Yeah, and but, I think uh, you've just hit a really important point there. They're so famous, they just get their own way too much. And that's, it's not unique to those guys. I think there are lots of people that as they gain influence, if somebody had just said, no, you need to do it like this. I've been doing this for a long time. My neck is on the line as producer. It needs to be this. But their latest record, it sounds much more like some guys who play metal, just doing their own thing. Apart from the vocal, I, I was debating with a couple of guys, would you recognize that as Metallica if it wasn't James Hetfield's voice? It just sounds like some guys having fun. Not life-changing, but it's a good record. I enjoyed it. First one that I've enjoyed since me and Metallica had a messy divorce go. on the Black Album. Yeah, <laughs> so there you go. Well, no, that's fair yeah, enough. Master no, Puppets is me. Well, look, likewise, and 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 I've often likened uh, Cradles, Duskener, Embrace, and Cruelty to Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. Um, wow. I've often, I certainly think in black metal terms, that's it. Um, and um, I, I, I was a massive. I remember in 1998 seeing Metallica when they were doing that acoustic in the round. I don't know. Do you remember when they were doing that, when they were playing? Uh... No, the, the late 90s. This is not some I was on drugs cliche. We were in our own little bubble. We were yeah. really, really busy. And so unless it was something that was right in our path that somebody had rung up and said, we've got you some passes to go see whatever, uh, we kind of did our own thing. So if we didn't see it at the shows we were playing at festivals, we did play with Metallica back then, but it wasn't acoustic, about 98, I think. 
Well, they, I but think... They're so famous, we weren't allowed anywhere near them. They cleared the backstage. Oh, of course they would, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, they had Monster Magnet as their support band, and I'm a fan, I just wanted to go and thank Dave Windorf. And I had to wait until he came out of their secure zone into the normal backstage before I could do it. Gosh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and then I heard um, Marilyn Manson try to pull something similar on an Ozfest or one of those big, you know, those... Um, those big festivals in the states, where no, none of uh, this this was, and I think it was an interview with Dino from Fear Factory, um, uh-huh. where he's saying that, and you know, nobody out there quote me, please, you'll have to find the source, but I think it's this is what I remember it saying, that Marilyn had set up everything in the backstage, so none of the other bands could even look at him, a la Bob Dylan style. So, I'm going to call bullshit on that because I met Marilyn, I met Brian a couple of times because that's how he introduced himself. Oh, is that right? That's good. Um, yeah. The first time we played at Dynamo. I think maybe the second we played at Dynamo and we were the special guests to the Marilyn Manson band mm. and he was just hanging out with Nick and Nick said come and meet Brian I had no idea who this guy was and we crossed paths a few times he's actually really personable I think possibly his PR guy said you know it'd be healthy for the Marilyn Manson cartoon that you put over to the general public if you did a bit of something and looked a bit negative because I'll tell you my Marilyn Manson story they're in the same hotel as us in Osaka mm. Uh, they were playing the night after us, and uh, him and two of the guys from his band were so bored, they were calling the lift up to the top floor and farting in it and letting the lift go and then <laughs> laughing when somebody got out of it. So oh, that God. doesn't sound like the aloof rock star that you just described to me. No, it, it doesn't. But Might be wrong, there is... but uh, you know, he, was, he, was, he was very nice. He was a friendly guy. But there is a definite flick of the switch to be Marilyn Manson pissing in at the front row two hours later. <laughs> Well, there's some very famous footage of him with, for all intents and purposes, what looks like cocaine on stage here in Australia for the Soundwave Festival. I think he's lately, he's, he's I don't know whether he had a, a bad breakup or a divorce, but something happened to him where there's no two ways about it. There's acting as if you're out of it on stage, and then there's really being out of it on stage. And uh, to me, there's no question that he's under the influence of something a lot stronger than alcohol in a few of those Australian oh, yeah. gigs that he performed. And look, I, I get it. You know, boys have got to have their fun and the like, but he's not a boy anymore. He's probably 50, I'd say, isn't he? He's probably at least 45. I wouldn't, oh, excuse me, I wouldn't let the hazard a guess at that one. But you, cocaine is a, a bad drug. You know, it's, um, I am not blameless in this. And it's from experience I can say, that's why do it to yourself? It is. It gives you a high dependency very quickly. very quickly. It's not even that much fun. You know, It's uh, and it will take its toll on you. It's probably the most common cause of early retirement and death for musicians. Mm. It's, um, it's, it's bad stuff, and that's not a criticism of people who still take it. A lot of my old friends think I'm on some sort of a mission because I haven't done hard drugs in 17 years. So New Year's Eve 99 was the last time. Mm. I haven't had a drink in five. I'm not trying to change all of you. It just agrees with me. And so seeing it from the other side, being able to say thanks but no thanks, because, you know, the circles I move in, you'll see cocaine racking up sometimes. And you can, I can easily say, I look at it and just go, it only leads to trouble. It just, it's not my thing. I, I like weed. And there's lots of guys who struggle with a weed habit. Mm. I use it recreationally like other people have a can of bitter at the end of the day. Mm. So um, I, do th- I think it's a bad one. Cocaine and heroin cause destruction and chaos. Well, I think the one that's—I think the one that's worse is well, not worse. Okay, I don't want to say it's worse, but the one that I've personally seen cause a lot of destruction is alcohol. Um, so you might, you're not wrong, mate. You are not wrong. So I, I, look, I'm, I'll go home tonight um, and have a few bevvies because I've had a wonderful discussion with your good self, and it's—I'll finish 
today on a on a big high actually and um you know i'd like to finish with a beer in those ca in those cases there and i'm by no means an alcoholic i'm a father of two beautiful girls and i'm happily married um and you know i i but as, as a musician i've been in bands with people who can't handle their drink and my mate my very good mate who was my uh, my irish mate in sydney who's who I went through school with um he's an alcoholic um yeah he will have and i, I shit you not mate he'll have one drink and he'll turn into an absolute bloody demon. Like I'm talking fall downstairs demon. And I haven't oh, spoken tragic. I haven't spoken to him in years because I just it's not that I may not hang out with him at any time, but I don't want to I I've never been the guy that lecture to anybody how to lead your life. You want to get in any religion, you want to get in any in substance, I don't give a shit. It's your it's on your head, effectively. You know what I mean? I'm one yeah. of those blokes who let anybody lead their life, but Jesus, having people around the family that could be sort of change and, and, and change that much after one or two drinks, I can't do it in 2017. It's just that simple. I've even kicked a guy out of a band because he used to beat his wife. He used to... Well, quite right. People like that deserve kicking out of a fucking side more than a band. Oh, I couldn't again, do it. And you can't not, talk to in, these people. You know, in my close family, I have seen, I have seen that behaviour. And it was a position where somebody said, you just go and deal with him, mate. I'll say you're in the pub with me the whole time. You need to put him in a fucking ditch. I feel very strongly about that. Mm. Abuse of any kind is wrong. Because the world we live in is, going back to what I was saying about the news, people don't seem to realise that any attempt, whether it's physical or social pressure applied to people, to live a certain way through a certain set of conditions is fascism and it must be stopped. Mm. So... Yeah, I totally agree with you. I wouldn't deal with that at, at all. But it's an emotive people, point for me. These people have a way of manipulating the situation to turn it around and being about you and not understanding their predicament or what have you. It's like, you aren't listening to me, mate. You're beating your wife. You're drinking and then beating your wife. What do you want me to say to you? I can't help you. There's nothing that I yeah. can do or say. I've got My energy is reserved for my family and what I do with my life. That's it. <laughs> I'm not a selfish Absolutely. person. I don't want to give you the wrong idea that I'm a selfish person. I'm pretty goddamn But didn't you find being a parent gave you a different angle on all these things? Well, it just meant that I had to be more, f I, I had to refine my focus. You know, that I think that's the way I want to look at it. You know, I've got two daughters and um, look, whether or not we want to believe that life is different for girls, that it is different for boys, there's no question that, you know, they have a different experience depending on how, you know, whether, when I say different, better or worse. Um, I just wanted yeah, to be yeah. an example to them when they grow up and, uh, you know, if, if they decide to get married, um, you know, what sort of a man they might want to look for or what sort of people or what, how they want to receive re respect from the men that are around them, that that sort of thing. And that's yeah, why totally. this, this bloke, I, I kicked him out of the band and, and it put me between a rock and a very hard place. And I, I, I had to break up the band after a while because I couldn't get a guitarist to replace him. You know? But there's no band worth being in for having scum on your shoulder when you're working because it would, if you'd have done it differently, mate, it would always be at the back of your head that you're ostracizing them in some way. Is a positive thing. It really is. You oh, know, I, yeah, great. Yeah. You know, being a parent changed everything for me. Well, I have a girl and a boy, and I'm sure your girls are the same. Dad is the biggest rock star in the world. Whatever you do must be the right thing because you're dad, and there's no pressure to do it. It comes easy. But that's the big difference with my two. Is my son, of course, I was a small boy. I can advise him on everything as we go through because my weird memory works that far back. Every interaction hmm. that he wants to talk about, I'm happy to talk about. But my daughter, I feel much more that I am, in, I maybe it's just a gender thing, somewhat separated and more on a pedestal to her. We see, I've explained that really poorly. 
But I, I genuinely feel that little girls react so differently to their dads than little boys. Where um, when, when they were both tiny, context, yeah. my son, uh, my son would disagree with me and then go to his mum, and she would intervene on his behalf. It's the other way around with my daughter, and she will come to me, and I'm so rubbish when she does big blue eyes at me, uh, saying your mother is right because I've actually turned to jelly. <laughs> you know, she's got total power over me, and in that you realise. It goes both ways. Mm. It really does for me. And to offer an example and show that you're a, you know, I'm ashamed that I still smoke in front uh, when my children catch me. I know it's terrible drug. You know, talking about drugs, that's the worst one. I can shift all the others, but I can't stop that one. Is that mm. in process? Maybe one day. Because when kids are little, they see the smoke and kills written on the packaging. My son used to call my cigarettes smoke and kills. And I had a fucking good go. I quit for two years on that one. Yep. And then uh, stressful events was my excuse for starting again. But uh, you know, as you get older, you understand yourself better. Every six months I try again, then it gets shorter, longer, whatever it is. Yep. But it's the greatest job in the world being a parent. I absolutely love it. I was so nervous before my son was born. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's joyous. Because now he's 13, we can hang out and we can do stuff. And he likes a lot of the same things I like. We can go to rock shows. Hmm. And I will indulge whatever new metal dreck it is that my boy listens to because he loves it. And so, we, yeah, we're aiming at his first camping festival next year, maybe go to no, Bloodstock or something like oh, that. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah. it's kind of like when I was 13, I was allowed to go to Monsters of Rock, and much to my mum's uh, horror. <laughs> but uh, so I got to see who played that year. Oh, it's because Metallica were there. I was desperate to go. Metallica playing two bands off the bottom of the bill for a 45-minute show. First time they brought Jason Newstead over here. And... Uh, possibly the nearest thing to religious ecstasy I experienced was when I realised it was actually Leper Messiah the first tune out of the, the gate oh it was my god fantastic. yeah that's I love that's and, probably uh, my favourite Metallica song actually yeah oh it's, it's always going to be secondary a thing that should not be for me they never did anything so creepy and atmospheric before or since I think that's my outstanding song with a, a mention for Harvester of Sorrow that's got a similar kind of vibe Mm, yes. So, yeah, uh, I just can't get. I love the riffs on Injustice, but because of the production, it's so dry and uh, bone dry. Uh, it just doesn't have the legs that the other two have got. No, and I think that's possibly the point where Metallica had enough influence. They start to get their own way all the time. There was nobody there to say that's that's not it. That's, I, that's I not what you sound like live. I, I tell you what, I developed a theory about why that album sounds like why it sounds like it does. So bear with me here as I explain. Uh -huh. So I've, I've given this a lot of thought, and I've actually written a um, like a blog entry that's about eight thousand words about the period of Metallica's career. From it covers a little bit of Injustice and Black, but mainly around Load and what happened around Load. Because that period, that that album, I don't like the album, but that period of their career fascinates me. Anyway, I digress. My, my theory about Injustice is that they were so aggrieved by the loss of Cliff Burton that they decided that the follow-up album would have no base whatsoever. That's what I think has happened. Maybe, they've never said that. That's an interesting theory, man. I never thought of it in those terms. I think most definitely the contribution of Cliff Burton because his bass playing was very, you know, for thrash metal, very, very agile, wasn't it? It was much more the geezer butler end of things. He was moving against the guitars with the drums and stuff like that. Well, with the greatest of and, respect to, to Cliff and his family and his, and, you know, no point saying to his fans, you know, the fans are fans, but to, his, to him and his family, I think it's one of those things where since he's died, it's a bit like the Kurt Cobain thing. It just sort of blew up and became a little bit more impressive than what it actually really was in real life. And I, I shared this story with um, Tony Dolan from Venom Inc., um, 
Tony himself had a big impact on me as a bass player because that was the first time I'd, at the beginning of Primeval, now you know exactly what I'm talking about, that was the first time I'd really heard prominent bass playing in metal. Now I know there are other albums yeah. out there, but I'm talking about an album that I owned. So I had the Metallica albums at the time, but when I got Primeval, I was like, shit, this guy knows how to play bass. So truth be told, Tony Dolan had, Dolan had more of an impact on me as a bass player than what Cliff did. As I get older, there's no question, and I've, I've certainly heard the isolated bass tracks on YouTube from puppets, and they sound unbelievable. They sound great. But yeah. even with Cliff and the band, they seem to have something against the bass frequency, and they just didn't have him high enough to really hear the wonderful work that he was doing, particularly with his right hand, with that Steve Harris spider-style technique that he had going on. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I never got to see Metallica with Cliff Burton, but I've seen, like everybody has, loads of footage of it. And he was, he's obviously a big personality as well. And, uh, you know, the, the Cliff Moore VHS, they used to travel around all of our friends when we were young, and there yes. was some great live footage of Metallica on there. And, uh, yeah, so who knows? But I think possibly Jason Newstead was in there taking instruction from people where Cliff Burton was just Cliff Burton and got on with his bass playing. I'm not saying he's beyond reproach, but I think he was a different part of the band. You know, Jason Newstead, is, he's a great bass player. He did some excellent work. So I've got some nice live recordings, bootlegs from Justice for All Tour. I think he's a... And the front of house, you can hear him. Yeah, he's a... He's a in particular, in that show that I watched in 1998, if it wasn't for Jason, I think that that, that show would have been pretty shitty, to be frank. Um, you know, he did a lot of singing. Um, I, I remember feeling... Not sorry for Jason. I don't feel sorry for anybody. You feel sorry for people who got cancer and are victims of things, okay? But yeah, yeah. I, I really f felt for Jason through the media and the promotional uh, trail for uh, a lot of the album, particularly on Load. He was turning himself inside out, trying to explain whilst, why they were still a metal band or words to the effect and why Metallica's contribution to rock and metal was important. I don't think he believed a goddamn word of it. You know that? I think he was totally yeah. sidelined through that whole period there that... From his perspective, I'm really happy for him that he played on load because, on, on on the black album, so they can continue to get those publishing checks. Yeah, you know, I think that's really yeah. it for him, and it, you see it now to this day. He's still a, he, he comes across to me as a very confused bloke. So the most metal member of Metallica probably ever um, isn't playing metal. He you know had a stab at it, but he just you know he, he talked about why it was too much to get a band going and the whole machine of trying to get a band on the promotional trail and play play um, festivals and gigs around the world, but um, he's doing acoustic music again, like what he was similar, not similar, but it's same vibe as what he was doing in that band that he did after, um, was it Papa Wheelie? Was that the name of the band that he got into straight after he I left Metallica? I know nothing at all about his work outside of Metallica and Flotsam and Jetsam before that, of course. Hmm. So um, I say me and Metallica, we going from my favourite band to, I remember the, uh, there was a the National Rock Show played at the Sandman on a Friday night. And I went out to our local bar that I keep talking about on a Saturday. Every metal head had heard it. Most of them had their Walkmans because they'd copied it from the radio so they could hear it again. And everybody was just kind of in, they were stunned. Mm. You know, the, maybe 50% of those guys learned to enjoy the new Metallica style. I never recovered from that. So my experience with Metallica sort of stops at Black Album. And then somewhere around 98, we were on the same bill as Metallica. And hand on heart, I was begging them to stop. Three hours is too much. You know, it was. Agreed. And they were playing yeah. medleys. One of my personal fucking hates is medleys. If they're really great songs, play the song and we will enjoy it. Don't, don't bodlerize your own music, you fucking idiots. You know, you've got a three hour show. You are Metallica. They will let you play as long as you want to play. Don't, that's the word it's bodlerized, is to, like these 
mini bite-sized versions of cool tracks from Unjustice for All that were being run into bits of songs from Master of Puppets. It's not necessary. When you're a fan of a band, you're a fan of a band, and we don't have to agree with everything they do, but at least don't, don't exacerbate the issue by crippling the early stuff that I was still excited about. They were, they were just... There, there are two things I've seen where I really just wanted it to end. That Metallica show, and a few years before that, Ozzy Osbourne at Monsters of Rock, mm. he had... They weren't bad players, but it's probably like the least gelled band anybody can have. I think it's when he had the dude from Faith No More playing drums. Like and Gordon, one of those yeah. LA, yeah, LA session guys on guitar, and he was in physically poor shape. You're just thinking, mate, go and have a lie down. Nobody will think anything the worse of you if you just stop the show now. Yeah, I, I totally train, agree that. Do with... paranoid, go home. It's it, it just it just wasn't happening for whatever reason. And the, the last time I saw Soundgarden, for different reasons, it wasn't happening in such a way that mm. 90 minutes felt like 90 years. Where you well, could tell those guys were not getting on. It was really unpleasant. That was yeah. That wasn't that wasn't pleasant, was it? Certainly not pleasant to watch that final performance of Chris Cornell, of Chris Cornell's uh, before he uh, killed himself. That's a really hard watch. That one there because that guy is. I, I don't want to see it. It's that's too tragic for me because he was he's such a fantastic vocalist. Hmm. You know, he's a great songwriter, but his vocal was unique. Well, and, I think um, he, had, he had his off nights, though. There's a very famous performance of him playing Saturday Night Live or uh, one of the late shows back in 96 when they released, um, uh, God, the song Pretty Noose, anyway. They played the song Pretty Noose, which I love that album, sorry. The name of that album escapes me at the moment. But um, And Down on the Upside. Down on the Upside, that's the album, yeah. Um, or Up on the Downside, I forget. But yeah, no, I know the record. Right, Down on the Upside, yeah, but he played Pretty Noose, which I think is probably their strongest track. I love that one the most, but it's in a register too high for him, and that certainly came across in that performance. I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. suggest Googling it or YouTubing it, but it's certainly out there. But yeah, I think uh, you made a really good point about Ozzy too. I saw him in Brisbane in 2008, and from the first, I think the first song they played was uh, Bark at the Moon, and I'm a massive J.K. Lee fan, far bigger than I am a Randy Rhodes fan. So I hang on... I basically count down all of the tracks that I expect to hear from Bark at the Moon and The Ultimate Sin. And right. Ozzy was a full beat behind the rest of the band during that entire performance. It yeah, was yeah. sad. And it's just, I feel like saying, Sharon, you have enough money. Leave the old bastard be. Just let him yeah. sit around, you know, smoking cigars and having the odd beer or what have you, because it's not good. It's a train wreck. I would say what Ozzy could do with, I'm sure you've noticed over the years, Sharon will take her eye off him for 10 minutes. And in an interview, will start saying, what I'd really like to do is make something like a sort of Beatles flavour with psychedelic influences. In a, and obviously, somebody clamps down on that and it never happens because that's not as marketable. Where stuff like So Tired from, is that from Ultimate Sin? Uh, it's from um, the one prior to that, um, Bark at the Moon. And I Bark know exactly what you're saying. I've had a discussion with Bob Daisley about this very track. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's an, an album with Ozzy Osbourne written on it is going to sell by the truckload whatever happens. You don't need any more money. Why not just let him have it? I suspect there's a great deal of cre creativity with Ozzy Osbourne that we will never experience. We'll never experience like, yeah. These guys, they're not going to be here forever. Just um, get your checkbook out, love. Get him the band that he wants and give him six months in the studio just doing his own thing and leave him to it. And I would imagine we will be shocked by what we get, but pleased by the result. Well, I'd, I'd love you know, to so hear I'd love to hear him. He spent a very long time being Ozzy Osbourne, the front man of this magnificent band of session players that they always put together, I think there's more to it. And there's no evidence of that. You know, it'd be sad if we didn't get to see the whole thing. Like um, Chris Cornell has left us with not just Soundgarden, 
but some of his acoustic music is really nice. Some of his mm. solo stuff's great. Did you get into and the Timberland produced album of Chris Cornell's? I don't think I've heard that one. Uh, what year I'm is it? I'm terrible at listening to new music. What's the yeah. album called? It is called, hang on, two seconds and I'll Google it. Um, what's his name? Chris Cornell. Um, it, it copped a lot of heat. Um, it, by all reports, wasn't too bad. But um, look, when you're the guy who's known for singing um, Rusty Cage, you know, it's always going to yeah. be a bit of a stretch when you come out with something produced by um, uh, Timberland, you know. So, God, he's got a massive Wikipedia entry. Jesus. Um, let's have a look here. Discography. I think it was called Scream. Now, all right. Um, I could, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I'll read this. So it's, uh, it marked a shift from Cornell's previous musical efforts with the exclusion of some guitar and rock elements that were replaced with producer Timberland's electronic pop soundscapes. So therein mm. you have the reason why people, and a lot of rock fans anyway, um, uh, didn't quite get into it. But uh, look, no doubt it's probably selling by the truckload these days as things tend to when people move off this mortal coil and... Well, should it too, because yeah. he's a very talented guy. And I've, I've never listened to it because I haven't listened to anything that he did post um, Soundgarden. I didn't even get into Audio Slave, to be quite honest with you, because I was never a big Rage Against the Machine Audio fan. Audio Slave didn't do it for me. If Audio Slave had Kim Thale playing guitar, I would have been all over that. I really, no disrespect to him, he has a unique style. I don't like Tom Morello's guitar playing. No, neither do I. Yeah. yeah. No, he's I a, a fairly good sort of art rock experimenter. But his rhythm guitars, they always seem a little bit fluffy and indistinct. Well, where He's trying to he play like he's can really Ray. nail it. But, but I think that's on purpose, though. But I don't think if he really, I don't want to speak for him here, and I've never interviewed him. But I'd love to interview him and go, look, I know you can play because I've seen the way you put your, hand, your hands and your fingers in live recordings and the like. But shit, dude, your rhythm's out. There's no two ways yeah. about it. Is that on purpose, or are you just trying to get away from the metal thing as much as possible? Because at the end of the day, Tom, most of your fans also like metal. Yeah. He's a guy that I think could release a heck of a metal album if he really focused. Yeah. The thing I always had with Rage Against the Machine, and this kind of stopped me getting behind them, was I saw him at a Reading Festival in the 90s when they were relatively new. It must have been the first album. Hugely popular. You know, the, the arena was absolutely jam-packed. And I think maybe 1% of the audience could appreciate the irony of all of you shouting, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me at the same <laughs> time. Because it's a kind of fascism of its own. I think this, you think this. Hmm. And so on general principle, me and my friends said, um, not joining in. We are actually, we without Monty Python gag. You're all individuals. <laughs> so uh, they, they never hit me right. The whole rap metal crossover thing, I think it's left me utterly cold the whole time. Well, it, it's... From the early days to whatever's happening now, I'm sure it's still going on. Well, watch how quickly... Um, a bloke who I've uh, a bit like your good self that I've been wanting to interview for many many years is Trace Bruins from Mr Bungle and he also played on that excellent Faith No More album King for a Day Fool for a Lifetime um, oh is that the same guy I, know, I didn't yeah. know it was the same guy that is a good record yeah it's a brilliant record probably my favourite of theirs actually and uh, that's a guitar album no doubt about that Angel Dust was good really good as a matter of fact but I really loved the groove that they produced on um, King for a Day now a lot of journalists cotton on to the fact that the guys in Corn and I think Wes Borland from Limp Biscuit were talking about uh, Trace Bruins 
quite a bit during interviews in the late 90s, he couldn't have distanced himself from that quick enough. And same thing with Mike Patton. You know, and they get it as well. They get that that music was devoid of a lot of spirit and soul and was really just something that record... Probably it was the last great... When I say great movement, you know what I mean? The last marketable movement that occurred, or maybe that whole... Remember that band Jet, that whole new garage sound? Remember oh, that? yeah. I maybe that was. Remember that? So maybe it went new metal, maybe it went rap rock, new metal, new garage, and probably the internet just blew everything apart after that. So there's been no legitimate movements that you could call a movement since then. Um, well, no, because when we were kids, music moved forward, didn't it? Now you can listen to music from any time, any time you want. And so I meet 16-year-old guitar students. There's a guy raving about Tool when he's 17 the other day. I said, that's not the band I expected you to say when you he said, I really like old heavy metal. And I said, sort of like, what? He said, Tool. Well, cool that you like it, but crazy that you found it. That's not a name you hear very often. Well, it's And the, so I yeah. can see with my children, their experience of music is it's all happening simultaneous. Like there is no timeline anymore. That's what the record companies used to do for us, wasn't it? Filter it and allow it to come out in sequence, where the internet has just given us access to so much, for better or worse, that the good songs still float up. But there's very few young guys that I meet that are genre fans, like I would have been a metalhead. They like music, and they recombine it and mix it up into their own thing. Yeah, which I think is wonderful. uh, Yeah, I think it's a wonderful um, outcome uh, from that perspective. Yeah, not being able to see the difference between the Beatles and Pink Floyd and Black Sabbath because there's no timeline anymore of this music. It's well, a really powerful thing. There's some interesting stuff happening because of it. If there is a genre, well, when I say genre, if there is a box that those three bands to the mainstream are allocated, it would be classic rock. And that includes the Sex Pistols, unbelievably. But, you know, I discovered a lot of music because of a, a genre term that Kerrang! used to knock about when I was first into metal. So 11 or 12 years old, they used to call Blue Oyster Cult, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin... All of the bands of that era, dinosaur rock. I now know they're using it as a pejorative. When I was 11, I thought, dinosaur rock, fuck yeah. And so I'm a Blue Oyster Cult fan because of them misdefining what they thought of it. They were trying to slag them. They made them more interesting. <laughs> what does it sound like, this dinosaur rock? And, uh, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper wasn't a radio standard back in the 80s. Mm. It is now. Yeah. And uh, so I asked the helpful guy at the local record store, and he gave me Oh, what is the album called? It's the one with um, Veteran of the Psychic Wars on it, which is another song I've threatened to cover yeah. as far back as Craig Mafilth. And I was just hooked. And I still couldn't see the dinosaur thing, but it got me listening to this music that was supposed to be dead when I was growing up. It was all about the new thrash metal movement and American glam rock. So I, I guess I've always been out of sync with it and seeing other people hmm. change as time goes on. I think it, it appeals to me. There are still genre fans, of course, because there's always the grim black metal dude that turns up to our shows just to be grim. Uh, who I've never spoke to because he's too grim. Yeah. He's just so fucking full on corpse bait and grim that I've never. He's been to probably the last five or six shows that we've played in the area. Oh, so he's a so cradle he's, fan, is he? And he's sort of gotten onto the fact that you've now got fuck a new no, band. he's too grim for that. He just goes to any metal show because there aren't that many metal shows around here. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, um, he's cult with a V. You know, you can. Uh, I used to say this to Dan an awful lot. If you can't see the funny side of what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. It can't possibly be a real 24 hours a day thing. And I don't think he appreciated what I was trying to get over. And we used to meet these black metal fans. There was a guy in Switzerland many years ago. And he just stood in the, the old black metal two crossed devil horns across his chest and stared at me the whole night. And so after 30 minutes, I thought I'm going to make him break that face. And so every time I used to wear picks really badly, I used to play um, celluloid picks. And so I could do five or six in a show. 
and they turn into almost a disc. I'd hook it in my finger, I'd whip it, and I'd hit him in the face with every single one that I wore. <laughs> damn him, he didn't break that face once. And I bought him a beer afterwards because I was so fucking impressed. <laughs> and he was actually a cool guy. Just so now that's how I enjoy my black metal. Totally locked, like a statue staring at me. And, uh, you know, there's actually patches on his forehead where the makeup had come off or I'd winged him with his picks at point blank range. <laughs> Because I felt bad. I thought, good on you, mate. You can drink on me for the rest of the night. For not, He didn't even flinch. <laughs> yeah, so, you, do uh, get, you do get your character. It takes all sorts, mate. Yeah. Oh, of course you do. You know, I used to meet people that carved their own pentagram into their chest before oh, a show. God. Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. For hygiene reasons alone, if you'd like to step backwards, that would be lovely. Oh, there's some odd cats you know, out there, uh, aren't there? Yeah. They take oh, it too literally. Mostly it's cool people. Most people that, you, that I used to meet at those shows... They were just metal fans exactly like I was. Mm. And I think most of them were relieved when it turned out I was a normal metal fan. And I was happy to chat about what was new and what I listened to and yeah. all those good things. That was, it was a perk of the job. I got to meet metal fans all around the world and chat. I never wanted any degree of influence over what they thought. Mm. It was just a nice thing. But yeah, you always met that one who was called Demogorgon and just razor bladed his own <laughs> chest before a show. And, you know, this, we can't be free of blame. We did used to pretend that some of the blood we used was real. It was not. Because real blood actually isn't that colour. If you look, <laughs> well, I always so, knew um, it was. Yeah, I guess. I guess I, you know, I, I got into the. I've always gotten into the music. You guys could have worn tutus for all I give, could have given a shit, and it wouldn't have meant too much to me. Maybe not tutus, but you know what my point is. Like the, you know, black t-shirts instead of the the wonderful get-up that you used to wear, which is all very theatrical and part of the show. And it probably it was also have... really lightweight. It was practical as well, man. Those cheesecloth shirts you can wear them in very hot venues. Yes. Where a t-shirt even would be oppressive in. Oh, it was an American show where they were saying it was, it was outside of what is a normal working temperature for human beings because I fainted after the show because of the temperature differential. Where was that at? Sorry, what and, gig uh, was that? Milwaukee Metal Fest one year. Oh, God, that thing, yeah. I know there are pictures of it because it's, it was when BC Richard made me my new guitar and so I trashed the 75 quid junk wall lock that I had at the end of the show because I only had one guitar case to take it home in. Hmm. And uh, so I know there are pictures of it. Um but yeah, one second after coming out, it was a sports hall. You know, like the tiled changing rooms? Yeah, yeah. The difference between the heat of the stage and coming out into the cold, my brain just said, no, mate, you're going on the floor. And I just went. went and that was a hundred and something on stage, the guy at the venue reckoned. But they don't have health and safety as we would recognize it in the US. And another show in the south of France, which was just obscenely hot, which I did threaten to do the encore uh, without my trousers because it was so hot <laughs> and then thought better of it. That happened a few times. It's just uh, <laughs> when it's that hot and you've been working that hard, your brain malfunctions. There's going to be a bad oh, decision. And I depended on people yeah. like Les to say, no, trousers on, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny world, mate. Look, I really must go. It's been lovely talking to you. I'm not trying to rush off the phone. And no, that's fine. It's, it's, not gonna, it's, I it's almost four hours. I have to get my daughter from school it. pretty soon. Yeah. And uh, I'm in my 40s now. If I don't walk five miles a day, I don't feel myself at all. Oh, I agree. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go for a massive insane. walk and listen to some music. But it's been a thrill talking to you and all the lovely things you said about me. I can't thank you enough because, honest to goodness, I didn't hear any of them way mm. back. That's a shame. That's you know, shame. I can remember, really I can count on one hand the times that members of that band said, nice guitars. Yeah, you know, road crew used to compliment me. Sound guy used to compliment me. Mm. It was one of those things. Oh, and shame, I'm mate. still yeah. getting used to it. It absolutely blows my mind that I'm talking about what I did back then now because... There was a time, if you could see it as a, a timeline, where me and Nick were basically written off as a, a, an adjunct to what that band did. 
I've been told that I was just a session guitar player, according to one biography, which of oh course God. is bullshit. Yeah, of course it's bullshit. Otherwise, yeah. I would have got paid all the time, wouldn't I, instead of having to work for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> On mm. the spec of maybe getting something out of a record company one day. Well, I and, think uh, you'll get you. It's, it's a genuine thrill. Because like I said, the big thing is guys like you saying, I'm an influence on your playing. And every person who's ever said that, I just think that is the most beautiful thing because I get my own Wonderful. little paragraph at the, one of the pages of the How You Play Metal Guitar book. If well, it so exists. you should. Well, so you should, mate. So you should. And look, what I'll do is I'll send you through a link to the show once it's posted. And um, yeah, mate, if you think of anything between now and then, you haven't said anything controversial, by the way, as far as I'm concerned. Um, if you think of anything now and then you want me to leave out, let me know. But otherwise, I'll leave it unedited and it'll go over two episodes. You edit it and make it as fluid as you like. And I hope everybody enjoys it. The only thing near controversy is I don't know how comfortable Nick would be telling the story of how he made John write a riff. Because hmm. as far as he knew, oh, that's I have discussed this with Nick since. Yeah. That's, that's funny. Though. I wish I could give you more of the funnies. I really could. But they're not relevant to the band. They were just, that's what happens when you give men in their 20s too much money and free time. <laughs> so uh, maybe I'll write the book one day or somebody like yourself so. can interview us all and put it together. Maybe because I'll do there that. Was, there's maybe more I'll to it that. than you realize. And I'm actually trying not to laugh now because once I start, Les, I could just say, good night in Tokyo. That's one of a hundred Les tales that needs telling, right. because that was just truly beautiful work from him. He's the man I've seen drunkest and still walking. <laughs> you know, um, unbelievable levels of rock star stupid that we used to get up to. I forget who it was, but that the night that I saw Les still moving with that much alcohol in his system, some genius said, "How much does it cost to fill the bath in our hotel room with beer?" And they did. <laughs> Oh, shit, uh, really? Les, uh, I'm not going to tell you that one because possibly there are criminal charges attached to that. <laughs> Nothing horrendous. But I'll discuss it with Les and maybe oh. he'll tell you some of these stories because we, despite how it may seem now and despite how badly we all fell out in the end, and it was very sad. It was sad losing Barker. But we could go on. You know, if we had a good core of people that that went on, and as you know, the Cradle to Enslave EP is evidence they worked without Barker, and that's no disrespect sure. to him. I, mm. I wish he could have played on those tunes because... Because we used to have a fucking good laugh, me and Nick. We really did. <laughs> and uh, yes, it, it was. it's not as it appears. We did have a really good time. And for the most part, we used to hang out together. There were some excellent times. You know, varying degrees of uh, how much of a sense of humor you have renders some of them pathetic in-jokes from 20 years ago. Some of them are genuinely worth hearing. But um, mm. next time I talk to you, things will be different but don't be a stranger mate it's been nice chatting to you you're obviously a reasonable man in a well, mad world yeah, yeah. No, no thanks mate. thanks for the compliment too yeah well look i'll um yeah look as i say i look forward to trying to catch up with les later on in the year mate but i'd love to catch up with all three of you it's going to be very difficult of course because we all live in different parts of the world but i just want to thank you so much for your time for your candor um and mate this is uh a, a, this is going to be a blockbuster episode for the people that listen to the radio show and also as i said mate nobody's ever podcast. asked me these things if you need to promote your show 40-year-old Cradle of Phil fans will be interested because I've never sought the opportunity to do this before, but certainly nobody ever asked me. Yeah, well... You know, for, for many years, it just wasn't even something I wanted to discuss because it was, it was the disappointment of not getting that next album because yeah. possibly if it had gone that way, everybody would have seen that this is the future, is everybody work on their own stuff and bring it all together. That was all I was looking for. Yeah. yeah. But uh, if anything changes, you'll hear about it long before me. But okay. like I say... Um, I'd love to revisit Australia. Really, when it's a beautiful country with sensible people in. Hmm. And uh, my regards to the place. I know it's huge, but I have fond memories of being <laughs> there. I really, really do. 
Oh, we'd love to have uh, him back here sooner rather than later. This is the other thing I always say about Australia. Growing up in the 80s in the country, the VHS rental shop was crucial to a young man's well-being. And I thought that the car in Mad Max was specially made for that film. If I was fucking richer, I would have bought one of those Holdens and brought it back to Britain. I nearly... when I saw how many old Holdens there were. Well, that's about. a Ford, that one, actually. Yeah, gosh, in, in Australia. Oh, yeah, there's the red and the blue team. The red team's Holden and the blue team's Ford. Yeah, that's actually a Ford Falcon, yeah. 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 And I, I'm a bit of a, a motorhead as well. And the other thing that I saw was the Australian Capri. I love Capris. They were the coolest car you could buy when nice. I was a kid. But the Australian yeah. one came as a V8. They only ever did a V6 in Britain. That's <laughs> right. We, we put V8s in everything. Then. I still drive a Hemi, actually, a Chrysler, a Jeep, um, V8. We love V8s here in Australia. It'll never go out of Sweet. fashion here, you know. So. Well, you've got the roads for it, mate. You know, it's not practical owning a, an Interceptor where I live because it's all back roads. Well, where are you? If all, you look at where yeah. I am on the map, there is a long straight road, 40 miles, that joins us to a motorway. And that's the way out. Everything else is rural. Well, I live, I live in a rural area. Well, not rural, I live next to the beach, actually. Probably similar to you, but in a in a Sunshine Coast. And um, yeah, yeah. we, um, yeah, I have to drive between here and the Gold Coast all the time. And a V8's beautiful for me because it just cruises. It just sits there doing wow. it. And a four-cylinder car would be terrible. It would uh, bounce all over the road on our bullshit highways here in Australia that are just, they're tarred, but there's a lot of potholes and all the rest of them in them. Wow. You know? Yeah, it's a, it's a, I, I genuinely considered applying for citizenship for Australia. Before oh, good I on you, mate. Yeah, good on because, you. Because um, apparently it's a point system and because I was in good health and young and had a reasonable education, nothing special. Um, I did actually do the checks and I got within a couple of points and the guy said, look, if you go to college for 12 months, you can apply. So, uh, yeah, in a parallel universe, but my wife is so <laughs> hot, I stayed in Britain. <laughs> well, come and visit it was worth time, doing, mate. mate. I'll, yeah. be, I'll be back. It would be a tragedy if I never got to visit again. Oh, because great. as I say, I have um, a great friend in Geelong that I stayed in touch with the whole time. And we haven't seen each other in person since, did you say, 97 I was there? Yep. Yeah, 90, yeah. yeah 97, mate. Jesus, that's how long ago it is, yeah. So if I ever do come, I won't tell him I'm here. I'm going to turn up on his doorstep, tell his wife to make sure he's in and freak him out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'll have a few cold ones there for you. Um, I'll, I'll make sure... Send me an email address or something because okay, we're going to yep. hire a PR guy for our album. I'll make sure you get a review copy. Okay, thanks, and, mate. And yep. uh, hopefully enjoy it because I think the three songs I sent you, they're literally random ones. Yep. We couldn't decide what well, to I use do as enjoy a promo. It. I'm not just, not just yeah. saying that. I do enjoy it. But, you know, because I'm a fan, obviously, I, I enjoy what you do. So, um, yeah, look, it's... But there um, are some of those harmony guitars on there for you guys. It's just they didn't get on the promo list. So okay. whenever I can make it all happen because I don't know... I don't know enough about the world of professional music to say that guy's a good PR because my favourite one, she doesn't do it anymore. The girl that used to do Craig the Filth, she was amazing. That's mm. how we achieved so much in America is because of her. Okay. So see what happens and I'll make sure you're on the promo list because uh, it's 11 songs written over 10 years. It's unlike anything else I've ever done and it's heavy as fuck, mate. And you need to see it live realistically. Okay. I'd love to bring the band to Australia. Oh, you'd be well. That's something. I mean, I'm looking at getting into promotion myself, actually. So I've no idea how I'll do it because I'm effectively a telecommunications account executive who is doing this and trying to make a fist of this in in my life post telecommunications account executive. Uh, you know, is that with my career? But um, Ralph Santola said the same. Well, he said something to me. He goes, well, I want to, I want to come over. You bring me over. So, mate, I'm going to keep that in the back of my mind. Yeah, we'd love to come too. If you can find a place for nine pence, we'll be there. No worries, mate. All right, well... Yeah, just for the excuse of visiting again. But we we are essentially... Oh, that sounds trite. We are a live band. We love playing live. And it's much more fluid than Cradle of Filth ever could be because there's only three of us and we can make decisions faster on stage about what the next song is. We can change it. 
But uh, if it goes that way, love to come over. But we're going to look into seriously promoting this album because I think it's a great record. Totally different to anything else I've ever done, but I'm every bit as chuffed with it. Mm. Yep. So uh, well, my regards to Les when he catch up with him. I bet you speak to him before <laughs> I do. He's so busy these days. I chat to Barker more than him. All right. Well, look, I'll <laughs> anyway, let you know. I must fly. And thanks for the, the time and the compliments. It's, it's genuinely really special for me. Because Thank you, mate. Yep. It, it's, um, I assumed everybody had forgotten me. And because no. I'm a Luddite, I didn't go on Facebook until about four years ago. And I got so many messages. Are you actual Stuart Anstis? Which I thought was funny. <laughs> the Stuart Anstis. Because I always used to say, no, the, the real one's a clinical psychologist from California. <laughs> if you Google my name, I'm number two. <laughs> but I'll, I'll speak to you soon, my friend. All right, brother. Thank you so much, eh? Talk to you soon. Yeah. Cheers, buddy. Thanks, mate. Take care, bye. Well, there you have it. What did you think? You like that? Plenty of people do. As I said in the introduction, there was a Reddit thread created that mentioned that I talk too much and something about it's worth suffering through that. So I hope you didn't have to suffer through my side of things, but uh, I hope you understand now that you've had a chance to listen to the conversation in full, why I haven't cut it to pieces through an edit, why I've left it intact. I just thought that there were far too much, there is far too much in the way of well, the dynamic, it's all about the dynamic, I think, and you want to hear, feel that crescendo, the ebb and the flow. It's a four-hour chat, and if you've gotten this far, you are definitely a fan, and I appreciate it. If you liked what you just heard and you haven't listened to the show before, go across to scarsandguitars.com because there are over 550 episodes, maybe not like that one. That is a high watermark, that one, that chat with Stuart, but uh, many other conversations, the members of, uh, for example, with the members of Morbid Angel, Cannibal Corpse, Emperor, Immortal. At this point in time, I'm not afraid to say if a band has been around for about 20 years or so and they've had some time in the spotlight, chances are I've managed to interview them. So just go across to scarsandguitars.com or even the Wooshka widget, which is easily found. Just type in Scars and Guitars. I think that might be the first or the second thing that comes up. I'm changing the website. Hopefully by the time you watch this, because I'm doing this narration in June of 2021. Hopefully, if it's in the distant future, I have updated the website and I'm going to group all of the most important episodes under their referenced bands. So say, for example, Stuart will go underneath Cradle of Filth, as will Nick, Greg Moffat, Lindsay Schoolcraft, and under Morbid Angel, you'll get Eric Rutan. There you go, who did the introduction for me. Forever grateful for that, Eric. You know what I'm saying, Testament, so many great bands, members of bands that I've interviewed. Go and check them all out. So please like, subscribe, and all of that sort of stuff. It does help, believe me. Leave a comment too. Leaving a comment is actually more important and affects me more positively. Is that the right way to describe it? Whatever. You know what I'm saying. It gives me greater benefits if you comment. There you go. That sounds better. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. Thanks so much for listening and watching.